This is Audible. Recorded books and one-click digital present Morning Star by Pierce Brown, narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds. I rise into darkness. Away from the garden they watered with the blood of my friends. The golden man who killed my wife lies dead beside me on the cold metal deck. Life snuffed out by his own son's hand. Autumn wind whips my hair. The ship rumbles beneath. In the distance, friction flames shred the night with brilliant orange. The telemanus is descending from orbit to rescue me. Better that they do not. Better to let the darkness have me and allow the vultures to squabble over my paralyzed body. My enemies' voices echo behind me, towering demons with the faces of angels. The smallest of them bends, stroking my head as he looks down at his dead father. This is always how the story would end, he says to me. Not with your screams, not with your rage, but with your silence. Roke, my betrayer, sits in the corner. He was my friend, heart too kind for his color. Now he turns his head, and I see his tears. But they are not for me. They are for what he has lost, for the ones I have taken from him. No Ares to save you, no Mustang to love you. You are alone, Darrow. The jackal's eyes are distant and quiet, like me. He lifts up a black, eyeless mask with a muzzle on it and straps it to my face, darkening my sight. This is how it ends. To break me, he has slain those I love. But there is hope in those still living, in Severo, in Ragnar and Dancer. I think of all my people bound in darkness, of all the colors in all the worlds, shackled and chained so that gold might rule, and I feel the rage burn across the dark hollow he has carved in my soul. I am not alone. I am not his victim. So let him do his worst. I am the Reaper. I know how to suffer. I know the darkness. This is not how it ends. Part One Thorns Paraspera ad Astra Chapter One Only the Dark Deep in darkness, far from warmth and sun and moons, I lie, quiet as the stone that surrounds me, imprisoning my hunched body in a dreadful womb. I cannot stand, cannot stretch. I can only curl in a ball, a withered fossil of the man that I was. 
hands cuffed behind my back, naked on cold rock. All alone with the dark. It seems months, years, millennia since my knees have unbent, since my spine has straightened from its crooked pose. The ache is madness. My joints fuse like rusted iron. How much time has passed since I saw my golden friends bleeding out into the grass? Since I felt gentle Roke kiss my cheek as he broke my heart? Time is no river. Not here. In this tomb, time is the stone. It is the darkness. Permanent and unyielding. Its only measure, the twin pendulums of life, breath, and the beating of my heart. In, bo-bump, bo-bump. Out, bo-bump. Ba-bump. In. Ba-bump. Ba-bump. And forever it repeats. Until. Until when? Until I die of old age? Until I crush my skull against the stone? Until I gnaw out the tubes the yellows threaded into my lower gut to force nutrients in and wastes out? Or until you go mad? No! I grind my teeth. Yes. It's only the dark. I breathe in. Calm myself. Touch the walls in my soothing pattern. Back, fingers, tailbone, heels, toes, knees, head. Repeat a dozen times. A hundred? Why not be sure? Make it a thousand. Yes. I'm alone. I would have thought there to be worse fates than this. But now I know there are none. Man is no island. We need those who love us. We need those who hate us. We need others to tether us to life, to give us a reason to live, to feel. All I have is the darkness. Sometimes I scream. Sometimes I laugh during the night, during the day. Who knows now? I laugh to pass the time, to exhaust the calories the jackal gives me and make my body shiver into sleep. I weep, too. I hum. I whistle. I listen to voices above coming to me from the endless sea of darkness, and attending them is the maddening clatter of chains and bones vibrating through my prison walls. All so close, yet a thousand kilometers away, as if a whole world existed just beyond the darkness and I cannot see it, cannot touch it, taste it, feel it, or pierce that veil to belong to the world once again. I am a prisoner in solitude. I hear the voices now, the chains and bones trickling through my prison. Are the voices mine? I laugh at the idea. I curse. I plot. 
kill, slaughter, gouge, rip, burn. I beg, I hallucinate, I bargain. I whimper prayers to Eo. Happy she was spared a fate like this. She's not listening. I sing childhood ballads and recite Dying Earth, The Lamplighter, The Ramayana, The Odyssey, in Greek and Latin, then in the lost languages of Arabic, English, Chinese, and German, pulling from memories of data drops Matteo gave me when I was barely more than a boy, seeking strength from the wayward Argive, who only wished to find his way home. You forget what he did. Odysseus was a hero. He broke the walls of Troy with his wooden horse, like I broke the Bologna armies in the iron rain over Mars. And then? No, I snap. Quiet. Men entered Troy, found mothers, found children. Guess what they did? Shut up. You know what they did. Bone, sweat, flesh, ash, weeping, blood. The darkness cackles with glee. Reaper, reaper, reaper. All deeds that last are painted in blood. Am I asleep? Am I awake? I've lost my way. Everything bleeding together, drowning me in visions and whispers and sounds. Again and again I jerk Eo's fragile little ankles, break Julian's face, hear Pax and Quinn and Tactus and Lorne and Victra sigh their last. So much pain. And for what? To fail my wife. To fail my people. And fail Ares. Fail your friends. How many are even left? Several. Ragnar? Mustang. Mustang. What if she knows you're here? What if she doesn't care? And why would she? You who betrayed. You who lied. You who used her mind. Her body. Her blood. You showed her your true face and she ran. What if it was her? What if she betrayed you? Could you love her then? Shut up! I scream at myself. At the darkness. Don't think of her. Don't think of her. Why ever not? You miss her. A vision of her is spawned in the darkness like so many before it. A girl riding away from me across a field of green, twisting in her saddle and laughing for me to follow. Hair rippling, as would summer hay fluttering from a farmer's wagon. You crave her. You love her. The golden girl. Forget that red bitch. No! I slam my head against the wall. It's only the dark, I whisper. Only the dark playing tricks on my mind. 
But still, I tried to forget Mustang, Eo. There is no world beyond this place. I cannot miss what does not exist. Warm blood trickles down my forehead from old scabs, now freshly broken. It drips off my nose. I extend my tongue, probing the cold stone till I find the drops. Savor the salt, the Martian iron. Slowly. Slowly. Let the novelty of sensation last. Let the flavor linger and remind me I am a man. A red of Lycos. A hell diver. No. You are not. You are nothing. Your wife abandoned you and stole your child. Your whore turned from you. You are not good enough. You are too proud. Too stupid. Too wicked. Now you are forgotten. Am I? When last I saw the golden girl, I was on my knees beside Ragnar in the tunnels of Lycos, asking Mustang to betray her own people and live for more. I knew that if she chose to join us, Eo's dream would blossom. A better world was at our fingertips. Instead, she left. Could she forget me? Has her love for me left her? She only loved your mask. It's only the dark, only the dark, only the dark. I mumble faster and faster. I should not be here. I should be dead. After the death of Lorne, I was to be given to Octavia so her carvers could dissect me to discover the secrets of how I became gold, to see if there could be others like me. But the jackal made a bargain, kept me for his own. He tortured me in his Attica estate, asking about the sons of Ares, about Lycos and my family, never telling me how he discovered my secret. I begged him to end my life. In the end, he gave me stone. When all is lost, honor demands death, Roke once told me. It is a noble end. But what would a rich poet know of death? The poor know death. Slaves know death. But even as I yearn for it, I fear it. Because the more I see of this cruel world, the less I believe it ends in some pleasant fiction. The veil is not real. It's a lie told by mothers and fathers to give their starving children a reason for the horror. There is no reason. Eo is gone. She never watched me fight for her dream. She did not care what fate I made at the Institute, or if I loved Mustang, because the day she died she became nothing. There is nothing but this world. It is our beginning and our end, our one chance at joy before the dark. Yes, but you don't have to end. You can escape this place, the darkness whispers to me. 
Say the words. Say them. You know the way. It is right. I do. All you must say is, I am broken, and this will all end. The jackal said long ago, before he lowered me into this hell. I will put you in a lovely estate for the rest of your days and send you warm, beautiful pinks and food enough to make you fatter than the ash lord. But the words carry a price. Worth it. Save yourself. No one else will. That price, dear Reaper, is your family. The family he seized from Lycos with his lurchers, and now keeps in his prison in the bowels of his Attica fortress. Never letting me see them, never letting me tell them I love them, and that I'm sorry I was not strong enough to protect them. I will feed them to the prisoners of this fortress, he said. These men and women you think should rule instead of gold. Once you see the animal in man, you will know that I am right, and you are wrong. Gold must rule. Let them go, the darkness says. The sacrifice is practical. It is wise. No, I won't. Your mother would want you to live. Not at that price. What man could grasp a mother's love? Live. For her, for Eo. Could she want that? Is the darkness right? After all, I'm important. Eo said so. Ares said so. He chose me. Me, of all the reds. I can break the chains. I can live for more. It's not selfish for me to escape this prison. In the grand scheme of things, it is selfless. Yes, selfless, really. Mother would beg me to make this sacrifice. Kieran would understand. So would my sister. I can save our people. Eo's dream must be made real, no matter the cost. It's my responsibility to persevere. It is my right. Say the words. I slam my head into the stone and scream at the darkness to go away. It cannot trick me. It cannot break me. Didn't you know? All men break. Its high cackle mocks me, stretching forever. And I know it is right. All men break. I did already under his torture. I told him that I was from Lycos, where he could find my family. But there is a way out, to honour what I am, what Eo loved, to silence the voices. Roke, you were right, I whisper. You were right. I just want to be home, to be gone from here. But I can't have that. All that's left, the only honourable path for me is death, before I betray even more of who I am. Death 
is the way out. Don't be a fool. Stop. Stop. I lurch my head forward into the wall harder than before. Not to punish, but to kill. To end myself. If there is no pleasant end to this world, then nothingness will suffice. But if there is a veil beyond this plane, I will find it. I'm coming, Eo. At last, I am on my way. I love you. No, 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 no. I crush my skull into the stone. Heat pours down my face. Sparks of pain dance in the black. The darkness wails at me. But I do not stop. If this is the end, I will rage toward it. But as I pull back my head to deliver one last great blow, existence groans, rumbling like an earthquake, not the darkness, something beyond, something in the stone itself, growing louder and deeper above me, till the darkness cracks and a blazing sword of light slashes down. Chapter 2 Prisoner L17L6363 The ceiling parts. Light burns my eyes. I clamp them shut as the floor of my cell rises upward till, with a click, it stops and I rest, exposed on a flat stone surface. I push out my legs and gasp, nearly fainting from the pain. Joints crack knotted tendons unspool. I fight to reopen my eyes against the raging light. Tears fill them. It is so bright I can only catch bleached flashes of the world around. Fragments of alien voices surround me. Adrius, what is this? Has he been in there this whole time? The stench! I lie upon stone. It stretches around me to either side. Black, rippling with blue and purple, like the shell of a Creonian beetle. A floor? No. I see cups. Saucers. A cart of coffee. It's a table. That was my prison. Not some hideous abyss, just a meter-wide, twelve-meter-long slab of marble with a hollow center. They've eaten inches above me every night. Their voices, the distant whispers I heard in the darkness. The clatter of their silverware and plates, my only company. Barbaric. I remember now. This is the table the jackal sat at when I visited him after recovering from the wounds incurred during the iron rain. Did he plan my imprisonment even then? I wore a hood when they put me in here. I thought I was in the bowels of his fortress. But no, thirty centimeters of stone separated their suppers from my hell. I look up from the coffee tray by my head. Someone stares at me. Several someones. Can't see them through the tears and blood in my eyes. I twist away, coiling inward like a blind mole unearthed for the first time. 
too overwhelmed and terrified to remember pride or hate. But I know he stares at me. The jackal. A childish face and a slender body, with sandy hair parted on the side. He clears his throat. My honoured guest, may I present prisoner L17L6363. His face is both heaven and hell. To see another man. To know I am not alone. But then to remember what he's done to me. It rips my soul out. Other voices slither and boom, deafening in their loudness. And even curled as I am, I feel something beyond their noise. Something natural and gentle and kind. Something the darkness convinced me I would never feel again. It drifts softly through an open window, kissing my skin. A late autumn breeze cuts through the meaty, humid stink of my filth and makes me think that somewhere a child is sprinting through snow and trees, running his hands along bark and pine needles and getting sap in his hair. It's a memory I know I've never had, but feel like I should. That's the life I would have wanted, the child I could have had. I weep, less for me than for that boy who thinks he lives in a kind world, where mother and father are as large and strong as mountains. If only I could be so innocent again. If only I knew this moment was not a trick. But it is. The jackal does not give except to take away. Soon the light will be a memory, and darkness will return. I keep my eyes clenched tight, listening to the blood from my face drip on the stone and wait for the twist. Gory hell, Augustus. Was this really necessary? A feline killer purrs. Husky accents smothered in that indolent lunar lilt learned in the courts of the Palatine Hill or all are less impressed by everything than anyone else. He smells like death. Fermented sweat and dead skin under the magnetic shackles. See the yellowish crust on his forearms, Asha? The jackal notes. Still, he's very much healthy and ready for your carvers, all things considered. You know the man better than I, Aja says to someone else. Make sure it is him, not an imposter. You doubt my word? The jackal asks. You wound me. I flinch, feeling someone approach. Please. You'd need a heart for that, Arch-Governor. And you've many gifts, but that organ, I'm afraid, is dearly absent. You compliment me too much. Spoons clatter against porcelain. Throats are cleared. I long to cover my ears. So much sound, so much information. You really can see the red in him now. It's a cold, cultured female voice from northern Mars. More brusque than the lunar accent. Exactly, Antonia, the jackal replies. 
I've been curious to see how he turned out. A member of the Oriot genus could never be so debased as this creature here before us. You know, he asked me for death before I put him in there. Started weeping about it. The irony is, he could have killed himself whenever he chose. But he didn't, because some part of him relished that hole. You see, reds long ago adapted to darkness, like worms, no pride to their rusty race. He was at home down there, more than he ever was with us. Now I remember the hate. I open my eyes to let them know I see them, hear them. Yet as my eyes open, they are drawn not to my enemy, but to the winter vista that sprawls out the window behind the golds. There, six of the seven mountain peaks of Attica glitter in the morning light. Metal and glass buildings crest stone and snow and yawn upward toward the blue sky. Bridges suture the peaks together. A light snow falls. It's a blurred mirage to my nearsighted cave eyes. Darrow. I know the voice. I turn my head slightly to see one of his calloused hands on the edge of the table. I flinch away, thinking it will strike me. It doesn't. But the hand's middle finger bears the golden eagle of Bologna. The family I destroyed. The other hand belongs to the arm I cut off on Luna when we last dueled, the one that was remade by Zanzibar the Carver. Two wolf's head rings of House Mars encircle those fingers. One is mine, one is his, each worth the price of a young gold's life. Do you recognize me? he asks. I crane my head to look up at his face. Broken I may be, but Cassius Albelona is undimmed by war or time. More beautiful by far than memory could ever allow, he pulses with life. Over two meters tall, cloaked in the white and gold of the morning night, his coiled hair lustrous as the trail of a falling star. He's clean-shaven, and his nose slightly crooked from a recent break. When I meet his eyes, I do all I can to not fall into sobs. The way he looks at me is sad, nearly tender. What a shadow of myself I must be to earn pity from a man I've hurt so deeply. Cassius. I murmur with no agenda except to say the name, to speak to another human, to be heard. And? Aja Grimace asks from behind Cassius. The most violent of the sovereign's furies wears the same armor I saw her in when first we met in the citadel spire on Luna. The night Mustang rescued me, and Aja beat Quinn to death. It's scuffed, battle-worn. Fear overwhelms my hate, and I look away from the dark-skinned woman yet again. He's alive after all, Cassius says quietly. He turns on the jackal. What did you do to him? 
the scars. I should think it obvious, the jackal says. I have unmade the reaper. I finally look down at my body past my ratty beard to see what he means. I am a corpse, skeletal and pallid. Ribs erupt from skin thinner than the film atop heated milk. Knees jut from spindly legs. Toenails have grown long and grasping. Scars from the jackal's torture mottle my flesh. Muscle has withered, and tubes that kept me alive in the darkness erupt from my belly, black and stringy umbilical cords, still anchoring me to the floor of my cell. How long was he in there? Cassius asks. Three months of interrogation, then nine months of solitary. Nine. As is fitting. War shouldn't make us abandon metaphor. We're not savages after all, eh, Bologna? Cassius's sensibilities are offended, Adrius, Antonia says, from her place near the jackal. She's a poisoned apple of a woman, shiny and bright and promising, but rotten and cancerous to the core. She killed my friend Leah at the Institute, put a bullet in her own mother's head, and then two more into her sister Victor's spine. Now she's allied with the jackal, a man who crucified her at the Institute. What a world. Behind Antonia stands dark-faced Thistle, once a howler, now a member of the jackal's bone riders by the look of the jackal's skull pennant on her chest. She looks at the floor instead of at me. Her captain is bald-headed Lilith, who sits at the jackal's right hand, his favorite personal killer ever since the Institute. Pardon me if I fail to see the purpose of torturing a fallen enemy, Cassius answers especially if he is given all the information he has to give. The purpose? The jackal stares at him, eyes quiet, as he explains. The purpose is punishment, my goodman. This thing presumed he belonged among us, like he was an equal, Cassius, a superior even. He mocked us, bedded my sister, he laughed at us and played us for fools before we found him out. He must know it was not chance that he lost, but inevitability. Reds have always been cunning little creatures, and he, my friends, is the personification of what they wish to be, what they will be, if we let them. So I let time and darkness remake him, into what he really is. A homo flammius, to use the new classification system I proposed to the board. Barely different from homo sapiens on the evolutionary timeline. The rest was just a mask. You mean he made a fool of you? Cassius passes. When your father preferred a carved-up red to his blood heir? That's what this is, jackal. The petulant shame of a boy unloved and unwanted. The jackal twitches at that. Aja's equally displeased by her young companion's tone. 
Darrow took Julian's life, Antonia says. Then slaughtered your family. Cassius, he sent killers to butcher the children of your blood as they hid on Olympus Mons. One would wonder what your mother would think of your pity. Cassius ignores them, jerking his head towards the pinks at the edge of the room. Fetch the prisoner a blanket. They do not move. Such manners, even from you, Thistle. She gives no answer. With a snort of contempt, Cassius strips off his white cloak and drapes it over my shivering body. For a moment, no one speaks, as struck by the act as I. Thank you, I croak. But he looks away from my hollow face. Pity is not forgiveness, nor is gratitude absolution. Lilith snorts a laugh without looking up from her bowl of soft-boiled hummingbird eggs. She slurps at them like candy. There is a point when honor becomes a flaw of character, morning night. Sitting beside the jackal, the bald woman peers up at Aja with eyes like those of the eels in Venus's cavern seas. Another egg goes down. Old man Arcos learned the hard way. Aja does not reply, her manners faultless. But a deathly silence lurks inside the woman, a silence I remember from the moments before she killed Quinn. Lorne taught her the blade. She will not like seeing his name mocked. Lilith greedily swallows another egg, sacrificing manners for insult. There's animosity between these allies. As always with their kind, but this seems a stark new division between the old golds and the jackals' more modern breed. We're all friends here, the jackal says playfully. Mind your manners, Lilith. Lorne was an iron gold who simply chose the wrong side. So, Aja, I'm curious. Now that my lease on the Reaper is up, do you still plan to dissect him? We do, Aja says. Shouldn't have thanked Cassius after all. His honor isn't true. It's just sanitary. Zanzibar is curious to discover how he was made. He has his theories, but he's champing at the bit for the specimen. We were hoping to round up the carver that did the deed, but we think he perished in a missile strike up in Cato, Alcedalia province. Or they want you to think that, Antonia says. You once had him here, didn't you? Aja asks pointedly. The jackal nods. Mickey's his name. Lost his license after he carved an unlicensed Orient birth. Family tried sparing their child the exposure. Anyway, he specialized in black market aerial and aquatic pleasure mods afterward. He had a carve shop in Yorkton before the sons recruited him for a special job. Darrow helped him escape my custody. If you want my opinion, he's still alive. My operatives place him in Tinos. Aja and Cassius exchange a look. If you have a lead on Tinos, you need to share it with us now, Cassius says. I have 
Nothing definitive yet. Tinos is well hidden, and we've yet to capture one of their ship captains. Alive. The jackal sips his coffee. But irons are in the fire, and you'll be the first to know if anything comes of them. Though I rather think my bone riders would like the first crack at the howlers. Wouldn't you, Lilith? I try not to stir at the mention of the name, but it's hard not to. They're alive. Some of them, at least. And they chose the sons of Ares over gold. Yes, sir, Lilith says, studying me. We'd relish a real hunt. Fighting the Red Legion and the other insurgents is a bore, even for greys. The Sovereign needs us home anyway, Cassius, Aja says. Then to the Jackal. We'll be departing as soon as my thirteenth has decamped from the Golan Basin. Likely by morning. You're taking your legions back to Luna? Just the thirteenth. The rest will remain under your supervision. The Jackal is surprised. My supervision? Unloan till this rising is fully snuffed out. She practically spits the word, a new one to my ears. It's a token of the Sovereign's trust. You know she is pleased with your progress here. Despite your methods, Cassius adds, drawing an annoyed look from Azure. Well, if you're leaving in the morning, you should, of course, dine with me this evening. I've been wanting to discuss certain policies regarding the rebels in the rim. The jackal is vague because I'm listening. Information's his weapon. Suggesting my friends betrayed me. Never saying which. Dropping hints and clues during my torture before I was sent into the dark. A grey telling him that his sister is waiting in his salon. His fingers smelling like frothed chai tea, his sister's favorite drink. Does she know I am here? Has she sat at this table? The jackal is still prattling on. Hard to track the voices. So much to decipher. Too much. I'll have my men clean Darrow up for his travels, and we can throw a feast of Trimalkian proportions after our discussion. I know the Voluxes and the Coriolises would be delighted to see you again. It's been too long since I had such august company as two Olympic knights. You're in the field so often, skirting around provinces, hunting through the tunnels and seas and ghettos. How long has it been since you had a fine meal without worry of a night raid or suicide bombers? A spell, Aja admits. We took the brothers' wrath up on their hospitality when we passed through Thessalonica. They were eager to show their loyalty after their behavior during the lion's reign. It was unsettling. The jackal laughs. I fear my dinner will be tame by comparison. It's been all politicians and soldiers of late. This gory damn war has so impeded my social calendar, as you can imagine. Sure, it's not your reputation for hospitality? Cassius asks. Or your diet? Aja sighs, trying to hide her amusement. <laughs>
Manners, Bologna. Not to fear. The enmity between our houses is hard to forget, Cassius, but we must find common ground in times like these. For the sake of gold. The jackal smiles. Though inside I know he's imagining sawing off both their heads with a dull knife. Anyway, we all have our schoolyard stories. I'm hardly ashamed. There was one other matter we wished to discuss, Asha says. It's Antonia's turn to sigh. I told you there would be. What does our sovereign require now? It pertains to what Cassius mentioned earlier. My methods, the jackal confirms. Yes. I thought the sovereign was pleased with the pacification effort. She is, but... She asked for order. I have provided. Helium-3 continues to flow, with only a 3.2% decrease in production. The rising is struggling for air. Soon Ares will be found, and Tinos, and all this will be behind us. Fabiai is the one who is taking his... Aja interrupts. It's the kill squads. Ah. And the liquidation of protocols you've instituted in rebellious minds. She's worried that the severity of your methods against the low reds will create a backlash comparable to earlier propaganda setbacks. There have been bombings on the Palatine Hill. Strikes in Latfundius on Earth. Even protests at the gate of the Citadel itself. The spirit of rebellion is alive. But it is fractured. It must remain so. I doubt we'll be seeing many more protests after the obsidians are sent in, Antonia says smugly. Still, there is no danger of my tactics reaching the public eye. The sun's abilities to propagate their message has been neutered, the jackal says. I control the message now, Asha. The people know this war is already lost. They'll never see a picture of the bodies, never glimpse a liquidated mine. What they will continue to see is red attacks on civilian targets. Mid-color and high-color children dead in schools. The public is with us. And if they do see what you're doing? Cassius asks. The jackal does not immediately reply. Instead, he signals a barely-dressed pinkover from the couches in the adjacent sitting room. The girl, hardly older than Eo was, comes to his side and stares meekly at the ground. Her eyes are rose quartz, her hair a silvery lilac that hangs in braids down to her bare lower back. She was raised to pleasure these monsters, and I fear knowing what those soft eyes of hers have seen. My pain seems suddenly so tiny, the madness in my mind so quiet. The jackal strokes the girl's face, and, still looking at me, shoves his fingers into her mouth, prying her teeth apart. He moves the girl's head with his stump so I can see. Then so Aja and Cassius might. She has no tongue. I did this myself, after we took her eight months ago. 
she attempted to assassinate one of my bone riders at an Aegea Pearl Club. She hates me, wants nothing more in this world than to see me rotting in the ground. Letting go of her face, he pops his sidearm out of his holster and thrusts it into the girl's hands. Shoot me in the head, Calliope, for all the indignities I have heaped upon you and your kind. Go on. I took your tongue. You remember what I did to you in the library? It will happen again and again and again. He returns his hand to her face, squeezing her fragile jaw. And again. Pull the trigger, you little tart. Pull it! The pink shakes in fear and throws the gun on the floor, falling to her knees to clutch his feet. He stands benevolent and loving above her, touching her head with his hand. There, there, Calliope. You did well. You did well. The jackal turns to Aja. For the public, honey is always better than vinegar. But for those who war with wrenches, with poison, with sabotage in the sewers and terror in the streets and nibble at us like cockroaches in the night, fear is the only method. His eyes find mine. Fear and extermination. Chapter 3 Snakebite Blood beads where buzzing metal pinches my scalp. Dirty, blonde hair puddles into the concrete as the grey finishes scalping me with an electric razor. His compatriots call him Danto. He rolls my head around to make sure he's got it all before clapping me hard on the top of it. How about a bath, Dominus? he asks. Grimish likes her prisoners to smell nice and civil, yeah? He taps the muzzle they strapped to my face after I tried to bite one of them. They moved me with an electric collar around my neck, arms bound still behind my back. A squad of twelve hardcore lurchers dragging me through the halls like a bag of trash. Another grey jerks me from my chair by my collar as Danto goes to pull a power hose from the wall. They're more than a head shorter than I am, but compact and rugged. The lives they live are hard, chasing outriders in the belt, stalking syndicate killers through the depths of Luna, hunting sons of Ares in the mines. I hate them touching me. All the sights and sounds they make, it's too much, too gruff, too hard. Everything they do hurts, jerking me around, slapping me casually, I try my best to keep the tears away, but I don't know how to compartmentalize it all. The line of twelve soldiers crowds together, watching me as Danto aims the hose. They've got three obsidian men with them. Most lurcher squads do. The water hits me like a horse kick in the chest, tearing skin. I spin on the concrete floor, sliding across the room till I'm pinned in the corner. My skull slams against the wall. Stars swarm my sight. I swallow water. Choking, hunching to protect my face because my hands are still pinned behind my back. When they finished, 
I'm still gasping and coughing around the muzzle, trying to suck in air. They uncuff me and slip my arms and legs into a black prisoner's jumpsuit before binding me again. There's a hood, too, that they'll soon jerk over my head to rob me of what little humanity I have left. I'm thrown back into the chair. They click my restraints into the chair's receptacle, so I'm locked down. Everything's redundant. Every move watched. They guard me like what I was, not what I am. I squint at them, vision bleary and nearsighted. Water drips from my eyelashes. I try to sniff, but my nose is clogged tight with congealed blood from nostril to nasal cavity. They broke it when they put the muzzle on. We're in a processing room for the Board of Quality Control, which oversees the administrative functions of the prison beneath the Jackal's Fortress. The building has the concrete box shape of every government facility. Poisonous lighting makes everyone here look like a walking corpse with pores the size of meteor craters. Aside from the greys, the obsidian, and a single yellow doctor, there's a chair, an examination table, and a hose. But the fluid stains around the floor's metal drain, and the nail scratches on the metal chair are the face and soul of this room. The ending of lives begins here. Cassius would never come to this hull. Few gulls would ever need or want to unless they made the wrong enemies. It's the inside of the clock, where the gears whir and grind. How could anyone be brave in a place so inhuman as this? Crazy, ain't it? Danto asks those behind him. He looks back at me. All my life, never seen something so slagging odd. Carver must have put a hundred kilos on him, says another. More. Ever seen him in his armor? He was a damned monster. Danto flicks my muzzle with a tattooed finger. Bet it hurt being born twice. Gotta respect that. Pain's the universal language. Ain't it, Ruster? When I don't respond, he leans forward and stomps on my bare foot with his steel-heeled boot. The big toenail splits. Pain and blood rupture from the exposed nail bed. My head lolls sideways as I gasp. Ain't it? He asks again. Tears leak from my eyes, not from the pain, but from the casualness of his cruelty. It makes me feel so small. Why does it take so little for him to hurt me so much? It almost makes me miss the box. He's only a baboon in a suit, another says. Leave off him. He don't know any better. Don't know any better? Danto asks. Bullshit. He liked the fit of master's clothes, like lording over us. Danto crouches so he's looking into my eyes. I try to look away, frightened he'll hurt me again. But he seizes my head and pulls open my eyelids with his thumbs so we're eye to eye. Two of my sisters died in that reign of yours, Ruster. Lost a lot of friends, you hear? He hits the side of my head with something metal. I see spots, feel more blood leak from me. Behind him, 
Their centurion checks his datapad. You'd want the same for my kids, wouldn't you? Danto searches my eyes for an answer. I have none he'd accept. Like the rest, Danto's a veteran legionnaire, rough as a rusted sewer grate. Tech festoons his black combat gear, where scuffed purple dragons coil in faint filigree. Optic implants in his eyes for thermal vision and the reading of battle maps. Under his skin, he'll have more embedded tech to help him hunt golds and obsidians. The tattoo of an XIII clutched by a moving sea dragon stains all their necks, little heaps of ash at the base of the numeral. These are members of Legio Thirteen Dracones, the favoured Praetorian legion of the Ash Lord, and now his daughter, Azure. Civilians would just call them dragoons. Mustang hated the fanatics. It's a whole independent army of 30,000 chosen by Azure to be the hand of the sovereign away from Luna. They hate me. They hate low colours with a marrow deep racism even goals can't match. Go for the ears, Danto, if you want to make him yelp. One of the greys suggests. The woman stands at the door, nutcracker jaw bobbing up and down as she gnaws on a bubblegum. Her ashen hair is shaved into a short mohawk, voice drawling in some earth-born dialect. She leans against the metal beside a yawning male grey with a delicate nose, more like a pink's than a soldier's. You hit them with a cupped hand. You can pop the eardrum with the pressure. Thanks, Holly. Here to help. Danto cups his hand. Like this. He hits my head. A little more curve to it. The centurion snaps his fingers. Danto, Grimace wants him in one piece. Back up and let the doc take a look. I breathe a sigh of relief at the reprieve. The fat yellow doctor ambles forward to inspect me with beady ochre eyes. The pale lights above make the bald patch on his head shine like a pale waxed apple. He runs his bioscope over my chest, watching the visual through little digital implants in his eyes. Well, Doc? The centurion asks. Remarkable. The yellow whispers after a moment. Bone density and organs are quite healthy, despite the low caloric diet. Muscles have atrophied, as we've observed in laboratory settings, but not as poorly as natural aureate tissue. You're saying he's better than gold? The centurion asks. I did not say that. The doctor snaps. Relax, there's no cameras, doc. This is a processing room. What's the verdict? It can travel. It? I manage in a low, unearthly growl from behind my muzzle. The doctor recoils, surprised I can speak. And long-term sedation? Got three weeks to learn at this orbit. That will be fine. The doctor gives me a frightened look. But I would up the dose by ten milligrams per day, Captain, just to be safe. It has an abnormally strong circulatory system. Right. The captain nods to the female grey. You're up, Holly. Put him to bed. Then let's get the cart and roll out. You're square, Doc. 
Head back to your safe little espresso and silk world now. We'll take care of... Pop! The front half of the centurion's forehead comes off. Something metal hits the wall. I stare at the centurion, mind not processing why his face is gone. Pop, 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 pop. Like knuckle joints. Red mist geysers into the air from the heads of the nearest dragoons, spraying my face. I duck my head away. Behind them, the nutcracker-jawed woman walks casually through their ranks, shooting them point-blank in the backs of their heads. The rest pull their rifles up, scrambling, unable to even utter curses before a second grey double-taps five of them from his place at the door with an old-fashioned gunpowder slug-shooter. Silencer on the barrel so it's cool and quiet. Obsidians are the first to hit the floor, leaking red. Clear, the woman says. Plus two, the man replies. He shoots the yellow doctor as he crawls to the door trying to escape, then puts a boot on Danto's chest. The grey stares up at him, bleeding from under the jaw. Trig! Ares sends his regards, motherfucker. The grey shoots Danto just under the brim of his tactical helmet between the eyes and spins the slug shooter in his hand, blowing smoke from the end before sheathing it in a leg holster. Clear. My lips work against my muzzle, struggling to form a coherent thought. Who are you? The grey woman nudges a body out of her way. Name's Holiday T. Nakamura. That's Trig, my baby brother. She raises a scar-notched eyebrow. Her wide face is blasted by freckles. Nose smashed flat. Eyes dark grey and narrow. Question is, who are you? Who am I? I mumble. We came for the Reaper, but if that's you, I think we should get our money back. She winks suddenly. I'm joking, sir. Holiday cut it. Trigg pushes her aside protectively. Can't you see he's shell-shocked? Trigg approaches carefully, hands out, voice soothing. You're prime, sir. We're here to rescue you. His words are thicker, less polished than Holiday's. I flinch as he takes another step, searches hands for a weapon. He's going to hurt me. Just gonna unlock you, that's all. You want that, yeah? It's a lie. A jackal trick. He's got the thirteen tattoo. These are Praetorians, not sons. Liars. Killers. I won't unlock you if you don't want me to. No. No, he killed the guards. He's here to help. He has to be here to help. I give Trigg a wary nod, and he slips behind me. I don't trust him. I half expect a needle, a twist. But all I feel is release as my risk is rewarded. The cuffs unlock. My shoulder joints crack, and moaning, I pull my hands in front of my body for the first time in nine months. The pain causes them to shake. The nails have grown long and vile. But these hands are mine again. I charge to my feet to escape and collapse to the floor. Whoa, whoa, Holiday says, hefting me back into the chair. Easy there, hero. You've got mad muscle atrophy. Gonna need an oil change. Trigg comes back around to stand in front of me, smiling lopsided, face open and boyish. Not nearly as intimidating as his sister, 
despite the two gold teardrop tattoos that leak from his right eye. He has the look of a loyal hound. Gently, he removes the muzzle from my face, then remembers something with a start. I've got something for you, sir. Not now, Trig. Holiday eyes the door. Ain't got the seconds. He needs it, Trig says under his breath, but waits till Holiday gives him a nod before he pulls a leather bundle from his tortoise pack. He extends it to me. It's yours, sir. Take it. He senses my apprehension. Hey, I didn't lie about unlocking you, did I? No. I put my hands out, and he sets the leather bundle in them. Fingers trembling, I pull back the string holding the bundle together and feel the power before I even see the deadly shimmer. My hands almost drop the bundle, as frightened of it as my eyes were of the light. It is my razor. The one given to me by Mustang. The one I've lost twice now. Once to Karnas, then again at my triumph to the jackal. It is white and smooth as a child's first tooth. My hand slides over the cold metal and its salt-stained calf-leather grip. Touch wakening melancholy memories of strength long faded and warmth long forgotten. The smell of hazelnut drifts back to me, transporting me to Lorne's practice rooms, where he would teach me as his favorite granddaughter learned to bake in the adjacent kitchen. The razor slithers through the air, so beautiful, so deceitful in its promise of power. The blade would tell me I'm a god, as it has told generations of men who came before me. But I now know the lie in that, the terrible price it's made men pay for pride. It scares me to hold it again. And it rasps like a pit viper's mating call as it forms into a curved sling blade. It was blank and smooth when last I saw it, but it ripples now with images etched into the white metal. I tilt the blade so I can better see the form etched just above the hilt. I stare dumbly. Eo looks back at me. An image of her etched into the metal. The artist caught her not on the scaffold, not in the moment that will forever define her to others, but intimately as the girl I loved. She's crouched, hair messy about her shoulders, picking a hemanthus from the ground, looking up, just about to smile. And above Eo is my father, kissing my mother at the door of our home. And toward the tip of the blade, Liana, Lauren, and I chasing Kieran down a tunnel, wearing Octobernacht masks. It is my childhood. Whoever made this art knows me. The gulls carve their deeds into their swords, the grand, violent shit they've done. But Ares thought you'd prefer to see the people you love. Holiday says quietly from behind Trig. She glances back to the door. Ares is dead. I search their faces, seeing the deceit there, seeing the wickedness in their eyes. The jackal sent you. It's a trick, a trap, to lead you to the sun's base. My hand tightens around the razor's grip. To use me? You're lying. 
Holiday steps back from me, wary of the blade in my hand. But Trigg is ripped apart by the accusation. Why? To you? We'd die for you, sir. We'd have died for Persephone. Eo. He struggles to find the words, and I get a sense he's used to letting his sister do the talking. There's an army waiting for you outside these walls. Does that register? An army waiting for its... its soul to come back to it. He leans forward, imploringly, as Holiday looks back to the door. We're from South Pacifica, the ass end of Earth. I thought I'd die there guarding grain silos. But I'm here, on Mars, and our only job is to get you home. I've met better liars than you, I sneer. Screw this. Holiday reaches for her datapad. Trigg tries to stop her. Ares said it was only for emergencies. If they hacked the signal. Look at him. This is an emergency. Holiday strips her datapad and tosses it to me. A call is going through to another device. Blinking blue on the display, waiting for the other side to answer. As I turn it in my hand, a hologram of a spiked, sunburst helmet suddenly blossoms into the air, small as my clenched fist. Red eyes glow out balefully from the helmet. Fitchner? Guess again, shithead, the voice warbles. It can't be. Sevro? I almost whimper the word. Oi, boyo, you look like you slithered out of a skeleton's rickety cooch. You're alive, I say, as the holographic helmet slithers away to reveal my hatchet-faced friend. He smiles with those hacksaw teeth, image flickering. Ain't no pixie in the world that can kill me, he cackles. Now it's time you come home, Reap. But I can't come to you. You gotta come to me. You register? How? I wipe the tears from my eyes. Trust my sons. Can you do that? I look at the brother and sister and nod. The jackal. He has my family. That cannibalistic bitch ain't got shit. I got your family. Grab them from Lycos after you got snagged. Your mother's waiting to see you. I start crying again. The relief too much to bear. But you gotta sack up, boyo, and you gotta move. He looks sideways at someone. Give me back to holiday. I do. Make it clean if you can. Escalate if you can't. Register? Register. Break the chains. Break the chains. The greys echo as his image flickers out. Look past our colour, Holiday says to me. She reaches a tattooed hand down. I stare at the grey sigils etched into her flesh, then look up to search her freckled, bluff face. One of her eyes is bionic, and does not blink like the other. Eo's words sound so different from her mouth, yet I think it's the moment my soul comes back to me. Not my mind. I still feel the cracks in it the slithering, doubting darkness. But my hope. I clutch her smaller hand desperately. Break the chains. I echo hoarsely. You'll have to carry me. I look at my worthless legs. Can't stand. That's why we brought you a little cocktail.
Holiday pulls up a syringe. What is it? I ask. Trigg just laughs. Your oil change. Seriously, friend, you really don't want to know. He grins. Shit will animate a corpse. Give it to me, I say, holding out my wrist. It's gonna hurt, Trigg warns. He's a big boy. Holiday comes closer. Sir, Trigg hands me one of his gloves. Between your teeth. A little less confident, I bite down on the salt-stained leather and nod to Holiday. She lunges past my wrist to jab the syringe straight into my heart. Metal punctures meat as the payload releases. Holy shit! I try to scream, but it comes out as a gurgle. Fire cavorts through my veins, my heart a piston. I look down, expecting to see it galloping out of my bloody damn chest. I feel every muscle, every cell of my body exploding, pulsing with kinetic energy. I dry heave. I fall, clawing at my chest, panting, spitting bile, punching the floor. The greys scramble back from my twisting body. I strike out at the chair, half ripping it from its bolted place in the floor. I let out a stream of curses that'd make several blush. Then I tremble and look up at them. What was that? Holiday tries not to laugh. Mama calls it snake bite. Only gonna last 30 minutes with your metabolism. Your mama made that? Trigg shrugs. We're from Earth. Chapter 4 Cell 2187 They escort me like a prisoner through the halls. Hood on my head, hands behind my back in unlocked manacles. Brother on my left, sister on my right, both supporting me. The snake bite lets me walk, but not well. My body, jacked with drugs as it is, still feels slack as wet clothes. I can barely feel my busted toe or feeble legs. My thin prisoner's shoes scrape the floor. My head swims, but there's a hyperspeed to my brain now. It's focused mania. I chew my tongue to keep from whispering and to remind myself that I'm not in the darkness like before. My body is shuffling down a concrete hall. It is walking toward freedom, toward my family, toward Severo. No one here will stop two dragoons of the 13th, not when they have clearance and Aja herself is here. I doubt many in the Jackal's army know I'm even alive. They'll see my size, my ghostly pallor, and think I'm some unlucky obsidian prisoner. Still, I feel the eyes, paranoia creeping through me. They know. They know you've left bodies behind. How long till they open that door? How long till we are discovered? My brain races through the possible ends. How it could all go wrong. The drugs, it's just the drugs. Shouldn't we be going up? I ask as we descend on the grav lift deeper into the heart of the mountain citadel's prison. Or is there a lower hangar bay? Good guess, sir, Trigg says, impressed. We've got a ship waiting. Holiday pops her gum. Trigg, you've got some brown on your nose. Just there. Oh, shut your hole. I'm not the one who blushed when he was naked. Sure about that, kiddo? Quiet. 
The grav lift slows and the siblings tense. Hear their hands click the safeties off their weapons. The doors open and someone joins us. Dominus, Holliday says smoothly to the new company, shoving me to the side to make room. The boots that enter are heavy enough for a gold or obsidian, but greys would never call an obsidian Dominus, and an obsidian would never smell like cloves and cinnamon. Sergeant, the voice scrapes through me. The man it belongs to once made necklaces of ears. Vixus, one of Titus's old band. He was part of the massacre at my triumph. I shrink into the side of the grav lift as it descends again. Vixus will know me. He'll sniff me out. He's doing it now, looking our way. I can hear the rustle of his jacket collar. Thirteenth Legion, Vixus asks after a moment. He must have noticed their neck tattoos. You Argers or her father's? The Fury is for this tour, Dominus. Holiday replies coolly. But we've served under the Ashlord. Ah, then you were at the Battle of Demos last year. Yes, Dominus. We were with Grimace and the Leechcraft Vanguard, sent to kill the Telemannuses before Fabii routed them and Arcos's ships. My brother here put a round in old Kavax's shoulder. Almost took him down before Augustus and Kavax's wife broke our assault team. My, my. Vixus makes a sound of approval. That would have been a gory damn prize and a half. You could have added another tear to your face, Legionnaire. I've been hunting that obsidian dog with the seventh. Ashlord's offered quite the price for his slave's return. He snorts something up his nose. Sounds like one of the stim canisters Tactus was so fond of. Who's this, then? He means me. I hear my heart in my ears. A gift from Preter Grimace in exchange for... the package she's taking home. Holliday says, if you understand me, sir. Package. Half a package more like. He chuckles at his own joke. Anyone I know... His hand touches the edge of my hood. I cower away. A howler would warm the heart. Pebble? Weed? No, much too tall. Down obsidian, Trigg says quickly. Wish it was a howler. Ugh! Vixus jerks his hand back as though contaminated. Wait. He has an idea. We'll put him in the cell with the Julii, bitch. Let him fight for supper. What do you think, Thirteen? Up for some fun? Trig, kill the camera, I say sharply from beneath my hood. What? Vixus asks, turning. Pop! A jam field goes up. I move, clumsy but fast. Snapping my hands out of the shackles, I pull free my hidden razor with one hand and rip off my hood with the other. I stab Vixus through the shoulder, pin him to the wall and headbutt him in the face. But I'm not what I was. Even with the drugs, my vision swims, I stumble. He doesn't, and before I can react, before I can even focus my vision, Vixus pulls his own razor. Holiday shields me with her body, shoving me away. I fall to the ground. Trigg's even faster on the take. He jams his slug shooter straight up into Vixus's open mouth. The gold freezes, staring down the metal length of the barrel, tongue against the cold muzzle. His razor pauses centimeters from Holliday's head. 
Trig whispers. Drop the razor. Vixus does. What the hell are you thinking? Holiday asks me angrily. She's breathing heavily and helps me back up. My head's spinning. I apologize. It was stupid of me. I steady myself and look over at Vixus, who stares at me in horror. My legs tremble, and I have to hold myself up by one of the grav lift's railings. My heart rattles from the strain of the drug in my system. Stupid to try to fight. Stupid to use a jammer. The Greens watching will piece it together. They'll send Greys to investigate the prep room, find the bodies. I try to paste my splintering thoughts together. Focus. Is Victor alive? I manage. Trigg pulls the gun out just past the teeth so Vixus can answer. He doesn't. Not yet. Do you know what he did to me? I ask. After a stubborn moment, Vixus nods. And? I laugh. It stretches like a crack in ice, spreading, widening, about to shiver a thousand different ways, till I bite my tongue to cut it short. And? And still you have the balls to make me ask you twice. She's alive. Reaper, they'll be coming for us. They'll know it's jammed. Holiday says, looking at the tiny camera node in the elevator's ceiling. We can't change the plan. Where is she? I twist the razor. Where is she? Vixus hisses in pain. Level 23, cell 2187. It would be wise not to kill me. You might put me in her cell. Escape. I will tell you the proper path, Darrow. The muscles and veins under the skin of his neck slither and rise like snakes under sand. No body fat to him. Two backstabbing Praetorians won't get you far. There's an army in this mountain, legions in the city, in orbit. Thirty peerless scarred. Bone riders in southern Attica. He nods to the small jackal skull on the lapel of his uniform. You remember them? We don't need him. Trigg snaps, fingering his gun's trigger. Oh? Vixus chuckles, confidence returning as he sees my weakness. And what are you going to do against an Olympic knight, Tinpot? Oh, wait. There are two here, aren't there? Holiday just snorts. Same thing you do, Goldilocks. Run! Level 23, I tell Trigg. Trigg punches the grav lift controls, diverting us from their escape route. He pulls up a map on his datapad and studies it briefly with Holiday. Cell 2187 is... here. There will be a code. Cameras. Too far from evac. Holiday's mouth tightens. If we go that way, we're cooked. Victor is my friend, I say. And I thought she was dead. But somehow she survived her sister's gunshots. I won't leave her. There's not a choice, Holiday says. There's always a choice. The words sound feeble, even to me. Look at yourself, man. You're a husk. Back off him, Holly, Trigg says. That gold bitch isn't one of us. I won't die for her. But Victor would have died for me. In the darkness, I thought of her. 
the childish joy in her eyes when I gave her the bottle of petrichor in the jackal's study. I didn't know. Darrow, I didn't know. Was the last thing she said to me after Roke betrayed us. Death around, bullets in her back, and all she wanted was me to think well of her in the end. I won't leave my friend behind, I repeat dogmatically. I'll follow you. Trig draws. Whatever you say, Reaper, I'm your man. Trig, Hardy whispers. Ares said, Ares hasn't turned the tide. Trig nods to me. He can. We go where he goes. And if we miss our window, then we make a new one. Holiday's eyes go glassy. Then she works her large jaw. I know that look. She doesn't see her brother as I do. He's no lurcher, no killer. To her, he's the boy she grew with. All right, I'm in, she says reluctantly. What about the peerless? Trigg asks. He puts the code in and he lives, I say. Shoot him if he tries anything. We exit the elevator at level 23. I wear my hood again, having Holiday guide me along as Vixus walks ahead, as if escorting us to a cell, Trigg ready with his gun close behind. The halls are quiet. Our footsteps echo. I can't see past the hood. This is it, Vixus says when we reach the door. Put in the code, asshole, Holiday orders. He does, and the door hisses open. Noise roars out around us. Horrible static from hidden speakers. The cell is freezing, everything bleached white. The ceiling flaring with lights so bright I can't even look directly at it. The cell's emaciated occupant lies on the corner, legs curled up in a fetal position, spine to me. Back painted with old burns and striped with lash marks from beatings. The mess of white blonde hair over her eyes is all that shields the woman from the blazing light. I wouldn't know who she was, except for the two bullet scars at the top of her spine between the shoulder blades. Victra! I shout over the noise. She can't hear me. Victra! I shout again just as the noise dies, replaced over the speakers by the sound of a heartbeat. They're torturing her with sound, light, sensation, the exact opposite of my own abuse. Able to hear me now, she whips her head in my direction, gold eyes peering fairly out from the tangle of hair. I don't even know if she recognizes me. The boldness with which Victra wore her nakedness before is gone. She covers herself, vulnerable, terrified. Get her on her feet, Holiday says, pushing Vixus to his belly. We gotta go. She's paralyzed, Trigg says. Isn't she? Shit. We'll carry her then. Trigg moves quickly toward Victor. I slam a hand back into his chest, stopping him. Even like this, she could rip his arm from his body. Knowing the terror I felt when I was pulled from my hole, I move slowly toward her, my own fear retreating to the back of my mind, replaced by anger at what her own sister has done to her, at knowing this is my fault. Victor, 
It's me. It's Darrow. She makes no sign of having heard me. I crouch down beside her. We're going to get you out of here. Can we lift? She lunges at me, throwing herself forward with her arms. Take off your face, she screams. Take off your face! She convulses as Holiday rushes forward and jams a thumper into the small of her back. The electricity isn't enough. Go down! Holiday shouts. Victor hits her in the center of her duroplastic armor chest piece, launching the gray meters back into the wall. Trigg fires two tranquilizers into her thigh from his ambi-rifle, a multipurpose carbine. They put her down quick, but still she pants on the ground, watching me through a slitted eye till she falls unconscious. Holiday, I begin. I'm golden. Holiday grunts, lifting herself up. The chest beast has a fist-sized dent in the center. Pixie can hit, Holiday says, admiring the dent. This armor is supposed to handle rail rounds. Julii genetics, Trigg mutters. He hoists Victra up on his shoulders and follows Holiday back out into the hall as she snaps at me to hurry after them. We leave Vixas belly down in the cell, alive as promised. We will find you, he says, sitting up as I go to shut the door. You know we will. Tell little Severo we're coming. One Barker down, one to go. What did you say? I ask. I step suddenly back into the cell, and his eyes light with fear. The same fear Leah must have felt those many years ago, when I hid in the dark while Antonia and Vixus tortured her to lure me out. He laughed as her blood soaked into the moss, and as my friends died in the garden. He would have me spare him now, so he could kill again later. Evil feeds on mercy. My razor slithers into a sling blade. Please, he begs now, thin lips trembling so that I see the boy in him too, as he realizes he made a mistake. Someone somewhere still loves him, remembers him as a mischievous child or asleep in a crib. If only he had stayed, that child. If only we all had. Have a heart. Darrow, you're no murderer. You're no Titus. The heartbeat sound of the room deepens, white light silhouetting him. He wants pity. My pity was lost in the darkness. The heroes of red songs have mercy, honor. They let men live, as I let the jackal live, so they can remain untarnished by sin. Let the villain be the evil one. Let him wear black and try to stab me as I turn my back, so I can wheel about and kill him, giving satisfaction without guilt. But this is no song. This is war. Darrow, I need you to send a message to the jackal. I slash open Vixus's throat, and as he slumps to the ground, pulsing out his life, I know he is afraid because nothing waits for him on the other side. He gurgles. 
whimpers before he dies. And I feel nothing. Beyond the heartbeat of the room, alarm sirens begin to wail. Chapter 5 Plan C Shit, Holiday says. I told you we didn't have time. We're fine, Trigg says. We're together in the elevator. Victor on the floor, Trigg helping her into his black rain gear to give her a semblance of decency. My knuckles are white. Vixus's blood trickles over the inscribed image of children playing in the tunnels. It drips over my parents and stains Eo's hair red before I wipe it from the blade with my prisoner jumpsuit. I forgot how easy it is to take a life. Live for yourself. Die alone, Trigg says quietly. You think with all those brains they'd have sense enough not to be such assholes. He looks over at me, brushing hair from flinty eyes. Sorry to be a prick, sir. You know, if he was a friend... Friend? I shake my head. He had no friends. I bend down to brush Victra's hair from her face. She sleeps peacefully against the wall. Cheeks carved out from hunger. Lips thin and sad. There's a dramatic beauty to her features, even now. I wonder what they did to her. The poor woman, always so strong, so brash, but always to cover the kindness inside. I wonder if any is left. Are you prime? Trigg asks. I don't respond. Was she your girl? No, I say. I touch the beard that's grown on my face. I hate how it scratches and stinks. I wish Danto had shaved it off as well. I'm not prime. I don't feel hope. I don't feel love. Not as I look at what they did to Victra, to me. It's the hate that rides. Hate, too, for what I've become. I feel Trigg's eyes. No, he's disappointed. He wanted the Reaper. And I'm just a withered husk of a man. I run my fingers against my cage of ribs. So many slender little things. I promised these greys too much. I promised everyone too much, especially Victor. She was true to me. What was I to her but another person who wanted to use her? Another person her mother trained her to be prepared against? You know what we need? Trigg asks. I look up at him intensely. Justice? A cold beer. A laugh explodes out of my mouth, too loud, scaring me. Shit, Holiday murmurs, hands flying over the controls. Shit, shit, shit. What? I ask. We're stuck between the 24th and 25th. She punches buttons, but suddenly the lift jerks upward. They've overridden the controls. We're not going to make it to the hangar. They're redirecting us. She lets out a long breath as she looks up at me. To the first level. Shit, shit, shit. They'll be waiting with lurchers, maybe obsidians, maybe golds. 
She pauses. They know you're in here. I fight back the despair that rushes up from my belly. I won't go back. Whatever happens, I'll kill Victor, kill myself before I let them take us. Trigg is hunched over his sister. Can you hack the system? When the hell do you think I learned how to do that? I wish Ephraim was here. He could. Well, I'm not Ephraim. What about climbing out? If you want to be a skid, Mark. Guess that leaves one option, eh? He reaches into his pocket. Plan C. I hate Plan C. Yeah, well, time to embrace the suck, baby doll. Unpack the heathen. What's Plan C? I ask quietly. Escalation. Trigg activates his comlink. Codes flash over his screen as he connects to a secure frequency. Outrider to Rothbone, do you register? Outrider to... Rothbone registers. A ghostly voice echoes. Request clearance code echo. Over. Trigg references his data pad. 1343923283. Over. Code is green. We need secondary extraction in five. Got the princess plus one at stage two. There's a pause on the other line. The relief in the voice palpable, even through the static. Late notice. Murder ain't exactly punctual. Be there in ten. Keep him alive. The link goes dead. Goddamn amateurs, Trigg mutters. Ten minutes, Holiday repeats. We've been in worse shit. When? He doesn't answer her. Should have just gone to the goddamn hangar. What can I do? I ask, sensing their fear. Can I help? Don't die, Holiday says, as she slides off her backpack. Then this is all for shit. You gotta drag your friend, Trigg says, as he starts picking tech off his body except his armor. He pulls two more antique weapons from his pack, two pistols to complement the high-powered gas ambi-rifle. He hands me a pistol. My hand shakes. I haven't held a gunpowder weapon since I was sixteen, training with the Suns. They're vastly inefficient and heavy, and their recoil makes them wildly inaccurate. Holiday pulls a large plastic box from her pack. Her fingers pause over the latches. She opens the plastic box to reveal a metal cylinder with a spinning ball of mercury at its center. I stare at the device. If the society caught her carrying it, she'd never see daylight again. Vastly illegal. I eye the gravelift's display on the wall. Ten levels to go. Holiday grips a remote control for the cylinder. Eight levels. Will Cassius be waiting? Aja? The Jackal? No. They would be on their ship, preparing for dinner. The Jackal would be living his life. They won't know the alarm is for me, and even when they do, they'll be delayed. But there's enough to fear, even without one of them coming. An obsidian could rip these two apart with his bare hands. Trigg knows. He closes his eyes, touching his chest at four points to make a cross. A wedding band glints softly in the low light. Holiday minds the gesture, but doesn't do the same. This is our profession, she says quietly to me. So swallow your pride. 
stay behind us and let Trigg and I work. Trigg cracks his neck and kisses his gloved left ring finger. Stay close. Not to butt, sir. Don't be shy. Three levels to go. Holiday readies a gas rifle in her right hand and chews intensely on her gum, left thumb on the remote control. One level to go. We're slowing, watching the double doors. I loop Victor's legs in my armpits. Love you, kiddo, Holiday says. Love you too, baby doll. Trigg murmurs back, voice tight and mechanical now. I feel more afraid than I did when I lay encased in a star shell in the chamber of a spit tube before my reign. Not just afraid for me, but for Victra and these two siblings. I want them to live. I want to know about South Pacifica. I want to know what pranks they pulled on their mother. If they had a dog, a home in the city, the country. The grav lift wheezes to a halt. The door light flashes, and the thick metal doors that separate us from a platoon of the jackal's elite hiss open. Two glowing stun grenades zip in and clamp to the walls. Beep, beep, and Holiday pushes the device's button. A deep implosion of sound ruptures the elevator's quiet as an invisible electromagnetic pulse ripples out from the spherical EMP at our feet. The grenades fizzle dead. Lights go black in the elevator, outside it, and all the greys waiting beyond the door with their high-tech pulse weapons and all the obsidians in their heavy armor with their electronic joints and helmets and air filtration units are slapped in the face with the Middle Ages. But Holiday and Trigg's antiques still work. They stalk forward, out of the elevator, into the stone hall, hunched over their weapons like evil gargoyles. It's slaughter. Two expert marksmen firing short bursts of archaic slugs at point-blank range into squads of defenseless greys in wide halls. There is no cover to take. Flashes in the corridor. Gigantic sounds of high-powered rifles rattling my teeth. I freeze in the elevator till Holiday shouts at me, and I rush after Trigg, hauling Victra behind me. Three obsidians go down as Holiday lobs an antique grenade. Whoomph. A hole opens in the ceiling. Plaster rains. Dust. Chairs and coppers fall through the hole from the room above, crashing down into the fray. I hyperventilate. A man's head kicks back. Body spins to the ground. A grey flees for cover down a stone hall. Holiday shoots her in the spine. She sprawls like a child slipping on ice. Movement everywhere, an obsidian charges from the side. I fire the pistol, aim horrible, the bullets skitter off his armor. Two hundred kilograms of man raises an iron axe, its battery dead, but edge still keen. He ululates his kind's throaty war chant, and red mist geysers from his helmet. Bullet through the skull helm's eye socket. His body pinches forward, slides, nearly knocks me off my feet. Trigg's already moving to the next target, driving metal into men as patiently as a craftsman driving nails into wood. No passion there, no art, just training and physics. Reaper, move your ass! Holiday shouts. 
She jerks me down a hall, away from the chaos, as Trigg follows, hurling a sticky grenade onto the thigh of an unarmored gold who dodges four of his rifle shots. Whoomph. Bone and meat to mist. The siblings reload, on the run, and I just try not to faint or fall. Right in fifty paces, then up the stairs, Holiday snaps. We've got seven minutes. The halls are eerily quiet. No sirens, no lights, no whir of heated air through the vents. Just the clunk of our boots and distant shouts and the cracking of my joints and the rasping of lungs. We pass a window. Ships, black and dead, fall through the sky. Small fires burn where others have landed. Trams grind to a halt on magnetic rails. The only lights that still run are from the two most distant peaks. Reinforcements with tech will soon respond, but they won't know what caused this. Where to look? With camera systems and biometric scanners dead, Cassius and Aja won't be able to find us. That might save our lives. We run up the stairs. A cramp eats into my right calf and hamstring. I grunt and almost fall. Holiday takes most of my weight, her powerful neck pressing up against my armpit. Three greys spot us from behind at the bottom of the long marble stairs. Shoving me aside, she takes two down with her rifle, but the third fires back. Bullets chewing into marble. They've got gas backups, Holiday barks. Gotta move, gotta move. Two more rights, past several low colors who stare at me, mouths agape, through marble halls with towering ceilings and Greek statues, past galleries where the jackal keeps his stolen artifacts, and once showed me Hancock's declaration and the preserved head of the last ruler of the American Empire. Muscles burning, side splitting. Here! Holiday finally cries. We reach a service door in a side hall and push through into cold daylight. The wind swallows me. I see teeth ripping through my jumpsuit as the four of us stumble out onto a metal walkway along the side of the jackal's fortress. To our right, the stone of the mountain surrenders to the modern metal and glass edifice above. It's a thousand meter drop to our left. Snow swirls around the mountain's face. Wind howls. We push forward, along the walkway, till it circles part of the fortress and links with a paved bridge that extends from the mountain to an abandoned landing platform, like a skeletal arm holding out a concrete dinner plate covered in snow. Four minutes! Holiday hollers as she helps me struggle across the bridge toward the landing pad. At the end, she dumps me onto the ground. I set Victra down beside me. A hard skin of ice makes the concrete slick and smoky gray. Snowdrifts gather around the waist-high concrete wall that fences in the circular landing pad from the thousand-meter drop. Got eighty in the long mag, six in the relic. He calls to his sister. Then I'm out. Got twelve, she says, tossing down a small canister. It pops and green smoke swirls into the air. Gotta hold the bridge. I've got six mines. Plant them. He sprints back down the bridge. At the end of it is a set of closed blast doors, much larger than the maintenance path we took from the side. Shivering and snowblind, I pull Victor close to me against that wall to escape the wind.
Snowflakes gather atop the black rain gear she wears, fluttering down like the ash that fell when Cassius, Severo, and I burned Minerva's citadel and stole their cook. We'll be fine, I tell her. We'll make it. I peer over the short concrete wall to the city beneath. It's oddly peaceful. All her sounds, all her troubles, silenced by the EMP. I watch a flake of snow, larger than the rest, drift on the wind and come to rest on my knuckle. How did I get here? A boy of the mines, now a shivering fallen warlord, staring down at a darkened city, hoping against everything that he can go home. I close my eyes, wishing I was with my friends, my family. Three minutes, Holiday says behind me. Her gloved hand touches my shoulder protectively as she looks to the sky for our enemies. Three minutes and we're out of here. Just three minutes. I wish I could believe her. But the snow has stopped falling. Chapter Six Victims I squint up past Holiday as an iridescent defensive shield ripples into place over the seven peaks of Attica, cutting us off from the clouds and the sky beyond. The shield generator must have been out of the EMP's blast range. No help will come to us from beyond it. Trig, get back here, she shouts as he plants the last mine on the bridge. A single gunshot shatters the winter morning, echoing brittle and cold. More follow. Crack, crack, crack. Snow kicks around him. He sprints back as Holiday leans to cover for him, her rifle rocking her shoulder. Straining, I push myself up. My eyes ache as they try to focus in the sun's light. Concrete explodes in front of me. Shards rip into my face. I duck down, shivering in fear. The jackal's men have found their backup weapons. I peer out again. Through squinting lids, I see Trigg pinned down halfway to us, exchanging gunfire with a squad of greys carrying gas-powered rifles. They pour out of the fortress's blast doors, now opened at the opposite end of the bridge. Two go down. Two more step near a proximity mine and disappear in a cloud of smoke as Trigg shoots it at their feet. Holiday picks another off, just as Trigg staggers back into cover, hit with a round in the shoulder. He jams a stim shot into his thigh and pops back up. A bullet slaps into the concrete in front of me, kicks up into Holiday to impact her ribs, just under the armpit of her body armor, with a meaty thud. She spins down. Bullets force me to crouch beside her. Concrete rains. She spits blood and there's a wet, phlegmy echoing to her breath. It's in my lung, she gasps as she fumbles with a stim shot from her leg pouch. Were the circuits of her armor not fried, meds would inject automatically. But she has to crack open the case and pull a dose manually. I help, pulling free one of the micro syringes and injecting her in the neck. Her pupils dilate, and her breath slows as the narcotic drifts through her blood. Beside me, Victor's eyes are closed. The gunfire stops. Carefully, I peek out. 
The jackals graze hide behind concrete walls and pylons across the bridge, some sixty meters away. Trig reloads. The wind is the only sound. Something's wrong. I search the sky, fearing the quiet. A gold is coming. I can feel it in the battle's pulse. Trig! I shout till my body shudders. Run! Holiday sees the look on my face. She struggles up, wheezing in pain as Trigg abandons his cover, boots slipping on the ice-slicked bridge. He falls and gains his feet, scrambling toward us, terrified. Too late. Behind him, Aja Al Grimace rips out the fortress's door, past the greys, past the obsidians who lurk in the shadows. She's in her black formal jacket, her long legs reel Trig in now. It's one of the saddest sights I've ever seen. I fire my pistol. Holiday unloads her rifle. We hit nothing but air. Azure sidesteps, twists, and when Trig is ten paces from us, spears him through the torso with her razor. Metal glistens wetly from his sternum. Shock widens his eyes. His mouth makes a quiet gasp, and he screams as he's hauled into the air. Pried upward by Azure's razor, like a twitching pond frog on the end of a makeshift spear. Trig, Holiday whispers. I stumble forward, toward Azure, pulling my razor, but Holiday jerks me back behind the wall as bullets from the distant greys rip into the concrete around us. Her blood melts the snow under her. Don't be stupid, she snarls, dragging me to the ground with the last of her strength. We can't help him. He's your brother. He's not the mission. You are. Darrow. Aja calls from the bridge. Holiday peers out where Aja stands with her brother, her face bloodless and quiet. The knight holds Trig up on the end of her razor with one hand. Trig wriggles on the blade, sliding down it toward her grip. My good man, the time for hiding behind others is over. Come out. Don't, Holiday murmurs. Come out, Aja says. And she tosses Trig off her blade over the side of the bridge. He falls two hundred meters before his body splits against a granite ledge below. Holiday makes a sick, choking sound. She brings up her empty rifle and pulls the trigger a dozen times in Aja's direction. Aja ducks before realizing Holiday's weapon is empty. I pull Holiday down as a sniper's bullet aimed at her chest slams into her gun, shattering it and kicking it from her grip, mangling a finger. We sit shivering, backs to concrete. Victra between us. I'm sorry, I manage. She doesn't hear me. Her hands shake worse than mine. No tears in her distant eyes, no color in her lined face. They'll come, she says after a hollow moment, her eyes following the green smoke. They have to. Blood leaks through her clothing and out the corner of her mouth before freezing halfway down her neck. 
She grips her boot knife and tries to rise, but her body is done. Breaths wet and thick, smelling like copper. They'll come. What is the plan? I ask her. Her eyes close. I shake her. How will they come? She nods to the edge of the landing pad. Listen. Darrow! Cassius's voice calls over the wind. He's joined Aja. Darrow of Lycos, come out! His rich voice is unfit for this moment, too regal and high and untouched by the sadness that swallows us. I wipe the tears from my eyes. You must decide what you are in the end, Darrow. Will you come out like a man, or must we dig you out like a rat from a cave? The anger tightens my chest, but I don't want to stand. Once I would have, when I wore the armor of gold and thought I would tower over Eo's killer and reveal my true self as his cities burned and their color fell. But that armor is gone, that mask of the reaper gnawed away by doubt and darkness. I am just a boy, and I shiver and cower and hide from my enemy because I know the price of failure. And I am so very afraid. But I will not let them take me. I will not be their victim, and I will not let Victra fall into their hands again. Slag this, I say. I grab Holiday's collar and Victra's hand, and, eyes flashing with the strain, blinded by the sun and the snow, face numb, I drag them with all my strength from our hiding place across the landing pad to the far edge where the wind roars. There's silence from my enemies. The sight I must make. A tottering, withered form, dragging my friends, sunken eyes, face like that of a starving old demon, bearded and ridiculous, is pitiful. Twenty meters behind me, the two Olympic knights stand imperious on the bridge, where it meets the landing pad, flanked by more than fifty greys and obsidians who have come from the citadel doors behind him. Azure's silver razor drips blood. But it's not her weapon. It's Lorne's, the one she took from his corpse. My toes throb inside my wet slippers. Their men seem so tiny against the face of the vast mountain fortress. Their metal guns so petty and simple. I look to the right, off the bridge. Kilometers away, a flight of soldiers rises from a distant mountain peak where the EMP did not reach. They bank toward us through a low cloud layer. A ripwing follows. Darrow! Cassius calls to me as he walks forward with Azure off the bridge onto the pad. You cannot escape. He watches me, eyes unreadable. The shield is up, sky blocked. No ships can come from beyond to retrieve you. He looks to the green smoke swirling from the canister on the landing pad into the winter air. Accept your fate. 
The wind howls between us, carrying flakes of snow stripped from the mountain. Dissection? I ask. Is that what you think I deserve? You're a terrorist. What rights you had, you've given up. Rights. I snarl over Victra and Holiday. To pull my wife's feet? To watch my father die? I try to spit, but it sticks to my lips. What gives you the right to take them? There's no debate here. You are a terrorist, and you must be brought to justice. And why are you talking with me, you bloody damn hypocrite? Because honor still matters. Honor is what echoes. His father's words. But they are as empty on his lips as they feel in my ears. This war has taken everything from him. I see in his eyes how broken he is. How terribly hard he is trying to be his father's son. If he could, he would choose to be back by the campfire we made in the highlands of the Institute. He would return to the days of glory when life was simple, when friends seemed true. But wishing for the past doesn't clean the blood from either of our hands. I listen to the groaning wind from the valley. My heels reach the end of the landing pad. There's nothing but air behind me. Air and the shifting topography of a dark city on the valley floor two thousand meters below. He's going to jump, Aja says quietly to Cassius. We need the body. Darrow, don't, Cassius says. But his eyes are telling me to jump telling me to take this way out instead of surrendering, instead of going to Luna to be peeled apart. This is the noble way. He's putting his cape over me again. I hate him for it. You think you're honorable, I hiss. You think you're good. Who is left that you love? Who do you fight for? Anger creeps into my words. You are alone, Cassius. But I am not. Not when I faced your brother in the passage. Not when I hid among you. Not when I lay in darkness. Not even now. I grip Holiday's unconscious body as hard as I can, looping my fingers inside the straps of her body armor. Clutch Victor's hand. My heels scrape the concrete's edge. Listen to the wind, Cassius. Listen to the bloody damn wind. The two knights tilt their heads, and still they do not understand the strange groaning sound that drifts up from the valley floor, because how would a son and daughter of gold ever know the sound of a claw drill gnawing through rock? How would they guess that my people would come not from the sky, but from the heart of our planet? Goodbye, Cassius, I say. Expect me. And I push off the ledge with both legs, flinging myself backward into open air, dragging Holiday and Victra into thin air.
Chapter 7 Bumblebees We fall toward a molten eye in the center of the snow-covered city. There, among rows of manufacturing plants, buildings shiver and tip as the ground swells upward. Pipes crack and spin into the air. Steam hisses through ruptured asphalt. Gas explosions ripple out in a corona, threading lines of fire through streets that buckle and heave, as if Mars itself were stretching six stories high to give birth to some ancient leviathan. And then, when the ground and city can stretch no more, a claw drill erupts out into the winter air, a titanic metal hand with molten fingers that steam and grasp and then vanish as the claw drill sinks back into Mars, pulling half a city block with it. We're falling too fast. Jumped too soon. I lose my grip on Victra. Ground rushing up to us. Then the air cracks with a sonic boom. Then another. And another, till a whole chorus resounds out from the darkness of the claw-drill-carved tunnel as it gives birth to a small army. Two, twenty... Fifty armored shapes in grav boots scream up out of the tunnel toward us. To my left, my right, painted blood red, pouring pulse fire skyward behind us. My hair stands on end, and I smell ozone, superheated munitions ripple blue from friction as they tear through air molecules. Miniguns mounted on shoulders vomit death. Amidst the rising sons of Ares, a crimson, armoured man with the spiked helmet of his father zips forward and catches Victra seconds before she impacts on the roof of a skyscraper. The howling of wolves babbles from his helmet speakers. It's Ares himself. My best friend in all the worlds has not forgotten me. He has come with his legion of empire-breakers and terrorists and renegades the Howlers. A dozen metal men and women with black wolf cloaks kicking in the wind fly behind him, the largest of them in pure white armor with blue handprints covering the chest and arms. His black cloak is stained with a red stripe down the middle. For a moment, I think it's Pax come back from the dead for me. But when the man catches me and Holiday... I see the glyphs drawn in the blue paint of the handprints. Glyphs from the South Pole of Mars. It's Ragnar Volaris, Prince of the Valkyrie Spires. He tosses Holiday to another howler and pushes me behind him so I can wrap my arms around his neck, digging my fingers into the rivets of his armor. Then he banks through the smoking valley city toward the tunnel, shouting to me, Hold fast, little brother and he dives. Severo to the left, clutching Victra, howlers all around, the grav boots screaming as we plummet into the darkness of the tunnel's mouth. The enemy pursues. The sounds are horrible, screaming of wind, rupture of rock as pulse fire rips into the walls behind us and weapons warble. My jaw rattles against Ragnar's metal shoulder. His grav boots vibrate at full burn, Bolts from the armor dig into my ribs. The battery pack above his tailbone slams into my groin as we weave and dart through pitch black. 
I'm riding a metal shark deeper and deeper into the belly of an angry sea. My ears pop. Wind whistles. A pebble slams into my forehead. Blood streams down my face, stinging my eyes. The only light, the glowing of boots and the flash of weapons. The skin of my right shoulder flares with pain. Pulse fire from our pursuers misses me by inches. Still, my skin bubbles and smokes, lighting my jumpsuit sleeve on fire. The wind kills the flames, but the pulse fire rips past again and boils into the sun's grav boots just ahead of me, melting the man's legs into a single chunk of molten metal. He jerks in the air, slamming into the ceiling where his body crumples, helmet ripping off and spinning straight toward me. Red light throbs through my eyelids. There's smoke in the air. Meaty. Stings the back of my throat. Fat tissue, charred and crispy. Chest hot with pain. A swamp of screams and howls and cries for mother all around. And something else. The sound of bumblebees in my ears. Someone's above me. See them in the red light as I open my eyes, screaming into my face, pressing a mask to my mouth. A damp wolf cloak dangles from a metal shoulder, tickling my neck. Other hands touch mine. The world vibrates, tilts. Starboard, starboard, someone screams in the distance, as if underwater. We're on a ship. I'm surrounded by dying men. Burned, twisted husks of armor. Smaller men atop them, bent like vultures, saws glowing in their hands as they peel the armor away, trying to free those dying of their burns inside. But the armor's melted tight. A hand touches mine. A boy lying beside me eyes wide, armor blackened. The skin of his cheeks is young and smooth beneath the soot and blood, his mouth not yet creased by smiles. His breaths come shorter, quicker. He mouths my name, and he's gone. Chapter 8 Home I'm alone, far away from the horror, standing weightless and clean on a road that smells of moss and earth. My feet touch the ground, but I cannot feel it underfoot. To either side stretches the grass of wind-beaten moors. The sky flashes with lightning. My hands are without sigils, and drift along the cobbled wall that meanders on ahead to either side. When did I start walking? Somewhere in the distance, wood smoke rises. I follow the road, but I feel I have no choice. A voice calls to me from beyond a hill. 
tomb, O marriage chamber, hollowed out house that will watch forever where I go. To my own people who are mostly there, Persephone has taken them to her. Last of them all, ill-fated past the rest, shall I descend before my course is run. Still, when I get there, I may hope to find I come as a dear friend to my dear father, to you, my mother, and my brother too. All three of you have known my hand in death. I wash your bodies. It is my uncle's voice. Is this the veil? Is this the road I walk before death? It can't be. In the veil there is no pain, but my body aches. My legs sting. Still, I hear his voice ahead of me, drawing me through the mist. The man who taught me to dance after my father died, who guarded me and sent me to Ares, who died himself in a mineshaft and dwells now in the vale. I thought it would be Eo who greeted me, or my father, not Nero. Keep reading. Another voice whispers, Dr. Virney said he can hear us. He just has to find his way back. Even as I walk, I feel a bed under me, the air around cold and crisp in my lungs, the sheets soft and clean. The muscles in my legs twitch, feels like little bees are stinging them, and with each sting the dream world fades and I slide back into my body. Well, if we're gonna read to the squabber, might as well be something red, not this poncy violet shit. Dancer says this was one of his favourites. My eyes open. I'm in a bed. White sheets, IVs going into my arms. Under the sheets, I touch the ant-sized nodes that have been stuck to my legs to channel electrical current through my muscles to combat atrophy. The room's a cave. Scientific equipment, machines and terraria litter it. It was Uncle Nero I heard in the dream after all. But he's not in the veil. He's alive. He sits at my bedside, squinting down at one of Mickey's old books. He's grizzled and wiry, even for a red. Calloused hands trying to be gentle with the frail paper pages. He's bald now, and deeply sunburned on his forearms and the back of his neck. Still looks like he was cobbled together out of cracked old leather. He'll be forty-one now. Looks older, more savage. A brooding danger to him lent teeth by the railgun in his thigh holster. A sling blade has been sewn onto his black military jacket above a society logo that's been peeled off and inverted. Red at the top, gold the foundation. The man's been at war. Beside him sits my mother, a bent, fragile woman since her stroke. How many times did I imagine the jackal standing over her, pliers in hand, She's been safe the whole time. Her crooked fingers weave needle and thread through tattered socks, patching the holes. They don't move like they used to. Age and infirmity has slowed her. Her broken body is not what she is on the inside. There she stands tall as any gold, broad as any obsidian. Watching her sit there 
breathing quietly, intent on her task. I want to protect her more than anything else in the world. I want to heal her, give her all she never had. I love her so much, I don't know what to say. What to do that can ever show her how much she means to me? Mother, I whisper. They look up. Nerol frozen in his chair, my mother setting a hand on his and rising slowly to my bedside. Her steps slow, wary. Hello, child. She stands above me, overwhelming me with the love in her eyes. My hand is almost larger than her head, but I gently touch her face as if to prove to myself she is real. I trace the crow's feet from her eyes to the grey hair at her temples. As a boy, I did not like her as much as I liked father. She would hit me at times. She would weep alone and pretend nothing was wrong. And now all I want is to listen to her hum as she cooks. All I want are those still nights where we had peace and I was a child. I want the time back. I'm sorry, I find myself saying. I'm so sorry. She kisses my forehead and rocks her head against mine. She smells like rust and sweat and oil, like home. She tells me I am her son. There's nothing to apologize for. I am safe. I am loved. The family is here. Kieran, Liana, their children, waiting to see me. I sob uncontrollably, sharing all the pain my solitude forced me to hoard, the tears a deeper language than my tongue can afford. I'm exhausted by the time she kisses me again on the head and pulls back. Nerol comes to her side and puts a hand on my arm. Nerol. Hello, you little bastard, he says roughly. Still your father's son, eh? I thought you were dead, I say. Nah, death chewed on me a bit, then spat my bloody ass back out. Said there was killing that needed doing, and some wild blood of mine that needed saving. He grins down at me, that old scar on his lips joined by two new ones. We've been waiting for you to wake up, Mother says. It's been two days since they brought you back in the shuttle. I can still taste the smoke from burned flesh in the back of my throat. Where are we? I ask. Tinos, the city of Ares. Tinos, I whisper. I sit up quickly. Several. Ragnar, they're alive, Nerol grunts, pushing me back down. Don't rip out your tubes and res flesh. Took Dr. Virney hours to thread you up after that bloody mess of an escape. Bone riders were supposed to be in EMP radius. They weren't. They ripped us to pieces in the tunnels. Ragnar's the only reason you're living. You were there? Who do you think led the drill team that punched into Attica? It was Lycos, Blood, Lambda and Omicron. And what about Victra? Easy, boy. He sets his hand on my chest to stop me from trying to get up again. She's with the doc. Same for the grey. They're alive. Getting patched. 
You need to check me, Nero. Tell the doctors to check me for radiation trackers, for implants. They might have let me go on purpose to find Tinos. I need to see Severo. Oi! I said easy. Nero says sharply. We checked you. Two implants were in you. Both fried in the EMP. You weren't tracked. And Ares ain't here. He's still out with the howlers. Came back just to deliver the wounded and scarf down grub. There were almost a dozen wolf cloaks. So he's recruited. Thistle betrayed us, but Vixus mentioned Pebble and Clown. Wonder if Screwface is with them too. Ares is always on the move. Mother says. Lots to do. Only one Ares. Nerol replies defensively. They're still out looking for survivors. They'll be back soon. By morning, luck holds. My mother shoots him a harsh look and he shuts up. I lean back in bed, overwhelmed by speaking to them, by seeing them. I can barely form sentences. So much to say, so much unfamiliar emotion running through me. All I end up doing is sitting there, breathing fast. My mother's love fills the room, but still I feel the darkness moving beyond this moment, pressing in on this family I thought I lost and now fear I cannot protect. My enemies are too great, too many, and I too weak. I shake my head, running my thumb over her knuckles. I thought I would never see you again. Yet here you are. Somehow she makes it sound cold. So like my mother to be the one with dry eyes when both the men can barely speak. I always wondered how I survived the Institute. It damn well wasn't because of my father. He was a gentleman. Mother is the spine in me. The iron. And I clutch her hand as if such a simple gesture could say all that. A light knock comes at the door. Dancer pokes his head in. Devilishly handsome as ever, he's one of the only reds alive who makes old age look good. I can hear his foot dragging slightly behind him in the hall. Both my mother and uncle nod to him in deference. Nero steps aside respectfully as he approaches my bedside, but my mother stays put. This hell diver's not done yet, it would seem. Dancer grips my hand. But you gave us a hell of a scare. It's bloody damn good to see you, Dancer. And you, boy. And you. Thank you. For taking care of them. I nod to my mother and uncle. For helping several. It's what family is for, he says. How are you? My chest hurts. And everything else. He laughs lightly. It should. Birney says that crank the Nakamura's gave you almost killed you. You had a heart attack. Dancer, how did the jackal know? Every day I've wondered, picked it apart, the clues I left. Did I give myself up? It wasn't you, Dancer says. It was Harmony. Harmony, I whisper. She wouldn't. She hates gold. But even as I say it, I know how reckless her hate is, how vengeful she must have felt after I did not detonate the bomb she gave me to kill the Sovereign and the others on Luna. She thinks we've sold out the rebellion, 
Dancer says. That were compromising too much. She told the jackal who you were. He knew when I was in his office, when I gave him the gift. He nods tiredly. Your presence proved her claims, so the jackal let us rescue her and the others. We brought her back to base, and an hour before his kill squads came, she disappeared. Fitchner is dead because of her. He gave her a purpose. I understand how she could betray me, but him? Ares. She found out he was a gold. Then she gave him up. Must have given the jackal the base's coordinates. Ares was her hero, her god. After her children died in the mines, he gave her a reason to live, a reason to fight. And then she discovered he was the enemy, and she got him killed. It crushes me to think that's why he died. Dancer surveys me quietly. It's clear I'm not what he expected. Mother and Nerol watch him almost as carefully as they watch me, deducing the same. I know I'm not what I was, I say slowly. No, boy. You've been through hell. It's not that. Then what is it? He exchanges a look with my mother. You're sure? He needs to know. Tell him, she says. Nerol nods, too. Dancer hesitates still. He looks for a chair. Nerol rushes to pull one out for him and set it near the bed. Dancer nods his thanks and then leans over me, making a steeple of his fingers. Darrow, you've gone too long with people hiding things from you, so I want to be very transparent from here forward. Until five days ago, we thought you were dead. I was, close enough. No, no, I mean, we stopped looking for you nine months ago. My mother's hand tightens on mine. Three months after you were captured, the Golds executed you on the HC for treason. They dragged a boy, identical to you, out to the steps of the citadel in Aegea and read off your crimes, pretending you were still a Gold. We tried to free you, but it was a trap. We lost thousands of men. His eyes drift over my lips, my hair. He had your eyes, your scars, your bloody damn face. And we had to watch as the jackal cut off your head and destroyed your obelisk on Mars Field. I stare at them, not fully comprehending. We grieved for your child, Mother says, voice thin. The whole clan, city. I led the fading dirge myself, and we buried your boots in the deep tunnels beyond Tinos. Nerol crosses his arms, trying to seal himself off from the memory. He was just like you. Same walk, same face. Thought I'd watched you die again. It was likely a flesh mask, or they carved someone, or digital effects, Dancer explains. Doesn't matter now. The jackal killed you as an aureate, not as a red. Would have been foolish for them to reveal your identity. Would have handed us a tool. 
So instead, you died just another gold who thought he could be king. A warning. The jackal promised he would hurt those I love, and now I see how deeply he has. My mother's facade has broken. All of the grief she's kept inside thickens behind her eyes as she stares down at me, guilt straining her face. I gave up on you, she says softly, voice cracking. I gave up. It's not your fault, I say. You couldn't have known. Severo did, she says. He never stopped looking for you. Dancer explains. I thought he was mad. He said you weren't dead, that he could feel it, that he would know. I even asked him to give up the helm to someone else. He was too reckless searching for you. But the bastard found you, Nero says. Aye, Dancer replies. He did. I was wrong in it. I should have believed in you, believed in him. How... Did you find me? Theodora designed an operation. She's here? Working for us in intelligence. Woman's got contacts. Some of her informants in a pearl club caught word that the Olympic Knights were taking a package from Attica back to Luna for the Sovereign. Severo believed you were that package, and he put a huge portion of our reserve resources behind this attack, burned two of our deep assets. As he speaks... I watch my mother stare distantly at a crackling light bulb in the ceiling. What is this like for her? For a mother to see her child broken by other men? To see the pain written in scars on his skin, spoken in silences, in far-off looks? How many mothers have prayed to see their sons, their daughters, return from war, only to realize the war has kept them, the world has poisoned them, and they'll never be the same. For nine months, Mother has grieved for me. Now she's drowning in guilt for giving up, and desperation in hearing the war swallow me again, knowing she's helpless to stop it. In the past years, I've trampled over so many to get what I think I want. If this is my last chance at life, I want to do it right. I need to. But now the real problem isn't material, it's manpower we need. Dancer, stop, I say. Stop? He frowns in confusion, glancing at Nero. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. But I'll talk with you in the morning about this. The morning? Darrow, the world is shifting under your feet. We've lost control over the other red factions. The suns will not last the year. I have to give you a debriefing. We need you back. Dancer, I am alive, I say, thinking of all the questions I want to ask, about the war, my friends, how I was undone, about Mustang. But that can wait. Do you even know how lucky I am to be able to see you all again in this world? I haven't seen my brother or my sister in years. So tomorrow... I'll listen to your debriefing. Tomorrow the war can have me again, but tonight I belong to my family. I hear the children before we reach the door. I feel a guest in someone else's dream.
unfit for the world of children. But I've little to say in the matter, as mother pushes my wheelchair forward into a cramped dormitory, cluttered with metal bunks, children, the smell of shampoo and noise. Five of the children of my blood, fresh from the showers by the looks of their hair and the little sandals on the floor, are scrumming on one of the bunks, two taller nine-year-olds holding an alliance against two six-year-olds, and a tiny little cherub of a girl who keeps head-butting the biggest boy in the leg. He hasn't yet noticed her. The sixth child in the room I remember from when I visited mother in Lycos, the little girl who couldn't sleep, one of Kieran's. She watches the other children over her glossy book of fables from another bunk, and is the first to notice me. Pa, she calls back, eyes wide. Pa! Kieran bursts up from his game of dice with Liana when he sees me. Liana is slower behind him. Daro, he says, rushing to me and stopping just before my wheelchair. He's bearded now, too. In his mid-twenties. No slump to his shoulders like there used to be. His eyes radiate a goodness that I used to think made him seem foolish. Now it just seems wildly brave. Remembering himself, he waves his children forward. Regan, Eero, children, come meet my little brother. Come meet your uncle. The children line up awkwardly around him. A baby laughs from the back of the room, and a young mother rises from her bunk, where she was breastfeeding the child. Eo? I whisper. The woman's a vision of the past. Small, face the shape of a heart, her hair a thick, tangled mess, the sort that frizzes on humid days, like Eo's did. But this is not Eo. Her eyes are smaller, her nose elfin. More delicacy here than fire. And this is a woman, not a girl like my wife was. Twenty years old now by my count. They all stare at me strangely, wondering if I'm mad. Except Dio, Dio's sister, whose face splits with a smile. I'm sorry, Dio, I say quickly. You look... Just like her. She doesn't allow it to be awkward, hushing my apologies, saying it's the kindest thing I could have said. And who's that, then? I ask of the baby she holds. The little girl's hair is absurd. Rust red and bound together by a hair tie, so it sticks straight up on top of her head in a little antenna. She watches me excitedly with her dark red eyes. This little thing... Dio asks, coming closer to my chair. Oh, this is someone I've been wanting to introduce to you since Diana told us you were alive. She looks lovingly to my brother. I feel a pang of jealousy. This is our first. Would you like to hold her? Hold her, I say. No, I'm... The girl's pudgy little hands reach for me and Dio pushes the girl into my lap before I can recoil. The girl clings to my sweater, grunting as she turns and wriggles around till she's seated according to her liking on my leg. She claps her hands together and laughs, completely unaware of what I am. 
of why my hands are so scarred. Delighted by the size of them and the gold sigils, she grabs my thumb and tries to bite it with her gums. Her world is alien to the horrors I know. All the child sees is love. Her skin is pale and soft against mine. She's made of clouds, and I of stone. Her eyes large and bright like her mother's. Her demeanor and thin lips like Kieran's. Were this another life, she might have been my child with Eo. My wife would have laughed to think it would be my brother and her sister together in the end, and not us. We were a little storm that couldn't last. But maybe Dio and Kieran will. Long after the lights have dimmed throughout the complex to ease the burdens on the generators, I sit with my uncle and brother around the table in the back of the room, listening to Kieran tell me his new duties, learning from oranges how to service rip wings and shuttles. Dio went to bed long ago, but she left me the baby, who now sleeps in my arms, shifting here and there as her dreams take her wherever they may. It's really not that wretched here, Kieran is saying. Better than the stacks below. We have food, water showers, no more flushes. There's a lake above us, they say. Bloody damn dazzling stuff, the showers. Children love it. He watches his children in the low light, two to a bed, shifting quietly as they sleep. What's hard is not knowing what'll be for them. Will they ever mine, work in the Webbery? I always thought they would, that I was passing something down, a mission, a craft, you hear? I nod. I guess I wanted my sons to be hell divers, like you, like Pa, but he shrugs. There's nothing to that now that you got eyes, Uncle Nero says. It's a hollow life when you know you're being stepped on. Aye, Kieran replies. Die by thirty, so those folks can live to a hundred. It ain't bloody damn right. I just want my children to have more than this, brother. He stares at me intensely, and I remember how my mother asked me what comes after revolution. What world are we making? It was what Mustang asked. Something Eo never considered. They have to have more than this. And I love Ares as much as anyone. I owe him my life, the lives of my children. But... He shakes his head, wanting to say more but feeling the weight of Nero's eyes on him. Go on, I say. I don't know if he knows what comes next. That's why I'm glad you're back, little brother. I know you've got a plan. I know you can save us. He says it with so much faith, so much trust. Of course I have a plan, I say, because I know it's what he needs to hear. But as my brother contentedly refills his mug, my uncle catches my eye, and I know he sees through the lie, and we both feel the darkness pressing in.
Chapter 9 The City of Ares It's early morning and I sip my coffee and eat a bowl of grain cereal my mother fetched me from the commissary. I'm not yet ready for crowds. Kieran and Liana have already gone to work, so I sit with Dio and Mother as the children dress for school. It's a good sign. You know a people have given up when they stop teaching their children. I finish my coffee. Mother pours me more. You took an entire pot? I ask. The chef insisted. Tried to give me two. I sip from the cup. It's almost like the real thing. It is the real thing, Dio says. There's this pirate who sends us hijacked goods. Coffee's from Earth, I think. Jamaica, they said. I don't correct her. Oi! A voice screams in the hallways. My mother jumps at the sound. Reaper! Reaper! Come out and play! There's a crash in the hall and the sound of stumping boots. Remember, Diana told us to knock, says a thunderous voice. You are so annoying. Fine. A polite knock comes at the door. Tidings! It's Uncle Severo and the moderately friendly giant. My mother motions to one of my excited nieces. Ella, do us kind. Ella darts forward to open the door for Severo. He bursts through, scooping her up. She shrieks with joy. He's in his undersuit, a black sweat-wicking fabric that soldiers wear under pulse armor. Sweat rings stay in the armpits. His eyes dance as he sees me, and he tosses Ella roughly onto a bed and charges toward me, arms outstretched. A weird laugh escapes his chest, hatchet face split with a jagged grin. His hair a dirty, sweat-soaked mohawk. Severo, careful, my mother says. Reap. He slams into me, spinning my chair sideways, clacking my teeth together as he half lifts me out of the chair, stronger than he was, smelling of tobacco and engine fuel and sweat. He half laughs, half cries like an excited dog into my chest. I knew you were alive. I bloody damn knew it. Pixie bitches can't fool me. Pulling back, he looks down at me with a rickshaw grin. You bloody damn bastard. Language, my mother snaps. I wince. My ribs. Oh, shit, sorry, brother man. He lets me sink back into the chair and kneels so we're eye to eye. I said it once, now I'll say it twice. If there's two things in this world that can't be killed, it's the fungus under my sack and the reaper of bloody damn Mars. Ha-ha! <laughs> Several. Sorry, Diana. Sorry. I pull back from him. Severo, you smell terrible. I haven't showered in five days, he brags, grabbing his groin. It's a Severo soup in here, boyo. He puts his hands on his hips. You know, you look... Um... He glances at my mother and tames his tongue. Bloody terrible. A shadow falls over the room as a man enters and blocks the overhead light near the door. The children cluster joyously around Ragnar so he can barely walk. Hello, Reaper, he says over their shouts. I greet Ragnar with a smile. 
His face is as impassive as ever, tattooed and pale, calloused from the wind of his arctic home, like the hide of a rhinoceros. His white beard is braided into four strands, and the hair on his head shaved except for a tail of white that is braided with red ribbons. The children are asking him if he's brought them presents. Several. I lean forward. Your eyes. He leans in close. Do you like him? Buried in that squinting, sharp-angled face, his eyes are no longer that dirty shade of gold, but are now as red as Martian soil. He pulls back his lid so I can better see. They're not contacts. And the right is no longer bionic. Bloody damn. Did you get carved? By the best in the business. Do you like them? They're bloody damn marvellous. Fits you like a glove. He punches his hands together. Glad you said that, because they're yours. I blanch. What? They're yours. My what? Your eyes. My eyes. Did yon friendly giant drop you on your head in the rescue? Mickey had your eyes in a cryo box at his joint in Yorkton, creepy place, by the by, when we raided it for supplies to bring back to Tinos to help the rising. I figured you weren't using them, so... He shrugs awkwardly. So I asked if he'd put them in. You know, bring us closer together. Something to remember you by. That's not so weird, right? I told him it was odd, Ragnar says. One of the girls is climbing his leg. Do you want the eyes back? Several asks, suddenly worried. I can give them back. No, I say. It's just I forgot how crazy you are. Oh. He laughs and slaps my shoulder. Good. I thought it was something serious. So I'm prime keeping them. Finders keepers, I say with a shrug. Diana of Lycos, may we borrow your son for martial matters? Ragnar asks my mother. He has much to do, many things to know. Only if you return him in one piece, and you take some coffee with you, and bring these socks to the laundry. My mother pushes a bag of freshly patched socks into Ragnar's arms. As you wish. What about the presents? One of my nephews asks, didn't you bring any? I've got a present for you, Severo says. Severo, no! Dio and my mother shout. What? He pulls out a bag. It's just candy this time. And that's when Ragnar tripped over Pebble and fell out the back of the transport, Severo cackles, like a dumbass. He's eating a candy bar over my head as he pushes my wheelchair recklessly through the stone corridor. He sprints fast again and hops on the back to coast till we swerve into the wall. I wince in pain. So Ragnar falls straight into the sea. Thing was at full chop, man. Waves the size of torch ships. So I dive in too, thinking he needs my help. Just in time for this huge... I don't know what the hell you'd call it. Some carved beastie. Demon. Ragnar says from behind. I hadn't noticed him following. It was a sea demon from the third level of hell. Sure. Several guides me around a corner, clipping the wall hard enough to make me bite my tongue and sending a cluster of sun's pilots scattering. 
they stare after me as we trundle on. This sea, he looks back at Ragnar, demon, apparently thinks Ragnar is a tasty-looking morsel. So he gobbles him up almost as soon as he hits the water. So I see this, I'm laughing my ass off with Screwface, as one would, because it's bloody damn hilarious. And you know how Screwface loves a good joke? But then the beastie dives. So I follow, and I'm chasing it, shooting my pulse fist at a bloody damn sea. He looks at Ragnar again. Demon, as it swims to the bottom of the damn thermic sea. Pressure's building, my suit's wheezing, and I think I'm about to die, when suddenly Ragnar cuts his way out of the scaly bitch. He leans close. But guess where he came out? Come on, guess. Guess. Severo, did he come out of the sea demon's rectum? I ask. Severo squeals with laughter. He did, right out the ass, shot like a turd. My chair rose to a stop, his voice cut short, followed by a thump and sliding sound. My wheelchair rose forward again. I look back and see Ragnar pushing it innocently along. Severo isn't in the hallway behind us. I frown, wondering where he went, till he bursts out of a side passage. You! Troll! Several shouts. I'm a terrorist warlord. Stop throwing me. You made me drop my candy. Several looks at the floor of the hallway. Wait, where is it? Damn it, Ragnar, where is my peanut bar? You know how many people I had to kill to get that? Six. Six. Ragnar chews quietly above me, and though I'm probably mistaken, I think I see him smile. Ragnar, have you been brushing your teeth? They look splendid. Thank you. He preens as much as a man eight feet tall can preen past a mouthful of peanut butter bar. The wizard removed my old ones. They pained me greatly. These are new. Are they not fine? Mickey, the wizard, I confirm. Indeed, he also taught me to read before he left Tino's. Ragnar proves this by reading every single sign and warning we pass in the hall, till we enter the hangar bay some ten minutes later. Severo follows behind, still complaining about his lost candy. The hangar is cramped by society standards, but is still nearly thirty metres high and sixty wide. It's been cut into the rock by laser drills. The floor is stone, blasted black from engines. Several dilapidated shuttles sit in berths beside three shining new ripwings. Reds, directed by two oranges, service the ships and stare at me as we wheel past. I feel an outsider here. A motley group of soldiers ambles away from a battered shuttle. Some are still in armor, with their wolf cloaks hanging from their shoulders. Others are stripped down to their undersuits or go bare-chested. Boss! Pebble cries from under Clown's arm. She's as plump as ever, and she grins at me, hauling Clown along to move faster. His puffy hair is matted with sweat, and he leans on the shorter girl. Both their faces are bright when they approach, as if I were exactly as they remembered. Pebble shoves Clown off her shoulder to give me a hug. Clown, for his part, gives a ludicrous bow. 
Howler's reporting for duty, Primus, he says. Sorry about the kerfuffle. Shit got prickly, Pebble explains before I can speak. Exceedingly prickly. Something different about you, Reaper. Clown puts his hands on his hips. You look... slender. Did you trim your hair? Don't tell me. It's the beard. Terribly slimming. Kind of you to notice, I say. And to stay, considering everything. What, you mean you lying to us for five years? Yes, that, I say. Well, Clown says, about to light into me, Pebble thumps his shoulder. Of course we'd stay, Reaper, she says sweetly. This is our family. But we have demands, Clown continues, wagging a finger. If you desire our full services. But, for now, we must be off. I fear I have shrapnel in my arse, so I beg your leave. Come, Pebble, to the surgeons. Bye, boss, Pebble says. Glad you're not dead. Squad dinner at eight, several calls after them. Don't be late. Shrapnel in your arse is not an excuse, clown. Yes, sir. Severo turns to me with a grin. Sods didn't even bat an eye when I told them you were a ruster. Came with me and Rags to fetch your family right off. Was wicked telling them what was what, though. This way. As we passed the ship Pebble and Clown exited, I see up the ramp into its belly. Two young boys work inside, blasting the floors with hoses. The water runs brownish-red down the ramp into the hangar deck, flowing not into a drain but down a narrow trough toward the edge of the hangar, where it disappears over the edge. Some dads leave ships or villas for their sons. Asshat Ares left me this wretched hive of angst and peasantry. Bloody damn, I whisper, as I realize what exactly I'm looking at. Beyond the hangar is an inverted forest of stalactites. It glitters in the artificial subterranean dawn. Not only from the water that dribbles along their slick grey surfaces, but from the lights of docks, barracks, and sensor arrays that give teeth to Ares's great bastion. Supply ships flit between the multiple docks, we're in a stalactite, I laugh in wonder. But then I look down at the horror beneath, and the weight on my shoulders doubles. A hundred meters below our stalactite sprawls a refugee camp. Once it was an underground city carved into the stone of Mars. The streets are so deep between the buildings they're more like miniature canyons, and the city spills over the floor of the colossal cave to the far walls kilometers away, where more honeycombed homes have been built. Streets switch back up the sandstone, but over that a new roofless city has spawned, one of refugees. Muddled skin and fabrics and hair, all writhing like some weird fleshy sea. They sleep on rooftops, in the streets, on the switchback stairs. I see makeshift metal symbols for Gamma, Omicron, Upsilon, all the twelve clans that they divide my people into. I'm stunned by the sight. How many are there? 
Shit if I know. At least twenty mines. Lycos was small compared to some of the ones near the larger H3 deposits. Four hundred and sixty-five thousand, according to the logs. Ragnar says. Only half a million, I whisper. Seems like a hell of a lot more, right? I nod. Why are they here? Had to give them shelter. Poor bastards all come from mines the jackal has purged, pumping Uckley's nine into the vents if he even suspects a son's presence. It's an invisible genocide. A chill passes through me. The liquidation protocol. Board of Quality Control's last measure for compromised mines. How do you keep all this a secret? Jammers? Yeah, and were more than two clicks underground. Pop altered the topographical maps in the Society's database. To the goals, this is bedrock that was depleted of helium-3 more than 300 years ago. Clever enough, for now. And how do you feed everyone? We don't. I mean, we try, but there haven't been rats in Tinos for a month. People are sleeping tote and nose. We've started moving refugees into the stalactites, but disease is already ripping through the people. Don't have enough meds. And I can't risk my sons getting sick. Without them, we don't have teeth. We're just a sick cow waiting to be slaughtered. And they rioted, Ragnar says. Rioted? Yeah, almost forgot about that. Had to cut rations by half. They were already so small. Those ungrateful shitheads down there didn't like that much. Many lost their lives before I descended. The Shield of Tinos, Severus says. He's more popular than I am, that's for damn sure. They don't blame him for shit rations, but I'm more popular than Dancer because I have a badass helmet and he's in charge of the nitty-gritty shit I can't do. People are so stupid. Man breaks his back for them and they think he's a dull-wit penny-pincher. At least the sons love him. And your uncle. It's like we've fallen back a thousand years, I say hopelessly. Pretty much, except for the generators. There's a river that runs underneath the stone, so there's water, sanitation, power, sometimes, and there's lecherous shit, too. Crime, murders, rapes, theft. We have to keep the gamma's slag separate from everyone else. Some Omicrons hanged this little gamma kid last week and carved the gold sigil into his chest, ripped the red sigils out of his arms. They said he was a loyalist, a goldie. He was fourteen. I feel sick. We keep the lights bright, even at night. Yeah, turn them off. It gets otherworldly downstairs. Several looks tired as he stares down at the city. My friend knows how to fight, but this is another battle entirely. I stare down at the city, unable to find the words I need to say. I feel like a prisoner who spent his whole life digging through the wall, only to break through and find he's dug into another cell. Except there will always be another cell. And another. And another. These people are not living. They're all just trying to postpone the end. 
This is not what Io wanted, I say. Yeah, well, Severo shrugs. Dreaming's easy, war isn't. He chews on his lip thoughtfully. You see Cassius at all? Twice, at the end. Why? Oh, nothing. He turns to me, eyes glittering. It's just that he's the one who put Pops down. Chapter 10 The War Our society is at war, Dancer tells me, in the Sons of Ares' command room. The facility is domed, skinned in rock and illuminated by pale bluish lights above, and a corona of computer terminals that glow around a central holographic display. He stands to the side of the display, drenched in the blue light of Mars's thermic sea. With us is Ragnar, several older sons I don't recognize, and Theodora, who greeted me with the graceful kiss on the lips popular in Luna's high color circles. Elegant, even in black utility pants, she has an air of authority in the room. Like my howlers, she was not invited by Augustus to the garden after the triumph. Not important enough, thank Jove. Severo sent Pebble to get her out of the citadel as soon as it all went down. She's been with the sons ever since, helping dancers' propaganda and intelligence wings. Not just the rising against gold forces here and our other cells across the system, but among gold itself. After they killed Arcos and Augustus, as well as their staunchest supporters at your triumph, Roke and the Jackal made a coordinated play to seize the Navy in orbit. They feared Virginia or the Telemannuses would rally the ships of the Golds murdered in the garden. Virginia did, not just with her father's own ships, but with those of Arcos, under the command of three of his daughters-in-law. It came to battle around Dimos, and Roke's fleet, even outnumbered, crushed Mustangs and sent them into flight. She's alive, then, I say, knowing they're wary of how I'd react to knowing the information. Yeah, Severo says, watching me carefully, as do the rest. Far as we know, she's alive. Ragnar seems about to say something, but Severo cuts him off. Dancer, show him Jupiter. My eyes linger on Ragnar as Dancer waves his hand and the holographic display warps to show the great marbled gas giant of Jupiter. Surrounding it are the sixty-three smaller asteroid-like satellites and the four great moons of Jupiter, Europa, Io, Ganymede, and Callisto. The purge instituted by the Jackal and Sovereign was an impressive operation that spanned not just the thirty assassinations of the Garden, but over three hundred other assassinations across the solar system. Most carried out by Olympic knights or Praetorians. It was proposed and designed by the Jackal to eliminate the Sovereign's key enemies on Mars, but also Luna and throughout the society. It worked well, very well. But one grand mistake was made. In the garden, they killed Rivas Aura and his nine-year-old granddaughter. 
The Arch-Governor of Io. I see. Sending a message to the Moon Lords. Yes, but it backfired. A week after the triumph, the children of the Moon Lords, whom the Sovereign keeps on Luna as wards to ransom their parents' loyalty, escaped. Two days after that, the heirs of Ra stole the entirety of Classus Saturnus, the whole Eighth Fleet garrison in its dock at Callisto, with the help of the Cordovans of Ganymede. The Ra's declared Io's independence for the moons of Jupiter, their new alliance with Virginia, Ao Augustus, and the heirs of Arcos, and their war on the Sovereign. A Second Moon Rebellion Sixty years after the burning of Rhea, I say with a slow smile, thinking of Mustang at the head of an entire planetary system. Even if she left me, even if there's that hollowness in the pit of my stomach when I think of her, this is good news for us. We're not the Sovereign's sole enemy. Did Uranus and Saturn join? Neptune surely did. All did. All? Then there's hope, I say. Yeah, you'd think, right? Several mutters. Dancer explains. The Moon Lords also made a mistake. They expected the Sovereign would find herself mired on Mars and would be plagued with low-colour insurrection in the core. So, they assumed she would not be able to send a fleet of sufficient size, 600 million kilometres, to quash their rebellion for at least three years. And they were dead wrong. Several mutters. The idiots. Got caught with their panties down. How long did it take for her to send a fleet? I ask. Six months? Sixty-three days. That's impossible. The logistics on fuel alone. My voice trails away, as I remember the Ash Lord was on the way to reinforce House Bologna in orbit around Mars before he took the planet. He was weeks away then, he must have continued out to the rim, following Mustang the entire way. You should know better than anyone the efficiency of the Society Navy. They're a war machine, Dancer says. Logistics and systems of operation are perfect. The longer the rim had to prepare, the harder it would have been for the Sovereign to wage a campaign. The Sovereign knew that. So the whole Sword Armada deployed straight away to Jupiter orbit, and they've been there for nearly ten months. Roke did a nasty, Severus says. Snuck ahead of the main fleet and jacked that moonbreaker old Nero tried to steal last year. He stole a moonbreaker. Yeah, I know. He's named it the Colossus and chosen it as his flagship, the Ponce. It's a nasty piece of hardware. Makes the packs look tiny by comparison. The hollow above shows the Sovereign's fleet coming upon Jupiter, where the Moonbreaker waits to welcome them. The days and weeks and months of war speed past. The scope of it is manic, Severo says. Each fleet twice again as large as the coalition you summoned to pound the Bologna. He says more but I'm lost watching the months of war speed past, realising how the world's kept turning without me. Octavia wouldn't have used the Ash Lord, I say distantly. If he even went past the asteroid belt, there would be no reconciliation. The Rim would never surrender. 
So who leads them? Aja? Roke, our butt-sucking Fabii, Severo sneers. He leads the entire fleet, I ask in surprise. I know, right? After the siege of Mars and the Battle of Deimos, he's a bloody damn godchild to the core. Regular iron gold, pulled from Annal's past. Never mind you snuck in under his nose. Or he was a joke at the Institute. He's good at three things. Whining, stabbing people in the back, and destroying fleets. They call him the Port of Deimos. Ragnar says. He is undefeated in battle, even against Mustang and her titans. He is very dangerous. Fleet warfare is not her game, I say. Mustang can fight, but she's always been more a political creature. She binds people together. But raw tactics? That's Rogue's province. The warlord in me mourns, having been kept away for so long, for having missed such a spectacle as that of the Second Moon Rebellion. Sixty-seven moons, most militarized, four with populations more than one hundred million. Fleet battles, orbital bombardments, asteroid-hopping assault maneuvers with armies in mech suits. It would have been my playground. But the man in me knows if I hadn't been in the box, this room would be missing people. I realize I'm internalizing too much. I force myself to communicate. We're running out of time, aren't we? Dancer nods. Last week, Rogue took Callisto. Only Ganymede and Io hold strong. If the Moon Lords capitulate, then that navy and the legions with her return here to aid the Jackal against us. We will be the sole focus of the united military might of the society, and they will eradicate us. That was why Fitchner hated bombs. They bring the eyes, wake the giant. So what about Mars? What about our war? Help, what is our war? It's a bloody damn mess is what it is, Severo says. It spilled over into open war about eight months ago. The sons have stayed tight. Don't know where Orion is. Dead, we reckon. The packs and your ships are gone. And now we've got paramilitary armies that aren't sons affiliated rising up in the north, massacring civilians and in turn getting wiped out by Legion airborne units. Then there's mass strikes and protests in dozens of cities. The prisons are overflowing with political prisoners, so they're relocating them to these makeshift camps where we know for a fact that they are pulling mass executions. Dancer pulls up some of the hollows, so I see blurry images of what look like large prisons in the desert and forest. They zoom in on low colours disembarking transports at gunpoint and filing into the concrete structures. It switches to a view of rubble-strewn streets, men with masks and red armbands firing over the smoking remains of city trams. A gold lands among them. The image cuts out. We've been hitting them as hard as we can, Severo says. Gotten some hardcore business done. Stole a dozen ships, two destroyers. Demolished the Thermic Command Center. And now they're rebuilding it, Dancer says. 
then we'll destroy it again, Severo snaps, when we can't even hold a city. These reds are not warriors. Ragnar interrupts the two. They can fly ships, shoot guns, lay bombs, fight graves, but when a gold arrives, they melt away. A deep silence follows his words. The sons of Ares are guerrilla fighters, saboteurs, spies. But in this war, Lorne's words haunt me. How do sheep kill a lion? By drowning him in blood. Every civilian death on Mars is blamed on us, Theodora says eventually. We killed two in a bombing of a munitions manufacturing plant. They say we killed a thousand. Every strike or demonstration, society agents infiltrate the crowd masquerading as demonstrators to shoot at grey officers or detonate suicide vests. Those images are dispersed to the media circus, and when the cameras are off, greys break into homes and make sympathizers disappear. Mid-colors, low-colors, doesn't matter. They contain the dissent. In the North, like Severo said, it's open rebellion. A faction called Red Legion is massacring every high color they find, Dancer says darkly. Old friend of ours has joined their leadership. Harmony. Fitting. She's poisoned them against us. They won't take our orders, and we've stopped sending them weapons. We're losing our moral high ground. The man with voice and violence controls the world, I murmur. Arcos, Theodora asks. I nod. If only he were here. I'm not sure he'd help us. Lamentably, it seems as if voice doesn't exist without violence, the pink says. She folds a leg over the other. The greatest weapon a rebellion has is its spiritus, the spirit of change, that little seed that finds a hope in the mind and flourishes and spreads. But the ability to plant that idea, and even the idea itself, has been taken from us, the message stolen. We are voiceless. When she speaks, the others listen, not to humour her like golds would, but as if her position was nearly equal to dancers. None of this makes any sense, I say. What sparked open war? The jackal didn't publicize killing Fitchner. He would have wanted it quiet as he purged the sons. What was the catalyst? And also, you say we're voiceless, but Fitchner had a communication network that could broadcast to the mines, to anywhere. He pushed Eo's death to the masses, made her the face of the rising. Did the jackal take it out? I look around at their concerned faces. What aren't you telling me? You didn't tell him already? Severa asks. The hell were you doing when I was gone, picking your asses? Darrow wanted to be with his family, Dancer says sharply. He turns to me with a sigh. Much of our digital network was destroyed during the Jackal's purges in the month after Ares was killed and you were captured. Severo was able to warn us before the Jackal's men hit our base in Aegea. We went to ground, saved materiel, but lost massive amounts of manpower. 
thousands of sons. Trained operators. The next three months were spent trying to find you. We hijacked a transport going to Luna, but you weren't on it. We searched the prisons, issued bribes, but you disappeared like you never existed. And then the jackal executed you on the steps of the citadel in Aegea. I know all this. Well, what you don't know is what Severo did next. I looked to my friend. What did you do? Well, I had to. He takes control of the hologram and wipes Jupiter away, replacing it with me. Sixteen years old, scrawny and pale and naked on a table, as Mickey stands over me with his buzzsaw. A chill trickles down my spine. But it's not even my spine. Not really. It belongs to these people. To the revolution. I feel used as I realise what he's done. You released it. Damn right, Severo says nastily, and I feel all their eyes settling on me, now understanding why my blade is painted on the roofs of Tinos's refugees. They all know I was once a red. They know one of their own conquered Mars in an iron rain. I started the war. I released your carving to every mine, to every hollow site, to every millimetre of this bloody damn society. The golds thought they could kill you off, that they could beat you and make your death mean nothing. I'll be damned if I let that happen. He thumps his hand on a table. Damned if I let you disappear facelessly into the machine like my mother. There's not a red on Mars that doesn't know your name, Reap. Not a single person in the digital world who doesn't know that a red rose to become a prince of the golds, to conquer Mars. I made you a myth. And now that you're back from the dead, you're not just a martyr. You're the bloody damn messiah the reds have been waiting for their entire lives. Chapter 11 My People I sit with my legs dangling off the edge of the hangar, watching the city beneath teem with life. The clamour of a thousand hushed voices rises to me like a sea of leaves brushing together. The refugees know I'm alive. Sling blades have been painted on walls, on roofs. The desperate, silent cry of a lost people. For six years I've wanted to be back among them. But looking down, seeing their plight, remembering Kieran's words, I feel myself drowning in their hope. They expect too much. They don't understand that we can't win this war. Ares even knew we could never go toe-to-toe -to -toe with gold. So how am I supposed to lift them up? To show them the way? I'm afraid. Not just that I can't give them what they want, but that, by releasing the truth, Severo's burned the boat behind us. There's no going back for us. So what does that mean for my family, for my friends and these people? I felt overwhelmed by these questions, by Severo's use of my carving, 
that I stormed out without a word. It was petulant. Behind me, Ragnar moves past my wheelchair and slides down next to me, legs dangling off the edge like mine. His boots, comically large. The breeze of a passing shuttle catches the ribbons in his beard. He says nothing, at ease with the silence. It makes me feel safe, knowing he's here, knowing he's with me, like I thought I would feel near Severo. But he's changed. Too much weight in that helm of Ares. When I was a boy, we always wanted to know who the bravest of us was, I say. We'd sneak out of our homes at night and go down into the deep tunnels and stand with our backs to the darkness. You could hear the pit vipers if you were quiet. But you could never tell how close they were. Most boys would break and run after a minute, maybe five. I always stood the longest. Talio found out about our game. I shake my head. Now... I don't think I'd last a minute. Because you know now how much there is to lose. Ragnar's black eyes hold the shadows of a vast history. Nearly forty, he's a man who was raised in a world of ice and magic, sold to the gods to buy life for his people, and served as a slave longer than I've been alive. How much better does he understand life? than I do. Do you still miss home? Your sister? I ask. I do. I long for the early snow in the throes of summer. How it stuck to the fur of Sefi's boots as I carried her on my shoulders to see Nilgir break through the spring ice. Nilgir was a dragon who lived under the world tree of the old Norse societies and spent his days gnawing at the roots of Yggdrasil. Many obsidian tribes believe he comes up from the deep waters of their sea to break the ice that blocks their harbors and open the veins of the pole for their spring raiding boats. In honor of him, they send their bodies of their criminals to the deep in a holiday called Ostara, the first day of true spring light. I sent friends to the spires and the ice to spread your word, to tell my people their gods are false. They are in bondage, and we will soon come to free them. They will know Eo's song. Eo's song. It seems so fragile and silly now. I don't feel her anymore, Ragnar. I glance behind us to the oranges and reds who spare glances our direction as they work on the rip wings in the hangar. I know they think I'm their link to her, but I lost her in the darkness. I used to think she was watching me. I used to talk to her. Now she's a stranger. I hang my head. So much of this is my fault, Ragnar. If I hadn't been so proud, I would have seen the signs. Fitchner would be alive. Lorne would be alive. You think you know the strands of fate? He laughs at my arrogance. 
You do not know what would have happened if they lived. I know I can't be what these people need. He frowns. And how would you know what they need when you are afraid of them, when you can't even look upon them? I don't know how to answer. He stands abruptly and extends a hand to me. Come with me. The hospital was once a cafeteria. Rows of gurneys and makeshift beds now fill it, along with coughs and solemn whispers as red, pink and yellow nurses in yellow scrubs move through the beds, checking the patients. The back of the room is a burn ward, separated from the rest of the patients by plastic containment walls. A woman screaming on the other side of the plastic, fighting a nurse as he tries to give her an injection. Two other nurses rush to subdue her. I feel swallowed by the sterile sadness of the place. There's no gore, no blood dripping on the floor. But this is the aftermath of my escape from Attica. Even with a carver as good as Mickey, they won't have the resources to mend these people. The wounded stare up at the stone ceiling, wondering what life will be like now. That's what this feeling is in the room. Trauma. Not of flesh, but lives and dreams interrupted. I'd retreat from the room, but Ragnar rolls me forward to the edge of a young man's bed. He watched me as I came in. His hair is short, his face plump and awkward with a prominent underbite. What's what? I ask, my voice remembering the flavor of the mine. He shrugs. Just dancing time away, here? I hear. I extend a hand. Darrow. Of Lycos. We know. His hands are so small he can't even wrap his fingers around mine. He chuckles at the ridiculousness of it. Vano. Of Karos. Night or day. Day shift, you pigger. I look like some saggy-faced night digger. Well, you never know these days. True enough. I'm Omicron, third drill boy, second line. So that was your chaff I'd be dodging deep. He grins. Helldivers always looking themselves in the eye. He makes a lewd motion with his hands. Someone's got to teach you to look up. We laugh. How much did it hurt? He asks, nodding to me. At first I think he's asking about what the jackal did. Then I realize he's referring to the sigils on my hands, the ones I've tried to cover with my sweater. I unveil them now. Manic shit, that. He flicks it with his finger. I look around, suddenly aware that it's not just Vano watching me. It's everyone. Even on the far side of the room in the burn unit, Reds pushed themselves up in their beds to look at me. They can't see the fear inside. They see what they want. I glance at Ragnar, but he's busy speaking to an injured woman. Holiday. She nods to me. Grief still very much at home on her face for her lost brother. His pistol is on her bedside, his rifle leaning against the wall. The sons recovered his body during the rescue so he could be buried.
How much did it hurt? I repeat. Well, imagine falling into a claw drill, Vano. A centimetre at a time. First goes the skin, then the flesh, then bone. Easy stuff. Vano whistles and looks down at his missing legs with a tired, almost bored expression. Didn't even feel this. My suit injected enough hydrophone to knock out one of them. He nods to Ragnar and draws air through his teeth. At least I still got my prick. Ask him. A man beside him urges. Vano, shut up. Vano sighs. Boys have been wondering, did you get to keep it? Keep what? It. He looks at my groin. Or did they, you know, make it proportionate? You really want to know? I mean, not for personal reasons, but I've got money riding on it. Well, I lean forward seriously. So do Vano and his bedmates nearby. If you really want to know, you should ask your mother. Vano stares at me intensely, then explodes into laughter. His bedmates laugh and spread the joke to the far edges of the room. And in that tiny moment, the mood shifts. The suffocating sterility cut through with amusement and crude jokes. Whispering suddenly seems ridiculous here. It fills me with energy to see the shifting tide and realize it's because of a single laugh. Instead of retreating from the eyes, from the room, I move away from Ragnar down the lines of cots to mingle more with the injured, to thank them, to ask where they're from and learn their names. And this is where I thank Jove that I've a good memory on me. Forget a man's name and he'll forgive you. Remember it and he'll defend you forever. Most call me Sir or Reaper, and I want to correct them and tell them to call me Darrow, but I know the value of respect, of distance between men and leader. Because even though I'm laughing with them, even though they're helping heal what's been twisted inside me, they are not my friends. They are not my family. Not yet. Not until we have that luxury. For now, they are my soldiers, and they need me as much as I need them. I'm their reaper. It took Ragnar to remind me. He favors me with an ungainly grin, so pleased to see me smiling and laughing with the soldiers. I've never been a man of joy, or a man of war, or an island in a storm, never an absolute like Lorne. That was what I pretended to be. I am, and always have been, a man who is made complete by those around him. I feel strength growing in myself, a strength I haven't felt in so long. It's not only that I'm loved, it's that they believe in me. Not the mask, like my soldiers at the Institute, not the false idol I built in the service of Augustus, but the man beneath Lycos may be gone, Eo may be silent, Mustang a world away, and the sun's on the brink of extinction. 
but I feel my soul trickling back into me as I realize I am finally home. With Ragnar at my side, I return to the command room where Severo and Dancer are hunched over a blueprint. Theodore is in the corner exchanging correspondences. They turn as I enter, surprised to see the smile on my face and to see that I'm now standing. Not on my own, but with Ragnar's help. I left the chair in the hospital and had him guide me back to the command room I fled only an hour prior. I feel a new man, and I may not be what I was before the darkness, but perhaps I'm better for it. I have humility I didn't have before. I'm sorry for how I acted, I say to my friends. This has been overwhelming. I know you've done the best you can, better than anyone could, given the circumstances. You've all kept hope alive, and you've saved me, and you saved my family. I pause, making sure they know how much that means to me. I know you didn't expect me to come back like this. I know you thought I'd come back with wrath and fire. But I'm not what I was. I'm just not. I say as Severo tries to correct me. I trust you. I trust your plans. I want to help in whatever way I can, but I can't help you like this. I hold up my thin arms. So I need your help with three things. Always so dramatic, Severo says. What are your demands, princess? First, I want to send an emissary to Mustang. I know you think she betrayed me, but I want her to know I'm alive. Maybe there's some chance it'll make a difference, that she'll help us. Severo snorts. We already gave her the opportunity once. She almost killed you and rags. But she did not, Ragnar says. It is worth the risk if she will help us. I will go as emissary so she does not doubt our intentions. Like hell, Severo says. You're one of the most wanted men in the system. Gold have shut down all unauthorized air traffic, and you won't last two minutes in a spaceport even with a mask. We'll send one of my spies, Theodora says. I have one in mind. She's good, and a hundred kilograms less conspicuous than you, Prince of the Spires. The girl's in a port city already. Evie, Dancer asks. Just? Theodora looks my direction. Evie's done her best to make amends for the sins of the past. Even ones that weren't hers. She's been very helpful. Dancer, I'll make the arrangements for travel and cover, if that's all right with you. It's all right, Severus says quickly, though Theodora waits for Dancer to nod his agreement. Thank you, I say. I also need you to bring Mickey back to Tinos. Why? Dancer asks. I need him to make me into a weapon again. Severo cackles. Now we're talking. Get some man-killing meat on your bones. No more of this anorexic scarecrow shit. Dancer shakes his head. Mickey's half a thousand clicks away in Varos, working on his little project. He's needed there. 
You need calories, not a carver. In the state you're in, it could be dangerous. Reap can handle it. We can get Mickey and his equipment here by Thursday, Severo says. Virany has been consulting with him anyway about your condition. He'll be tickled pink to see you. Dancer watches Severo with strained patience. And the last request? I grimace. I have a feeling you're not going to like this one. Chapter 12 The Julii I find Victra in an isolated room with several sons guarding the door. She lays with her feet sticking off the edge of a medical cot, watching a hollow at the foot of her bed as society news channels drone on about the valiant legion attack on a terrorist force that destroyed a dam and flooded the lower Mistos River Valley. The flooding has forced two million brown farmers out of their homes. Greys deliver aid packages from the backs of military trucks. Easily could have been Reds who blew up the dam. Or it could have been the Jackal. At this point, who knows? Victor's white gold hair is bound in a tight ponytail. Every limb, even the paralyzed legs, is cuffed to the bed. Not much trust here for her kind. She doesn't look up at me as the hollow story kicks over to a profile on Roque Al Fabii, the poet of Dimos and the newest heartthrob of the gossip circuit. Searching through his past, conducting interviews with his senator mother, his teachers before the institute, showing him as a boy on their country estate. Roque always found the natural world to be more beautiful than cities, his mother says for the camera. It's the perfect order in nature that he so admired, how it formed effortlessly into a hierarchy. I think that's why he loved the society so dearly, even then. That woman would look much better with a gun in her mouth, Victor mutters, muting the sound. She's probably said his name more in the last month than she did his entire childhood, I reply. Well, politicians never let a popular family member go to waste. What was it Roke once said about Augustus at a party? Oh, how the vultures flocked to the mighty to eat the carcasses left in their wake. Victor looks at me with her flashing, belligerent eyes. The madness I saw in them earlier has retreated, but not vanished entirely. It lingers, like mine. Might as well have been talking about you. That's fair, I say. Are you leading this little pack of terrorists? I had my chance to lead. I made a mess of it. Severo is in charge. Severo? She leans back. Really? Is that funny? No. For some reason I'm not surprised at all, actually. Always had a bigger bite than Bark. The first time I saw him, he was kicking Tactus's ass. I step closer. I believe I owe you an explanation. Oh, hell, can't we skip this part? She asks. It's boring. Skip it. She sighs heavily. Apologies, recrimination, all the trifling shit people muddle through because they're insecure. You don't owe me an explanation. How do you figure? 
We all enter a certain social contract by living in this society of ours. My people oppress your tiny kind. We live off the spoils of your labor, pretending you don't exist. And you fight back, usually very poorly. Personally, I think that's your right. It's not good or evil, but it's fair. I'd applaud a mouse that managed to kill an eagle, wouldn't you? Good for it. It's absurd and hypocritical for Golds to complain now, simply because the Reds finally started fighting well. She laughs sharply at my surprise. What, darling? Did you expect me to scream and rant and piss on about honour and betrayal, like those walking wounds Cassius and Roke? A little, I say. I would. That's because you're more emotional than I am. I'm a Julii. Cold runneth through my veins. She rolls her eyes when I try to correct her. Don't ask me to be different because you need validation, please. It's beneath the both of us. You've never been as cold as you pretend to be, I say. I've existed long before you ever came into my life. What do you really know of me? I am my mother's daughter. You're more than that. If you say so. There's no artifice to her, no coy manipulation. Mustangs all smirks and subtle plays. Victor's a wrecking ball. She softened before the triumph, let her guard down. But now it's back, and it's as alienating as when I first met her. But the longer we speak, the more I see her hair is shot with grey, not just pale gold. Her cheeks are hollow. Her right hand, the one on the opposite side of the cot, clenching the sheets. I know why you lied to me, Darrow, and I can respect it. But what I don't understand is why you saved me in Attica. Was it pity? A tactic? It's because you're my friend, I say. Oh, please! I would rather have died trying to get you out of that cell than let you rot in there. Trigg did die getting you out. Trigg? One of the greys who were behind me when we came into your cell. The other one is his sister. I didn't ask to be saved, she says bitterly, her way of washing her hands of Trigg's death. She looks away from me now. You know, Antonia thought we were lovers, you and I. She showed me your carving. She taunted me, as if it would disgust me to see what you are, to see where you came from, to see how I'd been lied to. And did it? She sneers. Why would I care what you were? I care about what people do. I care about truth. If you had told me, I wouldn't have done a single thing differently. I would have protected you. I believe her, and I believe the pain in her eyes. Why didn't you tell me? Because I was afraid. But I wager you told Mustang. Yes. Why her and not me? I at least deserve that. I don't know. It's because you're a liar. You said I wasn't wicked in the hall, but you think it deep down. You never trusted me. No, I say. I didn't. That's my mistake, and my friends have paid for it with their lives. That's... 
That guild was my only company in the box he kept me in for nine months. By the look in her eyes, I know she didn't know what had been done to me. But now I've been given a second chance at life. I don't want to waste it. I want to make amends with you. I owe you a life. I owe you justice. And I want you to join us. Join you? She says with a laugh. As a son of Ares? Yes. You're serious? She laughs at me. Another defense mechanism. I'm not really into suicide, darling. The world you know is gone, Victor. Your sister has stolen it from you. Your mother and her friends have been wiped out. Your house is now your enemy, and you're an outcast from your own people. That is the problem with this society. It eats its own. It pits us against one another. You have nowhere to go. Well, you really know how to make a girl feel special. I want to give you a family that will not stab you in the back. I want to give you a life with meaning. I know you're a good person, even if you laugh at me for saying it, but I believe in you. Yet, all that doesn't matter. What I believe, what I want. What matters is what you want. She searches my eyes. What I want? If you want to leave here, you can. If you want to stay on this bed, you can. Say what you want and it's yours. I owe you that. She thinks for a moment. I don't care about your rebellion. I don't care about your dead wife. Or about finding a family or finding meaning. I want to be able to sleep without them jacking you full of chemicals, Dara. I want to be able to dream again. I want to forget my mother's caved-in head and her vacant eyes and her twitching fingers. I want to forget Adrius laughing. And I want to repay Antonia and Adrius for their hospitality. I want to stand above them and that piece of shit roke as they weep for the end as I gouge out their eyes and pour molten gold into the sockets so they scream and writhe and spread their urine upon the floor and beg for forgiveness for ever thinking they could put Victra Au Julii in a gory damn cage. She smiles fairly. I want revenge. Revenge is a hollow end, I say. And I'm a hollow girl now. I know she's not. I know she's more than that. But I also know better than anyone that wounds aren't healed in a day. I'm barely stitched together myself, and I have my entire family here. If that is what you want, that is what I owe you. In three days, the carver who made me into a gold will be here. He will make us what we were. We'll mend your spine, give you your legs back if you want them. She squints at me. And you trust me, after what trust has cost you? I take the magnetic key given to me by the suns outside and press it to the inside of her cuffs. One by one, they unlatch from the bed, freeing her legs, her arms. You're dumber than you look she says. You might not believe in our rebellion, 
but I saw Tactus change before his future was robbed from him. I've seen Ragnar forget his bonds and reach for what he wants in this world. I've seen Severo become a man. I've seen myself change. I truly do believe we choose who we want to be in this life. It isn't preordained. You taught me loyalty, more than Mustang, more than Roke. And because of that, I believe in you, Victra, as much as I've ever believed in anyone. I hold out my hand. Be my family, and I will never forsake you. I will never lie to you. I will be your brother as long as you live. Startled by the emotion in my voice, the cold woman stares up at me. Those defenses she erected forgotten now. In another life, we might have been a pair. Might have had that fire I feel for Mustang, for Eo. But not in this life. Victor does not soften, does not crumble to tears. There's still rage inside her, still raw hate and so much betrayal and frustration and loss coiled around her icy heart. But in this moment, she is free of it all. In this moment, she reaches solemnly up to grasp my hand, and I feel the hope flicker in me. Welcome to the Sons of Ares. Part Two Rage Shit Escalates Severo Albarca Chapter Thirteen Howlers It's gory damn frustrating being kept in the dark, Victor mutters as she helps me rack the weights on the bench press. The sound echoes through the stone gymnasium. It's bare bones in here, metal weights, rubber tires, ropes, and months of my sweat. Don't they know who you are? I say, sitting up. Oh, shut up. Didn't you found the howlers? Don't you have any say over how they treat us? She nudges me off the bench to take my spot, laying her spine on the padded surface and pushing her arms up to grip the barbell. I take a few weights off, but she glares at me, and I put them back on as she fixes her grip. Technically, no, I say. Oh, but seriously, what's a girl got to do to get a wolf cloak? Her powerful arms thrust the bar up off from its rack, moving it up and down as she talks. Nearly three hundred kilos. I shot a legget in the head two missions ago. A legget! I've seen your howlers. Aside from Ragnar, they're tiny. They need more heavies if they want to take on Adrius's bone riders of the Sovereign's Praetorians. She grits her teeth as she finishes her last repetition, racking the bar without my help, and standing to point to herself in the mirror. Hers is a powerful, laconic form, shoulders broad and swaying with a haughty walk. I'm a perfect physical specimen, on and off my feet, not using me as an indictment on Severa's intelligence. I roll my eyes. It's probably your lack of self-confidence he's worried about. She throws a towel at me. 
you're as annoying as he is. Swear to Jove, if he says one more thing about my nascent poverty, I'm going to cut his head off with a gory damn spoon. I watch her for a moment, trying not to laugh. What, you have something to say as well? Not a thing, my good lady, I say, holding up my hands. Her eyes linger on them instinctively. Squats next. The ramshackle gymnasium has been our second home since Mickey carved us. It was weeks of recovery in his ward, as our nerves remembered how to walk, and both of us tried to put on weight again under the supervision of Dr. Virini. A gaggle of reds and a green watch us from the corner of the gym. Even after two months, the novelty hasn't worn off seeing how much two chemically and genetically enhanced peerless scarred can lift. Ragnar came in to embarrass us a couple weeks back. Brute didn't even say a word, just started piling weights onto a barbell till no more would fit. Power cleaned it, and then gestured for us to do the same. Victor couldn't even get the weight off the ground. I got as far as my knees. Then we had to listen to the hundred idiots who flocked after him chant his name for an hour. Found out afterward Uncle Nerol had been overseeing bets on how much more Ragnar could lift than I. Even my own uncle bet against me. But it's a good sign, even if the others don't think of it this way. Gold can't win everything. It was with Mickey and Dr. Virini's help that Victor and I regained control of our bodies. But regaining our sense in the field has taken just as long. We started with baby steps. Our first mission out together was a supply run with Holiday and a dozen bodyguards. Not for the supply run itself, but for me. We didn't do it with the Howlers. Gotta work your way up to the A-Squad, Reap. Make sure you can keep up, Severo said, patting my face. And Julia has to prove herself. She slapped his hand when he tried petting her. Ten supply runs, two sabotage missions, and three assassinations later, Severo was finally convinced that Holiday, Victra, and I were ready to run with the B Squad, the Pit Vipers, led by my own Uncle Nerol, who's become a bit of a cult hero to the Reds here. Ragnar's a godlike creature, but my uncle is just a rough old man who drinks too much, smokes too much, and is uncommonly good at war. His pit vipers are a motley collection of hard-asses specializing in sabotage and thievery. About half are ex-helldivers, the rest are a spattering of other useful low-colors. We've completed three missions with them, destroying a barracks and several Legion communications installations, but I can't shake the feeling we're a snake eating our own tail. Every bombing is twisted by the society media. Every pinprick of damage we do seems only to bring more legions from Aegea to the mines or the smaller cities of Mars. I feel hunted. Worse, I feel like a terrorist. I've only ever felt this way once before, and that was with a bomb on my chest, walking into the gala on Luna. Dancer and Theodora have been pressing Severo to reach out to more allies, trying to bridge the gap between the Suns and other factions. Reluctantly, Severo agreed. So earlier this week, the Pit Vipers and I were dispatched from the tunnels to the northern continent of Arabia Terra. 
where the Red Legion had carved themselves a stronghold in the port city of Ismenia. It was Dancer's hope I could bring them into the fold, in a way Severo hadn't been able to, maybe pull them away from Harmony's influence. But instead of finding allies, we found a mass grave, a grey, bombed-out city shelled from orbit. I can still see that pale, bloated mass of bodies writhing on the coastline, crabs skittering over the corpses, making meals of the dead, as a lone ribbon of smoke twirled and twirled up to the stars, the old, soundless echo of war. I'm haunted by the sight, but Victor seems to have moved past it as she plows through her workout. She's pushed it to that vast vault in the back of her mind where she compresses and locks away all the evil she's seen, all the pain she's felt. I wish I were more like her. I wish I felt less and was less afraid. But as I recall that ribbon of smoke, all I can think is that it presages something worse, as if the universe is showing us a glimpse of the end we're rushing toward. It's late night, and the mirrors have fogged with condensation when we're done with our workout. We wash up in the showers, talking over the plastic dividers. Take it as a sign of progress, I say. At least she's speaking to you. No, your mother hates me. She'll always hate me. Not a damn thing I can do about it. Well, you could try being more polite. I'm perfectly polite. Victor says in offence, turning off her shower and exiting the stall. Eyes closed against the water, I finish shampooing my hair, expecting her to say more. She doesn't. So I finish rinsing the shampoo out and exit the stall when I'm done. I feel something's amiss the moment before I see Victor naked on the floor, hands and legs hogtied behind her back, a hood over her head. Something moves behind me. I whirl around just in time to see a half-dozen ghost cloaks slipping through the steam. Then someone, inhumanly strong, slams into me from behind, wrapping their arms around mine, pinning them to my sides. I feel their breath on my neck. Terror screams through me. The jackals found us. He snuck in. How? Golds! I shout. Golds! I'm slick from the shower. The floor is slippery. I use it to my advantage, wriggling against my attacker's arms like an eel and lashing back with my head in his face. There's a grunt. I twist again. Feet slip. I fall, smacking my knee on the concrete floor. Scramble to my feet. Feel two attackers rushing me from the left. Cloaked. I duck under one, putting my shoulder into his knees. He catapults over my head and smashes through the plastic barriers that divide the shower behind me. I grab the other by the throat, blocking a punch, and throw him into the ceiling. Another slams into me from the side, prying at my leg with his hands to take my balance. I go with it, jumping in the air, twisting my body in a cravat move that steals his center of gravity and puts us both on the ground, his head between my thighs. All I need do is twist and his neck breaks. But two more sets of hands are on me, thumping me in the face. More are on my legs. Ghost cloaks rippling in the vapor. I'm screaming and thrashing and spitting, but there are too many. And they're nasty, punching the tendons behind my knees so I can't kick, 
and the nerves in my shoulders so my arms feel heavy as lead. They shove a hood over my head and bind my hands behind my back. I lay there motionless, terrified, panting. Get them on their knees, an electronic voice growls. On their bloody damn knees. Bloody damn? Ah, oh, shit. As I realize who it is, I let them lift me up to my knees. Hood is removed. The lights are out. Several dozen candles have been set on the shower floor, throwing shadows about the room. Victra's to my left, eyes furious, blood coming from her now crooked nose. Holiday has appeared to my right, fully clothed but similarly bound. She is carried in by two black-clad figures and forced down on her knees. A big grin splits her face. Standing around us in the bathroom steam are ten demons with black-painted faces staring out from beneath the mouths of the wolf pelts that hang from their heads to their mid-thighs. Two lean against the wall, in pain from my rabid defense. Beneath the pelt of a bear... Ragnar towers beside several. The howlers have come for new recruits, and they look bloody terrifying. Greetings, you ugly little bastards. Several growls, removing the voice synthesizer. He stalks forward through the shadows to stand before us. It has come to my attention that you are abnormally devious, savage, and generally malicious creatures, gifted in the arts of murder, mayhem, and chaos. If I am mistaken, do say so now. Severo, you scared the shit out of us, Victor says. The hell is your problem? Do not profane this moment, Ragnar says menacingly. Victor spits. You broke my nose, you oaf! Technically I did. Severo says. He jerks his head to a lean howler with red sigils on his hands. Sleepy helped. You little dwarf! You were squirming, love, Pebble says from somewhere among the howlers. I can't tell which she is. Voice resounding off the walls. And if you keep talking, we'll just gag you and tickle you. Clown says, sinisterly. So, shh. Victra shakes her head, but keeps her mouth shut. I'm trying not to laugh at the solemnity of the moment. Severo continues, pacing back and forth before us. You have been watched, and now you are wanted. If you accept our invitation to join our brotherhood, you must take an oath to be always faithful to your brothers and sisters, to never lie, never betray those under the cloak. All your sins, all your scars, all your enemies now belong to us, our burden to share. Your loves, your family will become your second loves, your second family. We are your first. If you cannot abide this, if you cannot conscience this bond, say so now and you may leave. He waits. Not even Victor says a word. Good. Now, as per the rules set forth in our sacred text, 
He holds up a little black book with dog-eared pages and a white howling wolf head on the front. You must be purged of your former oaths and prove your worth before you can take our vows. He holds up his hands. So let the purge begin. The howlers pitch back their heads and howl like maniacs. What comes next is a blur of kaleidoscopic oddities. Music thumps from somewhere. We're kept on our knees, hands tied. The howlers rush forward. Bottles are brought to our lips and we chug as they chant around some weird looping melody that Sevro leads with bawdy aplomb. Ragnar roars with satisfaction when I finish the bottle they bring me. I almost puke then and there. The liquor burns, scouring my esophagus and belly. Victor's coughing behind me. Holiday just chugs on, and the howlers cheer as she finishes her bottle. We wave her there as they surround Victra, chanting as she gasps and tries to finish the liquor. It splashes over her face. She coughs. Is that your best daughter of the sun? Ragnar bellows. Drink! Ragnar roars with delight when she finally finishes the swill, coughing and muttering curses. Bring forth the snakes and the cockroaches, he shouts. They chant like priests as Pebble wobbles forward with a bucket. They push us together so we surround the bucket and, in the wavering light, can see the bottom of it wriggling with life. Thick, shiny cockroaches with hairy legs and wings crawl around a pit viper. I reel back, terrified and drunk as our binds are cut. Holiday's already reached inside and grabs the snake. She slams it on the floor till it dies. Victor just stares at the grey. What the? Finish your bucket or get the box. Severo says. What does that even mean? Finish the bucket or get the box. Finish the bucket or get the box, they chant. Holiday takes a bite of the dead snake, tearing into it with her teeth. Yes, Ragnar bellows. She has the soul of a howler. Yes. I'm so drunk I can barely see. I reach into the bucket, shivering as I feel the cockroaches crawl over my hand. I snatch one up and jam it into my mouth. It's still moving. I force my jaw to chew. I'm almost crying. Victor is gagging at the sight of me. I swallow it down and grab her hand and force it into the bucket. She makes a sudden lurching movement and I'm too slow to realize what it means. Her vomit splashes onto my shoulder. At the smell of it, I can't hold my own in. Holiday chews on. Ragnar shouts her praises. By the time we finish the bucket, we're a huddled, pathetic mass of drunk, bug and guts-covered filth. Severo, saying something in front of us, keeps swaying back and forth. Maybe that's me. Is he talking? Someone shakes my shoulder from behind. Was I asleep? This is our sacred text, my little friend is saying. You will study this sacred text. Soon you will know this sacred text inside and out. But today you need know only Howler Rule One. Never bow, Ragnar says. 
Never bow! The rest echo, and the clown steps forward with three wolf cloaks. Like the fur of the wolves at the Institute, these pelts modulate to their environment and take on a dark hue in the candlelit room. He holds one out for Victra. They free her bonds, and she tries to stand, but can't. Pebble reaches to help her up, but Victor ignores the hand, tries again, and tilts down to a knee. Then, Severo kneels beside her and extends a hand. Looking at it through sweat-soaked hair, Victor snorts out a laugh as she realizes what this is about. She takes his hand, and only with his help can she walk steadily enough to take her cloak. Severo takes it from Clown and drapes it around her bare shoulders. Their eyes meet and linger for a moment before they move to the side, so Holiday can be helped up by Pebble to gain her cloak. Ragnar helps me, draping mine over my shoulders. Welcome, brother and sisters, to the Howlers. Together the Howlers pitch back their heads and let loose a mighty howl. I join them and find to my surprise that Victra does as well, hurling her head back in the darkness without reservations. Then suddenly the lights flare on. The howls die as we look around in confusion. Dancer trudges into the showers with Uncle Nerol. The bloody hell is this? Nerol asks, eyeing the cockroaches and the remains of the snake and the bottles. The howlers look at the ludicrousness of one another awkwardly. We're performing a secret occult ritual, Severo says, and you are interrupting, subordinate. Right, Nerol says, nodding, a little disturbed. Sorry, sir. One of our pinks stole a datapad from a bone rider in Ajia. Dancer says to Severo, not amused by the display. We found out who he is. No shit, Severo says. Was I right? Who? I ask drunkenly. Who the hell are you talking about? The jackal's silent partner, Dancer says. It's Quicksilver. You were right, Severo. Our agents say he's at his corporate headquarters on Phobos. But he won't be for long. He's bound for Luna in two days. We won't be able to touch him there. So, Operation Black Market is a go, Severo says. It's a go, Dancer admits reluctantly. Severo pumps his fist in the air. Hell yeah! You heard the man howlers. Get scrubbed, get sober, get fed. We've got a silver to kidnap and an economy to crash. He looks at me with a wild grin on his face. It's gonna be a hell of a day. A hell of a day. Chapter 14 The Vampire Moon Phobos means fear. In myth, he was the offspring of Aphrodite and Ares, the child of love and war. It's a fitting name for the larger of Mars's moons. Formed long before the age of man, when a meteorite struck Father Mars and flung debris into orbit, the oblong moon floated like a cast-off corpse, dead and abandoned for a billion years. Now it is the hive teeming with the parasitic life that pumps blood into the veins of the gold empire. 
Swarms of tiny, fat-bodied cargo ships rise from Mars's surface to funnel into the two huge gray docks that encircle the moon. There, they transfer the bounty of Mars to the kilometer-long cosmos haulers that will bear the treasure along the great Julii-Argos trade routes to the rim, or, more likely, to the core, where hungry Luna waits to be fed. The barren rock of Phobos has been carved hollow by man and wreathed with metal. With a radius of only twelve kilometers at its widest, the moon is ringed by two huge dockyards which run perpendicular to each other. There, dark metal and white glyphs and blinking red lights for docking ships. They slither with the movement of magnetic trams and cargo vessels. Beneath the dockyards, and at times rising around them in the form of spiked towers, is the Hive, a jigsaw city formed not by neoclassical gold ideals, but by raw economics without the confines of gravity. Six centuries' worth of buildings perforate Phobos. It is the largest pincushion man has ever built, and the disparity of wealth between the inhabitants of the Needles, the tips of the buildings, and the hollow inside the moon's rock borders on hilarious. Looks larger when you're not on the bridge of a torch ship, Victor draws from behind me. Being disenfranchised is so damn tedious. I feel her pain. The last time I saw Phobos was before the lion's reign. Then I had an armada at my back, Mustang and the jackal at my side, and thousands of peerless scarred at my command. Enough firepower to make a planet tremble. Now I'm skulking in the shadows, in a rickety cargo hauler so old it doesn't even have an artificial gravity generator, accompanied only by Victra, a crew of three sons, gas haulers, and a small team of howlers in the cargo bay. And this time I'm taking orders, not giving them. My tongue plays over the suicide tooth they put in my back right molar after the howler initiation. All the howlers have them now. Better than being taken alive, Severo said. I have to agree with him. Still, feels strange. In the aftermath of my escape, the jackal initiated an immediate moratorium on all flights leaving Mars for orbit. He suspected the suns would make a desperate bid to get me off planet. Fortunately, Severo isn't a fool. If he had been, I'd likely be in the jackal's hands. Ultimately, not even the arch-governor of Mars could ground all commerce for long, and so his moratorium was short-lived. But the shock waves it sent through the market were staggering. Billions of credits lost every minute the Helium-3 did not flow. Severo found it rather inspiring. How much of it does Quicksilver own? I asked. Victra pulls herself beside me in the null gravity. Her jagged hair floats around her head like a white crown. It's been bleached and her eyes have been blackened with contacts. Easier for obsidians to move about the rougher ends of the moon than it would be without the disguise, and being one of the largest howlers, she hardly could pass for any other color. Hard to guess, she says. Silver ownership is a tricky thing, in the end. 
The man has so many dummy corporations and off-grid bank accounts, I doubt even the Sovereign knows how large his portfolio is. Or who is in it? If the rumour of him owning goals is true. They are. Victor shrugs, which tips her backward. He's got his fingers everywhere. One of the only men too rich to kill, according to Mother. Is he richer than she was? Then you are. Were, she corrects, shakes her head. He knew better than that. There's a pause. But maybe. My eyes seek the silver winged heel icon that is stamped on the greatest of Phobos's towers, a three-kilometer-long double helix of steel and glass tipped with a silver crescent. How many gold eyes look on it with jealousy? How many more must he own or bribe to protect him from all the rest? Perhaps just one. Crucial to the jackal's rise was his silent partner, a man who helped him secretly gain control of the media and telecommunications industries. For the longest time I thought that partner was Victra or her mother, and he closed the loop in the garden. But it seems the jackal's greatest ally is alive and prospering. For now. Thirty million people, I whisper. Incredible. I can feel her eyes on me. You don't agree with Severo's plan, do you? My thumb picks at a wad of pink gum stuck to the rusted bulkhead. Kidnapping Quicksilver will get us intel and access to vast weapons factories, but Severo's play against the economy is more concerning. Severo kept the sons alive. I didn't, so I'll follow his lead. Mm-hmm. She eyes me skeptically. I wonder when you started believing grit and vision were the same thing. Oi, shitheads! Severo squawks over the comm unit in my ear. If you're done sightseeing or humping or whatever the hell you're doing, it's time to tuck in. Half an hour later, Victor and I huddled together with the howlers in one of the helium-3 containers stacked in the back of our transport. We can feel the ship reverberate beyond the container as it links its magnetic coupling to the docks' ringed surface. Beyond the ship's hull, oranges will be floating in mechanized suits, waiting to steer the weightless cargo containers onto magnetic trams that will, in turn, take them to the cosmos haulers, awaiting the journey to Jupiter. There they will resupply Roke's fleet in his war effort against Mustang and the Moon Lords. But before the containers are transported, copper and grey inspectors will come to examine them. They'll be bribed by our blues into counting forty-nine containers instead of fifty. Then an orange, bribed by our contact, will lose the container we're in. A common practice for the smuggling of illegal drugs or untaxed goods. He'll deposit it in a lower-level berth for machine parts, whereupon our son's contact will meet us and escort us to our safe house. At least that's the plan. But for now, we wait. Eventually gravity returns, signaling we're in the hangar. Our container settles on the floor with a thud. We steady ourselves against helium-3 drums. Voices drift beyond the metal walls of the container. 
The hauler beeps as it decouples from us and returns out the pulse field to space. Then silence. I don't like it. My hand twists around the leather grip of my razor inside my jacket sleeve. I take a step forward toward the door. Victor follows. Severo grabs my shoulder. We wait for the contact. We don't even know the man, I say. Dancer vouched for him. He snaps his fingers at me to return to my place. We wait. I notice the others listening, so I nod and shut my mouth. It's ten minutes later that we hear a solitary pair of feet click against the deck outside. The lock thuds back on the container doors. The dim light seeps in as they part to reveal a clean-cut, goateed red with a toothpick in his mouth. Half a head shorter than several, he clicks his eyes over each of us in turn, one eyebrow climbing upward when he sees Ragnar. The other follows when he looks down the muzzle of Severo's scorcher. Somehow, he doesn't step back. Man's got a spine in him. What can never die? Severo growls in his best obsidian accent. The fungus under Ares' sack. The man smiles and glances over his shoulder. Mind lowering the nasty. We gotta move now. Borrowed this dock from the syndicate. Except they don't really know about it, so unless you want to tangle with some professional uglies, we gotta box the jabber and waddle on. He claps his hands. Now means now. Our contact goes by the name of Rolo. Stringy and wry, with sparkling bright eyes, and an easy way with the women, even though he brings up his wife, the most beautiful woman who has apparently ever walked the surface of Mars, at least twice a minute. He also hasn't seen her in eight years. He spent that time on the hive as a welder on the space towers. Not technically a slave like the reds in the mines. He and his are contract labor, Wage slaves who work fourteen-hour days, six days a week, suspended between the megalithic towers that puncture the hive, welding metal and praying they never suffer a workplace injury. Get an injury, you can't earn. Can't earn, you don't eat. Mighty full of himself, I overhear Severo saying under his breath to Victra in the middle of the pack as Rolo leads on. I rather like his goatee. Victor says. The Blues call this place the Hive, Rollo's saying, as we head toward a graffiti-smeared tram in a derelict maintenance level. Smells like grease, rust, and old piss. Homeless vagrants festoon the floors of the shadowy metal halls. Twitching bundles of blankets and rags that Rollo sidesteps without looking, though his hand never leaves the worn plastic hilt of his scorcher. Might be to them. They got schools, homes here. Little airhead communes, sects, to be technic, where they learn to fly and sync up with the computers. But let me learn you what this place really is. Just a grinder. Men come in, towers go up. He nods his head at the ground. Meat goes out.
The only signs of life from the vagrants on the floor are little gouts of breath that plume up from their lumpy rags, like steam from the cracks in a lava field. I shiver beneath my grey jacket and adjust the bag of gear over my shoulder. It's freezing on this level. Old insulation, probably. Pebble blows a cloud of steam through her nostrils as she pushes one of our gear carts, looking sadly left and right at the vagrants. Less empathetic, Victra guides the cart from the front, nudging a vagrant out of the way with her boot. The man hisses and looks up at her, and up, and up, till he sees all 2.1 meters of annoyed killer. He skitters to the side, breathing through his teeth. Neither Ragnar nor Rolo seem to notice the cold. Sons of Ares wait for us on the run-down tram platform and inside the tram itself. Most are red, but there's a good amount of oranges and a green and blue in the mix. They cradle a motley collection of old scorches and strafe the other hallways that lead to the platform with edgy eyes that can't help but jump our direction and wonder just who the hell we are. I'm thankful more than ever for the obsidian contacts and prosthetics. Expecting trouble? Severo asks, eyeing the weapons in the sun's hands. Gray's been sweeping down here last couple months. Not hollow-ass tin pots from the local precinct, but naughty bastards. Legionnaires. Even some thirteenth mixed in with tenth and fifth. He lowers his voice. We had a nasty month, where they shred us up real bloody damn bad. Took our headquarters in the hollows. Stuck syndicate toughs on us, too. Paid to hunt their own. Most of us had to go to ground, hiding in secondary safe houses. Main body of sons have been helping the Red Rebels on the station, obviously, but our special ops hasn't flexed muscle till today. We didn't want to take chances, you know? Ares said you lot got important business. Ares is wise, Severo says dismissively. And a drama queen, Victra adds. At the door to the tram, Ragnar hesitates eyes lingering on an anti-terrorism poster pasted onto a concrete support column in the tram's waiting area. See something, say something, it reads, showing a pale red with evil crimson eyes and the stereotypical tattered dress of a miner skulking near a door that says, Restricted Access. Can't see the rest, it's covered in rebel graffiti. But then I realize Ragnar's not looking at the poster but at a man I didn't even notice, who's crumpled on the ground beneath it. His hood's up, left leg is an ancient mech replacement. A crusted brown bandage covers half his face. There's a puff, the release of pressurized gas, and the man leans back from us, shivering and smiling with perfectly black teeth. A plastic stim cartridge clatters to the floor. Tardust. Why do you not help these people? Ragnar asks. Help them with what? Rolo asks. He sees the empathy on Ragnar's face and doesn't really know how to answer. Brother, we barely got enough for flesh and kin. No good sharing with that lot, you know. 
but that one is red. They are your family. Rollo frowns at the bare truth. Say the pity, Ragnar, Victor says. That syndicate cranky's puffing. Most of them would slit your throat for an afternoon high. They're empty flesh. Empty? What? I say, turning back to her. She's caught off guard by the sharpness of my tone, but she's loath to back off, so she doubles down instinctively. Empty flesh, darling, she repeats. Part of being human is having dignity. They don't. They carved it out themselves. That was their choice, not goals. Even if it's easy to blame them for everything. So why should they deserve my pity? Because not everyone is you, or had your birth. She doesn't reply. Rollo clears his throat, skeptical now about our disguises. Ladies write about the slitcher thrall part. Most of them were imported laborers, like me. Not counting the wife, I've got plus three in new Thebes that I send money back to, but I can't go home till my contract's up. Got four years left. These slags have given up on trying to get back. Four years? Victor asks dubiously. You said you were already here eight. Gotta pay for my transit. She stares at him quizzically. Company doesn't cover it. Should have read the fine print. Sure, it was my choice to come here. He nods to the vagrants. Was theirs too. But when the only other choice is starving? He shrugs, as if we all know the answer. These slags just got unlucky on the job. Lost legs, arms. Company doesn't cover prosthetics, at least not decent ones. What about carvers? I ask. He scoffs. And who the hell do you know that can afford flesh work? I didn't even think of the cost. Reminds me of how distant I am from so many of the people I claim to fight for. Here's a red, one of my own, more or less, and I don't even know what type of food is popular in his culture. What company do you work for? Victra asks. Why, Julii Industries, of course. I watch the metal jungle pass outside the dirty Duraglass window as the tram pulls away from the station. Victra sits down next to me, a troubled look on her face. But I'm a world away from her, my friends, lost in memory. I've been to the hive before with Arch Governor Augustus and Mustang. They brought the Lancers to meet with society economic ministers to discuss modernizing the moon's infrastructure. After the meetings, she and I snuck away to the moon's famous aquarium. I'd rented it out at absurd cost, and arranged a meal and wine to be served to us in front of the orca tank. Mustang always liked natural creatures more than carved ones. I've traded fifty-year-old wines and pink valets for a grimmer world with rusting bones and rebel thugs. This is the real world. Not the dream the golds live in. Today I feel the silent screams of a civilization that has been stepped on for hundreds of years. Our path skirts around the edges of the hollows, 
the center of the moon where the latticework of cage slum apartments festers without gravity. To go there would risk falling into the middle of the syndicate street war against the sons of Ares, and to go any higher into the mid-color levels would be to risk society marines and their security infrastructure of cameras and hollow scanners. Instead, we pass through the hinterlands of maintenance levels between the hollows and the needles, where reds and oranges keep the moon running. Our tram, driven by a son's sympathizer, speeds through its stops. The faces of waiting workers blur together as we pass, a pastiche of eyes, but faces all gray. Not the color of metal, but the color of old ash in a campfire. Ash faces, ash clothes, ash lives. But as the tunnel swallows our tram, color erupts around us, graffiti and years of rage bleeding out from the ribbed and cracking walls of its once gray throat. Profanity in fifteen dialects, golds ripped open in a dozen dark ways. And to the right of a crude sketch of a reaper's scythe decapitating Octavia Aulun is an image of Eo hanging from the gallows in digital paint. Hair of flame, break the chains written diagonally. It's a single glowing flower among the weeds of hate. A knot forms in my throat. Half an hour after we set out, our tram grinds to a halt outside a deserted low-color industrial hub where thousands of workers should diverge from their early morning commute from the stacks to attend their functions. But now it's still as a cemetery. Trash litters the metal floors. Hollow cans still flash with the society's news programs. A cop sits on a table in a cafe, steam still rising off the top of the beverage. The sons have cleared the way only a few minutes before. Shows the extent of their influence here. When we leave, life will return to the place. But after we plant the bombs we've brought with us, after we destroy the manufacturing, won't all the men and women we intend to help be just as unemployed as those poor creatures in the tram station? If work is their reason for being, what happens when we take it away? I'd voice my concerns to Severo, but he's a driven arrow, as dogmatic as I once was, and to question him aloud seems a betrayal of our friendship. He's always trusted me blindly, so am I the worse friend for having doubts in him? We pass through several grav lifts into a garage for garbage disposal haulers, also owned by Julii Industries. I catch Victra wiping dirt off the family crest on one of the doors. The speared sun is worn and faded. The few dozen red and orange workers of the facility pretend not to notice our group as we file into one of the hauler bays. Inside, at the base of two huge haulers, we find a small army of sons of Ares. More than six hundred. They're not soldiers, not like us. Most are men, but there's a scattering of women, mostly younger reds and oranges, forced to migrate here for work 
to feed Mars' side families. Their weapons are shoddy. Some stand, others are seated, turning from conversations to see our pack of obsidian killers stalking across the metal deck, carrying bags of gear and pushing two mysterious carts. A small sadness grows in me. Whatever they do, wherever they go, their lives will be stained by this day. If it were my duty to address them, I'd warn them the burden they're taking on, the evil they'll be letting into their lives. I'd say it's nicer to hear about glorious victories in war than to witness them, than to feel the weird unreality of lying in bed every morning, knowing you've killed a man, knowing a friend is gone. But I say nothing. My place now is beside Ragnar and Victra, behind Severo as he spits out his gum and stalks forward, giving me a wink and an elbow in the side, to stand in front of the small army. His army. He's tiny for an obsidian male, but still scarred and tattooed and terrifying to this company of small-handed garbagemen and hunched tower-welders. He tilts his head forward, eyes smouldering behind his black contacts, wolf tattoos looking evil against his pale skin in the industrial light. Greetings, grease monkeys. His voice rumbles, low and predatory. You might be wondering why Ares has sent a pack of hardcore nasties like us to this tin shithole. The sons look to one another nervously. We aren't here to cuddle. We aren't here to inspire you or give long-ass speeches like the bloody damn sovereign. He snaps his fingers. Pebble and Clown wheel the carts forward and unlatch the tops. The hinges squeal open to reveal mining explosives. We're here to blow shit up. He throws open his arms and cackles. Any questions? Chapter 15 the hunt. I float in the back of the trash collector with the howlers. It's dark. The night vision of my optics shows the garbage that orbits us in shadowy green. Banana peels, toy packaging, coffee grounds. Victor makes a gagging sound over the calm as toilet paper sticks to her face. Her mask is a demon helm. Like mine, it's pupil black and shaped subtly like a screaming demon face. Fitchner managed to steal them from Luna's armory for the suns more than a year back. With them, we can see most spectrums, amplify sound, track one another's coordinates, access maps, and communicate silently. My friends around me are in all black. We wear no mechanized armor, only thin scarab skin over our bodies that will stop knives and occasional projectiles. We have no grav boots or pulse armor, nothing that will slow us, cause noise, or trip sensors. We wear oxygen tanks with air enough for forty minutes. I finish adjusting Ragnar's harness and look to my data pad. The two reds crewing the old trash collector are giving us a countdown. When it reaches one, Severo says, Tuck your sacks and pop your cloaks. I activate my ghost cloak, and the world warps, distorted by the cloak. It's like looking through refracted, dirty water. 
and I already feel the battery pack heating up against my tailbone. The cloak's good for short bursts, but it burns up small batteries like the ones we pack, and needs time to cool and recharge. I grope for Severo and Victor's hands, managing to grasp them in time. The rest partner up as well. I don't remember feeling so frightened before the iron rain. Was I braver then? Maybe just more naive. Hold tight. We're in for some chop, Severo says. Popping top in three, two... I tighten my grip on his hand. One. The collector's door retracts silently, bathing us in the amber light of a hollow display screen on a nearby skyscraper. There's a burst of air, and my world spins as the trash collector ejects its load of garbage from the back of its hold. We're like seed chaff, thrown into the city, spinning with debris through a kaleidoscope world of towers and advertisements. Hundreds of ships funneling along avenues, all a flashing liquid blur. We continue to spin head over heel to mask our signatures. Over the calm, I hear the grousing of a blue traffic controller, annoyed at the spilled trash. Soon there's a company copper on the line threatening to fire the incompetent drivers. But it's what I don't hear that makes me smile. The police channels drone on their usual slant, reporting a syndicate airjacking in the hive, a grisly murder in the ancient art museum near the park plaza, a data center robbery in the banking cluster. They haven't seen us amidst the debris. We slow our spin gradually, using small thrusters in our helmets. Bursts of air bring us to a steady drift. Silent in the vacuum. We're on target. Along with the rest of the trash, we're about to impact on the side of a steel tower. Has to be a clean landing. Victor curses as we drift closer, closer. My fingers tremble. Don't bounce. Don't bounce. Release! Several orders. I pull my hands from his and Victor's, and the three of us impact jarringly against the steel. The trash around us bounds off the metal, cartwheeling backward at odd angles. Severo and Victor stick, compliments of the magnets in their gloves, but a piece of debris impacting in front of me bounces off the steel and hits me in the thigh, altering my trajectory. Tipping me sideways, hands windmilling for a grip which causes me to spin. My feet hit first and I bounce backward towards space, cursing. Severo! I shout. Victor, get him! A hand grabs my foot, jerking me to a halt. I look down and see a warped, invisible form grasping my leg. Victor. Carefully, she pulls my weightless body back to the wall so I can clamp my own magnets onto the steel. Spots race across my vision. The city is all around us. It's dreadful in its silence, in its colors, in its inhuman metal landscape. It feels more like an ancient alien artifact than a place for humans. Slow it down, Victor's voice crackles in my helmet. Darrow, you're hyperventilating. Breathe with me. In, out. In. I force my lungs to breathe and sink with her. The spots soon fade. 
I open my eyes, face inches from the steel. You shit your suit or something? Severa asks. I'm good, I say. A little rusty. Ugh. Pun intended, I'm sure. Ragnar and the rest of the howlers land thirty meters beneath us on the wall. Pebble waves up to me. Got three hundred meters to go. Let's climb, you pixies. Lights glow behind the glass of Quicksilver's double helix towers. Connecting the double helixes are nearly two hundred levels of offices. I can make out shapes moving inside at computer terminals. I zoom in with my optics to watch the stock traders sitting in their offices, their assistants moving to and fro, analysts signaling furiously on holographic trading boards that communicate with the markets on Luna. Silvers all. They remind me of industrious bees. Makes me miss the boys, Victor says. Takes me a moment to realize she's not talking about the silvers. The last time she and I tried this tactic, Tactus and Roke were with us. We infiltrated Carnus's flagship from vacuum as he refueled at an asteroid base during the Academy's mock war. We cut through his hull with aims of kidnapping him to eliminate his team. But it was a trap, and I narrowly escaped with the help of my friends. A broken arm, my only reward for the gambit. It takes us five minutes to climb from our landing place to the peak of the tower, where it becomes a large crescent. We don't go hand over hand, so climbing isn't the true term. The magnets in our gloves are fluctuating positive and negative currents that allow us to roll up the side of the tower like we have wheels in our palms. The toughest part of the ascent, or descent, or whatever you'd call it in the null grav, is the crescent slope at the extreme height or end of the tower. We have to cling to a narrow metal support beam that extends out among a ceiling of glass, much like the stem of a leaf. Beneath our bellies and through the glass lies Quicksilver's famous museum, and above us, just over the peak of Quicksilver's tower, hangs Mars. My planet seems larger than space, larger than anything ever could be, a world of billions of souls, of designer oceans, mountains, and more irrigable acres of dry land than Earth ever had. It's night on this side of the world, and you could never know that millions of kilometers of tunnels wind through the bones of the planet, that even as its surface glows with the lights of the thousand cities of Mars, there is a pulse unseen, a tide that is rising. But now it looks peaceful. War, a distant, impossible thing. I wonder what a poet would say in this moment. What Roke would whisper into the air. Something about the calm before the storm. Or a heartbeat among the deep. But then there's a flash. It startles me. A spasm of light that flares white, then erodes into devilish neon as a mushroom grows in the planet's blackness. Do you see that? I ask over the comms, blinking away the cigar burn the distant detonation made in my vision. Our comms crackle with curses as the others turn to see. Shit, several murmurs. New Thebes? No, Pebble answers. Farther north, that's the Aventine Peninsula. 
so it's probably Cyprian. Last intel said the Red Legion was moving toward the city. Then comes another flash, and the seven of us hunker motionless on the crest of the building, watching as a second nuclear bomb detonates a thumb's distance away from the first. Bloody damn! Is it us or them? I ask. Severo? I don't know, Severo says impatiently. You don't know? Victor asks. How could he not know? I want to shout, but I grasp the answer because Dancer's words now haunt me. Severo's not running this war, he told me, weeks ago after another failed Howler mission. He's just a man pouring gas on the fire. Maybe I didn't understand how far gone this war is, how far reaching the chaos has become. Could I have been wrong to trust him so blindly? I watch his expressionless mask. The skin of his armor drinks in the colors of the city around, reflecting nothing. An abyss for light. He turns slowly from the explosion and begins to climb again, already moving on. Hollow News has it, Pebble says. Fast. They say Red Legion used nukes against gold forces near Cyprian. At least that's the story. Bloody damn liars, Clown snaps. Another bait and switch. Where would Red Legion get nukes? Victra asks. Harmony would use them, if she had any. But I wager it was gold using the bombs on Red Legion instead. Doesn't mean shit to us now. Lock it up. Severo says. Still got to do what we came to do. Get your asses in gear. Numbly, we obey. When we reach our entry zone on the crescent of the double helix tower, rehearsed routine takes over. I pull a small acid flask from the pack on Victor's back. Severo releases a nanocam, no larger than my fingernail, into the air, where it hovers above the glass, scanning for life inside the museum. There is none. Not a surprise at 0300. He pulls out a pulse generator and waits for Pebble to finish her work on the datapad. What's what, Pebble? He asks impatiently. Code's worked. I'm in the system, she says. Just have to find the right zone. There it is. Laser grid is... Down. Thermal cams are... Frozen... Heartbeat sensors are... off. Congratulations, everyone. We're officially ghosts, so long as no one manually pulls an alarm. Severo activates the pulse generator, and a faint iridescent bubble blooms around us, creating a seal, so that the vacuum of space doesn't invade the building with us. Would be a quick way to be discovered. I put a small suction cup on the center of the glass, then open the acid container and apply the foam to the window in a two-meter-by-two-meter two box around the suction cup. The acid bubbles as it eats through the glass, creating an opening. With a small rush of air from the building into our pulse field, the glass pane pops up where Victor grabs it to keep it from flying into space. Rags first, Severo says. It's a hundred meters to the museum floor below. Ragnar clamps a repelling winch to the edge of the glass and clips his harness to the magnetic wire. Pulling his razor out, he reactivates his ghost cloak and pushes through the hole. 
It's disturbing to the senses, seeing his near-invisible form accelerate down to the floor, gripped by the skyhook's artificial gravity, while I'm still floating. He looks a demon made of the heat that shimmers above the desert on a summer day. Clear. Severo follows. Break an arm, Victor says, pushing me into the hole after him. I float forward and feel myself gripped by gravity as I cross the boundary into the room. I slide down the wire, picking up speed. My stomach lurches at the sudden influx of weight, food sloshing around. I land hard on the ground, almost twisting my ankle as I pull up my silenced scorcher and search for contacts. The rest of the howlers stand behind me. We crouch back to back in the grand hall. The floor is grey marble. The length of the hall is impossible to gauge because it curves according to the crescent, bowing upward and out of sight, playing with gravity and giving me a sense of vertigo. Metal relics tower around us, old rockets from man's pioneer age. The coat of arms of the Lunar Company marks the hull of a grey probe near Ragnar. It looks decidedly like Octavia Aulun's house crest. So this is what it's like to feel fat, Severo says with a grunt, as he takes a small jump in the heavy gravity. Disgusting. Quicksilver's from Earth. Victor says, jacks it up even higher when he's negotiating with anyone from low-grav birthplaces. It's three times what I'm used to on Mars, eight times what they prefer on Io or Europa. But in rebuilding my body, Mickey jacked the simulators up to twice Earth's gravity. It's an unpleasant sensation, weighing nearly 800 pounds, but it works the muscles something horrible. We strip our oxygen tanks and stow them in the engine rim of an old space shuttle painted with the flag of pre-Empire America. So we're left with our small packs, scarab skin, demon helms, and weapons. Severo pulls up Victra's crude maps of the tower's interior and asks Pebble if she's found Quicksilver yet. I can't. It's odd. The cameras are off in the top two levels. Same with biometric readers. Can't pinpoint them like we planned. Off? I ask. Maybe he's having an orgy, or wanking off and doesn't want his security to see. Severo grunts with a shrug. Either way, he's hiding something, so that's where we're headed. I cue Severo's personal line so the others can't hear us. We can't wander around looking for him. If we're caught in the halls without leverage, we won't wander. He cuts me off before addressing the howlers. Cloaks on, ladies. Razors and silenced scorchers. Pulse fists only if shit gets dirty. He ripples transparent. Howlers on me. We slink from the museum into a maze of otherworldly hallways following Severo's lead. Floors of black marble, walls of glass. Ten-meter-high ceilings made from pulse fields, which look into aquariums where vibrant reefs of coral stretch like fungal tentacles. Reptilian mermaids, one foot long with humanoid faces, grey skin, and skulls shaped like crowns, swim through a kingdom of scalding blue and violent orange. Hateful little crow eyes glare down at us as they pass. 
The walls are mood glass and pulse with subtle alternating colors. Now heartbeats of magenta, soon rippling currents of cobalt silver. It's dreamlike. Amidst the maze are little alcoves, miniature art galleries showcasing works of contemporary dot holographs and 21st century A.D. ostentatiousism, instead of the reserved neoclassical Romanism so in vogue with peerless scarred. Recharging our battery packs to our ghost cloaks, we duck into a gallery where lurks a gaudy purple metallic dog shaped like a balloon animal. Victor sighs. Gory hell! Man's got the taste of a tabloid socialite. Ragnar cocks his head at the dog. What is it? Art, Victor says. Supposedly. The tone of condescension Victor strikes intrigues me, as does the building. It pulses with artifice. The art, the walls, the mermaids, all so on the nose of what the peerless scard would expect of a newly moneyed silver. Quicksilver must know gold psychology intimately in order to have been allowed to grow so wealthy. So I wonder, is this extravagance all something far more clever? A mask, so obvious and easy to accept that no one would ever think to look beneath it. Quicksilver, for all his reputation, has never been called stupid. So perhaps this tawdry dreamscape isn't for him. It's for his guests. Which makes me think something here is amiss as we reach an unlit atrium with unpolished sandstone floors perforated by pink jasmine trees and slink across the floor in a V formation towards the set of double doors that leads to Quicksilver's bedroom suite. Cloaks deactivated so we can see better. Razors rigid and held out, metal drifting centimeters above the sandstone. This isn't a home. It's a stage, made to manipulate, sinister in the cold calculation with which it was constructed. I don't like it. I key Severus' frequency again. Something's wrong here. Where are the servants? The guards? Maybe he likes his privacy. I think it's a trap. A trap? Your head or your gut talking? My gut. He's quiet for a breath, and I wonder if he's speaking to someone else on the other line. Maybe he's speaking to all of them. What's your wreck? Pull back. Assess the situation to see. Pull back! He snaps the question out. For all we know, they've just dropped nukes on our people. We need this! I try to interrupt, but he steamrolls me. Shit, I've run thirteen ops just to get intel on this silvery asshole. We leave now, that's all slagged. They'll know we were here. We won't have this chance again. Here's the key to getting the jackal. You gotta trust me, Reap. Do you? I bite back a curse and cut the signal short. Not sure if I'm angry with him or with myself, or because I know the jackal removed the spark that made me feel different. Every opinion I have feeble and malleable to others, because I know, deep down, beneath the intimidating scarab skin, Beneath the demon mask is a callow little boy who cried because he was scared of being alone in the dark. 
purple light suddenly floods the room as a luxury vessel cruises past the wall of windows at our backs. We hastily line up to either side of the door to Quicksilver's suite, preparing to breach. I watch the vessel drift along through my black optics. Lights pulse on one of its decks as several hundred pixies writhe to some Etrurian club beat that's all the rage on far-off Luna, as if a war didn't wage on the planet beneath this moon. As if we didn't move to rupture their way of life. They'll drink champagne from Earth in clothes made on Venus, in ships fueled by Mars, and they'll laugh and consume and screw and face no consequences. So many little locusts. I feel Severo's righteous wrath burn in me. Suffering isn't real to them. War isn't real. It's just a three-letter word for other people that they see in the digital news feeds. Just a stream of uncomfortable images they skip past. A whole business of weapons and arms and ships and hierarchies they don't even notice. All to shield these fools from the true agony of what it means to be human. Soon, they'll know. And on their deathbeds, they'll remember tonight. Who they were with, what they were doing when that three-letter word gripped them and never let go. This pleasure cruise, this hideous decadence is the last gasp of the golden age. And what a pathetic gasp it is. Of course I trust you, I say tightening my grip on my razor. Ragnar's watching us, even though he can't hear our signal. Victor's waiting to breach the door. The light fades, and the ship disappears into the cityscape. I'm surprised to realize I don't feel satisfaction in knowing what's about to happen, in knowing their age will fall. Neither does it bring joy to think of all the lights in all the cities across this empire of man dimming or all the ships slowing, or all the brilliant golds fading as their buildings rust and crumble. Would that I could hear Mustang's take on this plan. Before, I've missed her lips, her scent. But now I miss the comfort that comes knowing her mind is aligned with mine. When I was with her, I did not feel so alone. She'd probably chastise us for focusing on breaking rather than building. Why do I feel this way now? I'm surrounded by friends, striking at gold as I have always wished. Yet something itches in the back of my brain, like eyes watching me. Whatever Severo says, something is wrong here. Not just in this building, but with his plan. Is this how I would have done it? How Fitchner would have done it? If it succeeds, what do we usher in after the dust has settled and the helium no longer flows? A dark age. Severo is a force unto himself. His rage a thing to move mountains. I was once like that. And look what that got me. Kill his guards! Stun the pinks, smash, grab, and go, Severo is saying to his howlers. My hand tightens on my blade. He gives the signal, and Ragnar and Victor slip through the doors. The rest of us follow.
into the dark. Chapter 16 Paramore The lights are off. It's tomb silent. The front room empty. An electric green jellyfish floats in a tank on a table, casting weird shadows. We move through to the bedroom, smashing through the gold filigreed doors. I guard the door with pebble, crouching on a knee, silenced railgun cradled in my hands, sheathing my razor on my arm. Behind us, a man sleeps in a four-poster bed. Ragnar grabs him by the foot and jerks him out. Clad in expensive sleepwear, he sprawls onto the floor, waking midair and screaming silently into Ragnar's hand. Shit, it's not him, Victor says behind me. It's a pink. I glance back. Ragnar kneels over the pink, blocking him from my view. Severo hits the bedpost, cracking it. It's three in the morning. Where the hell is he? It is 4 p.m. market time on Luna, Victor says. Maybe he's in his office. Ask the slave. Where is your master? Severo's mask makes his voice warble like a steel cable struck by an iron rod. I keep my eyes trained on the living room until the pink swimper makes me look back. Severo's got his knee in the man's groin. Pretty pyjamas, boyo. Want to see what they look like in red? I flinch at the coldness in his voice, knowing the tone all too well, hearing it from the jackal as he tortured me in Attica. Where is your master? Severo twists his knee. The pink wails in pain but still refuses to answer. The howlers watch the torture in silence, bent, faceless stains in the dark room. There's no discussion, no moral question at play. I know they've done this before. I feel dirty in the realization, in hearing the pink sobbing on the ground. This is more a part of war than trumpets or starships. Quiet, unremembered moments of cruelty. I don't know, he says. I don't know. The voice. I remember that voice from my past. I rush from my post at the door and join Severo, pulling him off the pink, because I know the man and his gentle features. His long, angular nose, rose quartz eyes, and dark honey skin. He's as responsible for making me what I am as Mickey ever was. It's Matteo, beautiful and fragile, now gasping on the ground, arm broken, bleeding from his mouth, holding his groin where Severo beat him. The hell's your damage? Severo snarls at me. I know him, I say. What? Taking advantage of my distraction and seeing nothing but the black demon visages of our helms, Matteo lunges for a data pad sitting on the bedstand. Severo's faster. With a meaty thud, the hardest bone density in the species of man meets the softest. Severo's fist shatters Matteo's fragile jaw. He gags and falls convulsing to the floor, eyes rolling back into his head. I watch in a haze the violence seeming unreal and yet so cold and primitive and easy. Just muscle and bone moving the way it shouldn't. 
I find myself reaching for Matteo, falling over his twitching body, shoving Severo back. Don't touch him! Matteo's been knocked unconscious, mercifully. I can't tell if he has spinal damage or brain trauma. I touch the gentle curls of his now dusky hair. It has a blue sheen to it. His hands clutched tight like a child's, a slender silver band on his ring finger. Where has he been this whole time? Why is he here? I know him, I whisper. Ragnar's bending beside him protectively, though there's nothing we can do here for Matteo. Clown tosses the datapad to Severo. Panic switch. What do you mean you know him? Severo asks. He's a son of Ares, I say in a daze. Or he was. He was one of my teachers before the Institute. He taught me Orient culture. Gory hell, Screwface mutters. Victor toes his wrist where little flowers embellish his pink sigils. He's a rose of the garden, like Theodora. She glances to Ragnar. He cost as much as you, Stained. You're sure it's the same man? Severo asks me. Of course I'm bloody damn sure. His name is Matteo. Then why is he here? Ragnar asks. Doesn't look like a captive, Victor says. Those are expensive pajamas. He's probably a paramour. Quicksilver's not known for celibacy after all. He must have turned, Severo says harshly. Or he was on assignment for your father, I say. Then why didn't he contact us? He's defected. Means Quicksilver has infiltrated the suns. Severo spins to look at the door. Shit. He could know about Tinos. He could know about this bloody damn raid. My mind races. Did Ares send Matteo here, or did Matteo leave a sinking ship? Maybe Matteo told them about me before Harmony did. It's a knife in the gut thinking that. I didn't know him long, but I cared for him. He was a kind person. And there's so few of those left. Now look what we've done to him. We should get the hell out of here. Clan is saying. Not without Quicksilver, several replies. We don't know where Quicksilver is, I say. There's more to this. We have to wait for Matteo to wake up. Someone have a stim shot. Dose would kill him, Victor says. Pink circulatory system can't handle military crank. We don't have time for talking, several barks. Can't risk being pinned in here. We move now. I try to speak, but he rolls on, looking to Clown, who is using Matteo's datapad. Clown, what do you got? I've got a food request on the internal server's kitchen subsection. Looks like someone has ordered a whole host of mutton and jam sandwiches and coffee to room C-19. Reaper, what do you think? Ragnar asks. It could be a trap, I say. We need to adjust. Victra laughs scornfully, cutting me off. Even if it is a trap, look who we're packing. We'll punch through that shit. Bloody damn right, Julii. Severo moves toward the door. Screwface, bring the pink and stow him. Fangs out. Ragnar, Victra in front. Blood's coming. 
One level down, we meet our first security team. Half a dozen lurchers stand in front of a large glass door that ripples like the surface of a pond. They wear black suits instead of military armor. Implants in the shape of silver heels stick out from the skin behind their left ears. There's more patrolling this level, but no servants. Several greys in similar suits took a coffee cart into the room a few minutes earlier. Strange that they wouldn't use pinks or browns for delivering coffee. Security is tight, so whoever is in Quicksilver's office must be important, or at least very paranoid. We're flowing quick, Severo says, leaning back around the hallway corner where we wait thirty meters from the group of greys. Neutralize those shitheads, then breach fast-like. We don't know who's in there, Clown says. And there's only one way to find out, Several barks. Go! Ragnar and Victor go first around the corner, ghost cloaks bending the light. The rest of us follow at a dead sprint. One of the greys squints down the hall at us. The implanted thermal optics in his irises throb red as they activate and see the heat radiating from our battery packs. Ghost cloaks, he shouts. Six sets of practiced hands flow to scorchers. Far too late. Ragnar and Victra tear into them. Ragnar swings his razor, cutting off one's arm and severing the jugular of another. Blood sprays over the glass walls. Victra fires her silenced scorcher. Magnetically hurled slugs slam into two heads. I slide forward between falling bodies, stick my razor through a man's ribcage, feeling the pop and give of his heart. I retract my blade into whip form to free it. Let it stiffen again back to my sling blade before the man drops. The greys haven't managed to fire a single shot, but one has pressed a button on his datapad, and the deep throbbing sound of the tower's alarm echoes down the hall. The walls pulse red, signaling an emergency. Severo cuts the last man down. Breach the room, now, he shouts. Something's wrong. I feel it in my gut, but Victor and Severo are propelling this forward, and Ragnar's kicking in the door. Ever a slave to momentum, I plunge in after him. Quicksilver's conference room is less flamboyant than the rooms above. Its ceiling is ten meters high. Its walls are of digital glass that swirls subtly with silver smoke. Two rows of marble pillars run parallel on either side of a giant onyx conference table with a dead white tree rising from its center. At the far end of the room, a huge viewing window looks out at the industry of the hive. Regulus Ag Sun, hailed from Mercury to Pluto as Quicksilver, richest man under the sun, stands before the window mauling a glass of red wine with a fleshy hand. He's bald, forehead wrinkled as a washboard, pugilist lips, hunched simian shoulders leading to butcher fingers that sprout from the sleeves of a high-collared Venusian turquoise robe embroidered with apple trees. He's in his sixties, skin bronzed with a marrow-deep tan, a small goatee and moustache, accent his face in a vain attempt to give it shape, though it seems he's stayed away from carvers for the most part. 
his feet are bare. But it's his three eyes that demand attention. Two are heavy-lidded and silver, an earthy, efficient shade. The third is gold, and implanted in a simple silver ring the man wears on the middle finger of his fat right hand. We've interrupted his meeting. Nearly thirty coppers and silvers pack the room. They're formed into two parties and sit across from one another at a giant's onyx table littered with coffee cups, wine carafes, and data pads. A blue hollow document floats in the air between the two factions, obviously the object of their attention, until the door shattered inward. Now they push back from the table, most too stunned yet to feel fear, or to even see us as the howlers enter the room in ghost cloaks. But it isn't just coppers and silvers at the table. Oh, shit! Victor sputters. Among the professional colors rise six golden knights in full pulse armor. And I know them all. On the left, a dark-faced older man wearing the pure black armor of the Death Knight. On either side of him are pudgy-faced Moira, a fury, sister of Aja, and good old Cassius Albalona. To the right are Cavax Altelemanus, Daxo Altelemanus, and the girl who left me on my knees in the old mining tunnels of Mars nearly one year ago. Mustang. Chapter 17 Killing Golds Hold your fire! I shout, pushing down Victor's weapon, but Severo's barking orders, and Victor brings her weapon back up. We form a staggered line with our pulse fists and scorchers aimed at the golds. We hold fire because we need Quicksilver alive, and I know Severo's as stunned as I to see Mustang Cassius and the Telemannuses here. On the ground or we waste you! Severo screams, voice inhuman and magnified by his demon helm. The howlers join him, filling the air with a harpy's chorus of commands. My blood pumps cold. The alarm throbs around the roaring voices. Not knowing what to do, I point my pulse fist at the most dangerous gold in the room, Cassius, knowing what must be going through Severo's mind as he sees his father's killer in the flesh. My helmet sinks with the weapon to illuminate weak points in his armor, but my eyes drink in Mustang as she sets down a cup of coffee, graceful as ever, and steps back from the table the pulse fist implanted in the left gauntlet of her armor slowly beginning to blossom open. My mind and heart war against each other. What the hell is she doing here? She's supposed to be in the rim. Like her, the other gulls aren't listening to us. They don't know who we are past our helmets. No wolf cloaks today. They step back, eyes wary, judging the situation. Cassius's razor slithers on his right arm. Cavax slowly lifts himself from his chair along with Daxo. Quicksilver waves his hands frantically. Stop! he shouts, voice nearly lost in the chaos. Do not fire! This is a diplomatic meeting! Identify yourselves! We've stumbled into the middle of some negotiation, I realize. A surrender of Mustang's forces. An alliance. 
Noticeably absent is the jackal. Is Quicksilver betraying him? He must be. So must the Sovereign. That's why this place is so deserted. No servants, minimum security. Quicksilver wanted only men he trusted at this meeting, held so close under his ally's nose. My stomach lurches as I realize the rest of the room must think we're bone riders, which means they think we're here to kill them, and this is only going to end one way. On the bloody damn ground! Victor bellows. What do we do? Pebble asks over the comm. Reaper? I claim the Bologna, Severo says. Use stun weapons, I say. It's Mustang. Won't do shit against that armor, Severo interrupts. If they lift their weapons, kill the pricks. Full pulse charges. I'm not risking any of our family. Severo, listen to me. We need to talk. My words cut short because he uses the master command built into his helmet to jam my comm output signal. I can hear them, but they can't hear me. I curse futilely at him. Bologna, stop moving! Clown shouts, I said stop! Opposite Mustang, Cassius silently drifts through the silvers, using them as cover to close the gap between us. He's only ten meters away, getting closer. I sense Victra tensing beside me, hungry to be let loose on one of the men who she blames for her mother's death. But there's civilians between us and the golds, and Quicksilver's a prize we can't afford to lose. My eyes judge the plump cheeks of the silvers and coppers. Not a soul here is oppressed. Not a belly here has ever been hungry. These are collaborators. Severo would scalp them one by one if given a rusty knife in a few idle hours. Reaper, Ragnar says quietly, looking to me for instruction. Take your hand away from the razor! Victor shouts at Cassius. He stays quiet, coming forward certain as a glacier. Moira and the Death Knight follow after him. Kavax's helmet is slithering up to cover his head. Mustang's face is already covered, her pulse fist active and pointed at the ground. I know death well enough to hear it gather its breath. I activate my external speakers. Kavax! Mustang, stop! It's me! It's... Stop moving, you piece of shit! Victress snarls. Cassius smiles pleasantly as he lunges forward. Ragnar makes a weird twisting movement to my left, and one of the two razors he carries flies through the air and skewers the Death Knight through his forehead. The silvers gape at the famous Olympic knight, teetering to the ground. Kavax au telemanus! Kavax roars and rushes forward with Daxo. Mustang breaks sideways. Moira charges, lifting her pulse fist. Waste em, Severo says with a snarl. The room erupts, air torn to shreds by superheated particles as the howlers open fire at point-blank range into the crowded room. Marble turns to dust, chairs melt into gnarled chunks of metal and kick across the floor. Meat and bone explode, filling the air with red mist as silvers and coppers are caught in the crossfire. Severo misses Cassius, who dives behind a pillar. Kavax is shot a dozen times, but he doesn't falter even as his shields overheat. He's going to smash into Severo and Victra with his razor when Ragnar charges from the side and hits the smaller man so hard with his shoulder that Kavax is lifted clean off his feet. 
Daxo attacks Ragnar from behind, and three giants tumble to the side of the room, crushing two scrabbling coppers, half their size as they go. The coppers scream on the ground, legs shattered. Behind Kavok's, Mustang takes two shots to the chest, her pulse shield holds. She stumbles, fires back at us, hitting Pebble in her thigh. Pebble's lifted backward and flipped into the wall, legs shattered from the blast. She screams and clutches at it. Clown and Victor cover her, firing back at Mustang, dragging Pebble behind a pillar. Screwface and four other howlers, who guarded the door and kept Mateo outside, now fire into the room from the hallway. I stumble sideways, lost in the chaos, as the marble where I stood shatters. Silvers scramble under the table. Others kick away from their chairs, racing for the imagined safety of the columns on the fringes of the room. Hypersonic pulse fire rips between them, over their heads, through them, buckling the columns. Quicksilver runs behind two coppers, using them as human shields, when shrapnel rips into them, and they all tumble down in a mess of limbs and blood. Moira, the Fury, rushes Severo to impale my friend from behind with her razor as he tries to move past Ragnar, who's fighting both Telemannus to get at Cassius. I fire my pulse fist point-blank into her side just before she reaches him. Her armor's pulse shield absorbs the first few rounds, rippling blue in a cocoon around her. She stumbles sideways, and if I did not continue to fire, she'd have nothing but a bruise in the morning but my middle finger is heavy on the trigger of the weapon. She's an engineer of oppression and one of the best mines of gold. And she tried to kill Severo. Bad play. I fire till her shields buckle inward, till she falls to a knee, till she twitches and screams as the molecules of her skin and organs superheat. Boiling blood comes out her eyes and nose. Armor and flesh fuse together, and I feel the rage ride wild inside me, numbing me to fear, to sense, to compassion. This is the reaper who laid Cassius low, who slew Carnus, who gold cannot kill. Moira's pulse fist fires wildly as the tendons of her fingers contract in the heat, shooting into the ceiling on full automatic, twitching sideways, whipping a stream of death across the room. Two silvers, running for cover, explode. The glass of the viewport at the far end of the room, which looks out onto the space city, cracks perilously. Howlers scramble for cover till the pulse fist glows molten on Moira's left hand and the barrel overheats to melt inward with a corrupt fizzle. With that last gasp of rage, the wisest of the sovereign's three furies lies in a charred husk. My only wish is that it could have been Aja. I turn back to the room, feeling the cool hand of wrath guiding me, hungering for more blood. But all those that are left are my friends, or once were. I shudder with hollowness as the rage leaves me as fast as it came, replaced by panic as I watch my friends try to kill one another. The ordered lines have broken down into a high-tech brawl, feet sliding on glass, shoulder blades slamming into walls. Pulse-fist battles between pillars, hands and knees scrambling against the floor as pulse-fists wail and blades clamor and hack. And it's only now, only with this terrifying clarity, that I realize that there is only one common thread that binds them.
It's not an idea. It's not my wife's dream. Not trust, or alliances, or color. It's me. And without me, this is what they will do. Without me, this is what Severo has been doing. What an inevitable waste it seems. Death begets death begets death. I have to stop it. At the center of the room, Cassius stumbles after Victor through twisted chairs and shattered glass. Blood slicks the floor beneath them. Her damaged ghost cloak sparks on and off, and she flashes between ghost and shadow like an undecided demon. Cassius cuts her again across the thigh and spins as Clown shoots at him, cutting Clown across the side of his head before bending back to dodge a shot from Pebble on the ground across the room. Victra rolls under the table to escape Cassius, slicing at his ankles. He jumps onto the table, firing his pulse fist into the onyx till it caves in the center, trapping her beneath. He's inches from killing her when Severo shoots him from behind, the blast absorbed by Cassius's shield, but one that knocks him several meters to the side. To the right, Ragnar, Daxo, and Kavax fight a duel of titans. Ragnar pins Kavax's arm to the wall with his razor, leaves the weapon, ducks, fires his pulse fist into Daxo at point-blank range. Daxo's shields absorb the blast, and his razor misses Ragnar and takes out a chunk of the wall instead. Ragnar hits Daxo in his joints and is about to snap his neck when Kavak skewers him through the shoulder with a razor, screaming his family name. I rush to help my stained friend, but as I do, I feel someone to my left. I turn just in time to see Mustang flying through the air at me, her helmet covering her face, her razor arching down to cut me in two. I bring my own razor up just in time. Blades slam together. Vibrations rattle down my arm. I'm slower than I remember. Much of my muscle instinct lost to the darkness despite Mickey's lab and my training bouts with Victra. Plus, Mustang's gotten faster. I'm pressed back. I try to flow around Mustang, but she moves her razor like she's been at war for the last year. I try to slip to the side, like Lorne taught me, but there's no escape. She's smart, using the rubble, the pillars, to corner me. I'm being hemmed in, corralled by the flashing metal. My defense doesn't cave, but it erodes along the edges as I protect my core. The blade parts an inch deep gash through my left shoulder, stings like a pit viper bite. I curse, and she slices through more flesh. I'd shout at her to stop, shout my name, something, if I had even half a second to breathe, but it's all I can do to keep my arms moving. I bend back just in time as she cuts a shallow gash through the neck of my scarab skin. Three quick cuts at the tendons of my right arm follow, just missing, building a rhythm. My back's touching the wall. Cut, cut, stab. Fire opening up my skin. I'm going to die here. I call for help over my comm, but they're still jammed by several. We've bitten off more than we can chew. I scream in futility as Mustang's blade scrapes through three of my ribs. She spins the blade in her hand, swings backhanded to cut my head off. I manage to deflect the razor into the wall with mine, pinning it above my head so her helmet is near my mask. I headbutt her, but her helmet's stronger than the composite duroplastic of my mask. 
she reels back her own head and slams it into mine, using my own tactic. A seam of pain splinters down my skull. I nearly black out. Vision rushing out, in. Still standing. Feel part of my mask crack off and slide off my face. Nose broken again. Seeing spots. The rest of the mask crumbles, and I stare at the death-eyed horse helmet of Mustang as she prepares to end me. Her razor arm draws back to deliver the killing stroke. And it stays there, above her head, trembling as she looks at my exposed face. Her helmet slithers away to reveal her own. Sweat-soaked hair clings to her forehead, darkening the golden luster. Beneath, her eyes are wild, and I wish I could say it's love or joy I see in them. But it's not. If anything, it's fear. Maybe horror that draws the blood from her face as she stumbles back, gesturing speechlessly with her offhand. Darrow? She looks over her shoulder to see the mayhem that still grips the room. Our quiet moment, a little bubble in the storm. Cassius flees, disappearing through a side door, leaving the corpse of the Death Knight and Moira behind. Our eyes meet before he disappears. Victor gives chase until Severo reels her back in. The rest of the howlers are turning toward Mustang. I take a step toward her and stop when the tip of her razor pricks my collarbone. I saw you die. She backs away toward the main door, boots sliding over the marble, crunching on bits of glass from the walls. Kavax! Daxo! She calls, a vein in her neck bulging from strain. Pull back! The Telemannuses scrambled to separate themselves from Ragnar, confused at who the masked man they are fighting is, and why they're bleeding in so many places. They try to regroup on Mustang, both men rushing for her in a hasty retreat, but as they pass me to join her near the door, I know I can't just watch her go, so I whip my razor around Kavax's neck. He gags and reels against me, but I hold on. With the press of a button, I could retract my whip and sever his head. But I've no interest in killing the man. He falls only when Ragnar sweeps his leg and puts a knee into his chest, slamming to the floor. Screwface and the others are on him, pinning him down. Don't kill him! I shout. Screwface knew Pax. He's met the Telemannuses, so he holds his blade and snaps at the newer howlers to do the same. Daxo tries to rush to his father's aid, but Ragnar and I bar his way. His bright eyes stare in confusion at my face. Go, Virginia! Kavax roars from the ground. Flee! I have the Pax. Orion is alive, Mustang says eyeing the bloody howlers who are at my back, coming for her and Daxo. Don't kill him. Please. And then, with a sorrowful look to Kavax, she flees the room. Chapter 18 Abyss What did she mean, Orion's alive? I ask Kavax. He's as shell-shocked as I am, nervously eyeing the black-clad howlers prowling through the room. We didn't lose one, but were in shit shape. Kavax! What she said. 
he rumbles. Exactly what she said. The Pax is safe. Darrow! Severo shouts as he re-enters the room with Victra. They pursued Cassius through the blackened door on the far side of the room, but return empty-handed and limping. On me! There's more I want to ask, Cavax, but Victra's wounded. I rush to her as she leans against the shattered onyx table, hunched over a deep gash in her biceps. Her mask's off, face twisted and sweating, as she injects herself with painkillers and blood coagulant to stem the flow from the wound. I see the hint of bone through the blood. Victra, shit, she says with a dark laugh. Your boyfriend is faster than he used to be. Almost got him in the hall, but I think Aja taught him a little of your willow way. Look like, I say. You prime. Don't worry about me, darling. She gives me a wink as Severo calls my name again. He and Clown are bent over Moira's smoking remains. The terrorist lord is unfazed by the carnage around us. One of the furies, Clown says. Roasted. Good cooking, Reap. Severo draws. Crispy on the edges, bloody down the middle. Just how I like. Aja's gonna be pissed. You cut my comms. I interrupt angrily. You were acting a bitch, confusing my men. Acting a bitch? The hell is wrong with you? I was using my head instead of just shooting everything. We could have done without murdering half the damn room. His eyes are darker and crueler than those of the friend I remember. This is war, boyo. Murder's the name of the game. Don't be sad we're good at it. That was Mustang, I say, stepping close to him. What if we killed her? He shrugs. I poke his chest. Did you know she would be here? Tell me the truth. Nah, he says slowly. Didn't know. Now back up, boyo. He looks up at me impudently, like he wouldn't mind taking a swing. I don't back up. What was she doing here? How the hell would I know? He looks past me to Ragnar, who is pushing Kavax back toward the Howlers, gathering in the center of the room. Everyone prepare to squab out. We're going to have to cut through an army to get out of this shit den. Evac point is ten floors up on the black side. Where's our prize? Victor asks, eyeing the carnage. Bodies litter the ground. Silvers shivering in pain, coppers crawling across the floor, dragging broken legs. Probably fried, I say. Prolly, Clan agrees, casting me a commiserating look as we move from Severo to pick through the bodies. It's a slagging mess. Did you know Mustang would be here? I ask. Not at all. Seriously, boss. He glances back at Severo. What did you mean he jammed your comms? Stop jawing and find the bloody damn silver, Severo barks from the center of the room. Somebody grab the pink from the hall. Clan finds Quicksilver at the opposite end of the room, farthest from the hallway door, to the right of the grand viewport that looks down onto Phobos. He's lying motionless, pinned under a pillar that broke from its place in the floor to fall sideways against the wall. The blood of others covers his turquoise tunic, Bits of glass jut from wounded knuckles. I feel his pulse. He's alive. 
so the mission wasn't a damn waste, but there's a contusion on his forehead from shrapnel. I call Ragnar and Victor, the two strongest of our party, to help pry the pillar off the man. Ragnar wedges the razor he threw into the knight's head under the pillar, using a rock as a fulcrum, and is about to heave upward with me when Victor calls for us to wait. Look, she says. Where the pillar's top meets the wall, there's a faint blue glow along the seam that runs from the floor up the wall to form a rectangle in the wall. It's a hidden door. Quicksilver must have been rushing toward it when the pillar fell. Victor puts her ear against the door, and her eyes narrow. Pulse torches, she says. Oh-ho, she laughs. Silver's bodyguards are through there. Must have hid them in case things got tense. They're speaking Nagal, the language of the obsidians, and they're cutting their way through the wall. We'd be dead if the pillar hadn't fallen and blocked the door. Pure luck saved our hides. All three of us know it, and it deepens the anger I have with several and calms a bit of the wildness in Victor's eyes. Suddenly she's seeing how reckless this was. He never should have rushed into this place without its blueprints. Severo did what I would have done a year ago. Same result. The three of us share a common thought, glancing at the main door of the room. We don't have long. Ragnar and Victor help me pry Quicksilver free. The unconscious man's legs drag behind him, broken, as Victor carries him back to the center of the room. There, Severo is readying Clown and Pebble to push out from the room with our prisoners, Matteo and Kavax, who stares at me open-mouthed. But Pebble can't even stand. We're all in shit shape. We've too many prisoners, I say. We won't be able to move fast, and we don't have any EMPs this time. Not that they do anyone any good on a space station when all that separates us from space is inch-thin bulkheads and air recyclers. Then we trim the fat, Severo says, stalking toward Kavax, who sits wounded and bound with his hands behind his back. He points his pulse fist into Kavax's face. Nothing personal, big man. Severo pulls the trigger. I shove him sideways. The pulse blast misses Kavax's head and slams into the ground near the slumped form of Matteo, nearly taking off the man's leg. Severo wheels on me, pulse fist pointing at my head. Get that out of my face. I say down the barrel, heat radiating into my eyes, causing them to sting so I have to look away. Who do you think that is? Severo snarls. Your friend? He's not your friend. We need him alive. He's a chip to barter. And Orion might be alive. Chip to barter. Severo snorts. What about Moira? Had no problem frying her, but you spare him. Severo squints at me, lowering his weapon. His lips curl back from his janky teeth. Oh, it's for Mustang. Of course it is. He's Pax's father, I say. And Pax is dead. Why? Because you let enemies live. This isn't the Institute, Boyo. This is war. He jams a finger in my face. 
and war is really bloody damn simple. Kill the enemy when you can, however you can, as fast as you can, or they kill you and yours. Severo turns from me, realising now that the others are watching us with growing trepidation. You're wrong about this, I say. We can't drag them with us. Halls are swarming, boss, Screwface says, returning from the main hall. More than a hundred security personnel were slagged. We can cut through them if we go light, Severo says. A hundred, Clown says. Boss, check your juice packs, Severo says, squinting at his pulse fist. No, I'll not let Severo's short-sightedness ruin us. Slag that, I say. Pebble, hail holiday. Tell her Evac is squabbed. Give her our coordinates. She's to park one kilometre beyond the glass. Ass end our way. Pebble doesn't reach for her data pad. She glances at Severo, torn between us, not knowing who to follow. I'm back, I say. Now do it. Do it, Pebble, Ragnar says. Victor gives a small nod. Pebble grimaces at Severo. Sorry, Severo. She nods to me and opens up her com to hail Holiday. The rest of the howlers look to me, and it hurts knowing I've made them choose like this. Clown, grab Mora's data pad, if it isn't fried, and get the data from the console if you can. I want to know what contract we were negotiating, I say quickly. Screwface, take Sleepy and cover the hall. Ragnar, Kavax is yours. He tries to flee, cut his feet off. Victor, you got any repelling line left? She checks her belt and nods. Start tying us together. Everyone in the centre of the room has to be tight. I turn to Severo. Lay charges at the door. Company's coming. He says nothing. It's not anger behind his eyes. It's the secret seeds of self-doubt and fear coming to blossom. Hate seeping into his eyes. I know the look. I felt it on my own face too many times to count. I'm ripping away the only thing he's ever cared about. His howlers. After all he's done, I make them choose me over him. When he doesn't trust, I'm ready. It's an indictment of his leadership, a validation of the intense self-doubt I know he must feel in the wake of his father's passing. It shouldn't have been that way. I said I'd follow, and I didn't. That's on me but this isn't the time for coddling. I've tried words with him, tried using our friendship to make him see reason, but since I've been back, I've seen him respond to things only with violence and force. So now I'll speak his bloody damn language. I step forward. Unless you want to die here, sack up and get moving. His wrinkled little face hardens as he watches his howlers run to do my bidding. You get them killed. I'll never forgive you. Makes two of us. Now go. He turns away, running toward the door to plant the remaining explosives from his belt. I remain looking around the broken room, finally seeing organization in the chaos as my friends work together. They'll all have deduced my plan by now. They know how manic it is, but the confidence with which they work breathes life into me. They put trust in me that Severo wouldn't. Still, I catch Ragnar glancing at the viewport three times now, 
All our suits are compromised. Not one of us will be able to stay pressurized in vacuum. I don't even have a mask. Whether we live or die is up to holiday. I wish there was some way I could control the variables, but if the time in darkness taught me anything, it's that the world is larger than my grasp. Have to trust others. Jammers on everyone, I say, toggling my own on my belt. Don't want the cameras outside spotting anyone's exposed faces. Holiday's in position, Pebble says. I glance out the window to see the transport hovering a click beyond the window, hardly larger than a pen tip at this distance. On my mark, we're going to fire at the centre of the viewport, I tell my friends, making an effort to keep the fear from my voice. Screwface, sleepy, get back here. Put your masks on the unconscious prisoners. Oh, gory hell, Victor mutters. I was hoping you had a better plan than that. If you try to hold your breath, your lungs will explode, so exhale as soon as the viewport shatters. Let yourself pass out. Have sweet dreams and pray for Holiday to be as quick on the stick as Clown is in the bedroom. They laugh and cluster tight, letting Victor wind her repelling line through our munitions belts so we're together like grapes on a vine. Severo's finishing laying the explosives at the door. Sleepy and Screwface join us, waving at him to hurry. Attention! A voice booms from hidden speakers in the walls as Victor leans close to me to link me with Ragnar. This is Alec T. Yamato, head of security for Sun Industries. You are surrounded. Discard your weapons. Release your hostages, or we will be forced to fire on you. You have five seconds to comply. There's no one in the room but us. The main doors are closed. Severo runs back to us from laying the charges. Severo, fast-like, I shout. He's not halfway to us when he crumples to the ground like an empty can crushed by a boot. I'm slammed down to the floor by the same force, knees buckling, bones, lungs, throat, all stomped down by massive gravity. My vision swims, blood moving sluggishly to my head. I try to lift my arm. It weighs more than three hundred pounds. Security has increased the artificial gravity in the room, and only Ragnar's not on his belly. He's fallen to a knee, shoulders hunched and straining like Atlas holding up the world. The hell is that? Victor manages, on the floor, looking past me to the door. It's opened, and through it comes not a grey or an obsidian or gold but a giant black egg the size of a small man, rolling sideways, its smooth and glossy, and small white numbers mark its side. A robot, as illegal as EMPs. Augustus's great fear. Like reaching out of an oil spill, the metal morphs at the point of the egg to reveal a small cannon, which aims at several. I try to rise, Try to aim my pulse fist, but the gravity is too much. I can't even lift my arm to point the weapon. For all her strength, Victra can't either. Severo's grunting on the floor, crawling away from the machine. The viewport, I manage. Ragnar, fire at the viewport. 
His pulse fist is at his side. Straining, he begins to lift it against the massive gravity, arm shaking, throat gargling that eerie war chant that sounds like a distant avalanche. The sound rises, another worldly bellow, till his whole body convulses with effort and his arm draws level, and the smallest of stars is born in his palm as the grav fist gathers its trembling molten charge. The entirety of my friend shudders, and his fingers release the trigger. His arm wrenches back. The pulse fire leaps forward to scream into the center of the glass pane. The many stars ripple as the pane bends outward, and cracks shoot down the window. Kadir Nyarlaga, Ragnar bellows, and the glass shatters. Space drinks the air of the room. Everything slides. A copper flips past us, screaming. She goes silent when she hits vacuum. Others who cowered during our brawl cling to the broken table in the center of the room. They wrap themselves around pillars, fingers bleeding, nails cracking, legs flailing. Grips giving out. Corpses flip end over end out into space as the abyss hungers for everything the building has. Severos ripped into the air, away from the robot, lighter than our combined group. I reach for him and grab his short mohawk till Victra wraps her legs around him and pulls him to our body. I'm terrified as we slide toward the broken viewport, hands shaking, doubting my decision as I now stare it in the face. Severo was right. We should have pushed into the building, killed Kavax or used him as a shield. Anything but the cold, anything but the jackal's darkness from which I only just escaped. It's just fear, I tell myself. It's just fear making me panic, and it's spread through my friends. I see the horror on their faces, how they look back at me and see that fear reflected in my own. I cannot be afraid. I spent too long being afraid, too long being diminished by loss, too long being everything except what I need to be. And whether I am the reaper or whether it's just another mask, it's one I must wear, not just for them, but for myself. Omnis vir lupus, I shout, kicking my head back to howl, exhaling all the air in my lungs. Beside me, Ragnar's eyes widen in wild ecstasy. He opens his massive mouth and bellows out a howl to make his ancestors hear him from their icy crypts. Then Pebble joins, and Clown, and even Regal Victra. It's rage and fear leaving our bodies, though space drags us across the floor to its embrace, though death might come for us. I am home in this weird, screaming mass of humanity. And as we pretend to be brave, we become so. All except Severo, who remains silent as we fly into space. Chapter 19 Pressure We rip through the broken viewport into vacuum at 80 kilometers an hour. Silence swallows our howling. A shock hits my body, like a fallen into cold water. My body twitches. The oxygen expands in my blood, forcing my mouth to hiccup for air that isn't there. Lungs don't inflate. They're collapsed, fibrous sacs. 
My body jerks, desperate for oxygen. But as the seconds tick by, and I see the inhuman metal of Phobos's skyscrapers, and watch my friends linked together in the darkness, held together by hands and bits of wire, a stillness settles over me. The same stillness that came in the snows with Mustang, that came when the howlers and I hunkered tight in the gulches of the Institute to roast goat meat and listen to Quinn tell her stories. I sink slowly into another memory, not of Lycos or Eo or Mustang, but of the cold academy hangar bay where Victor, Tactus, Roke and I first learned from a pale blue professor what space does to a man's body. Ebulism, or the formation of bubbles in body fluids due to reduced ambient pressure, is the most severe component of vacuum exposure. Water in the tissues of your body will vaporize, causing gross swelling. My darling airhead, I'm well accustomed to gross swelling. Just ask your mother, and your father, and your sister. I hear Tactus say in the memory, and I remember Rogue's laugh. How his cheeks blushed at the crudeness of the joke, which makes me wonder why he stood so close to Tactus, why he cared so much about our bawdy friend's drug use, and then wept by Tactus's bedside when he lay dead. The teacher continues, And multiplicative increase in body volume in ten seconds, followed by circulatory failure. I feel sleepy, even as pressure builds in my eyes, warping my vision and distending the tissue there. Pressure builds in my freezing fingers and aching, popped eardrums. My tongue is huge and cold, like an ice serpent slithering through my mouth into my belly as liquid evaporates. Skin stretches, inflating. My fingers are plantains. Gas in my stomach ballooning my gut, darkness coming to claim me. I glimpse several beside me. His face is freakish, swollen to twice its normal size. Legs still wrapped around him, Victra looks like a monster. She's awake and staring at him with cartoonish bloodshot eyes, hiccuping for oxygen like a fish out of water. Their hands tighten around each other's. Water and dissolved gas in the blood forms bubbles in your major veins, which travel throughout the circulatory system, obstructing blood flow and delivering unconsciousness in fifteen seconds. My body fades, seconds becoming an eternal twilight. Everything slowed, everything so pointless and poignant, as I see how ridiculous our human strength is in the end. Take us from our bubbles of life, and what are we? The metal towers around us look carved of ice. The lights and flashing HC screens, like the scales of dragons frozen inside them. Mars is over our heads, consuming and omnipotent. But in Phobos's fast rotation, we're already nearing a place on the planet where dawn comes, and light carves a crescent into the darkness. Molten wounds still glow where two nuclear bombs detonated. And I wonder, in my last moments, if the planet does not mind that we wound her surface or pillage her bounty, 
because she knows we silly, warm things are not even a breath in her cosmic life. We have grown and spread and will rage and die, and when all that remains of us is our steel monuments and plastic idols, her winds will whisper, her sands will shift, and she will spin, and on and on, forgetting about the bold, hairless apes who thought they deserved immortality. I'm blind, awake on metal, feel plastic against my face, gasping around me, bodies moving, the coldness of a shuttle engine rumbling under the deck. My body seizes and shivers. I suck down the oxygen. It feels like my head is caved in. The pain is everywhere and fading with each pulse of my heart. My fingers are the normal size. I rub them together, trying to orient myself. I'm shivering, but there's a thermal blanket on me, unsentimental hands rubbing me to promote circulation. To my left, I hear Pebble calling for Clown. We're all blind for several minutes as our optic nerves recalibrate. He answers her groggily, and she nearly breaks down crying. Victra! Severo slurring. Wake up! Wake up! Gear rattles as he shakes her. Wake up! He slaps her face. She wakes with a gasp. The hell... Did you just hit me? I thought... She slaps him back. Who is that? I ask the hands that rub my shoulders through the blanket. Holiday, sir. We scooped you popsicles up four minutes ago. How long... How long were we out there? About two minutes, thirty seconds. It was a shit show. We had to empty the cargo bay and have the pilot fly backward into you. Then pressurize it on the fly. These carrots can't soldier, but they can damn well steer garbage ships. Still, if you hadn't been linked, most of you would be dead as lead. There's rubble and corpses floating around the sector now. Eight sea crews crawling everywhere. Ragnar? I ask fearfully, not having heard him yet. I am here, my friend. The abyss will not claim us yet. He begins to laugh. Not just yet. Chapter 20 Descent We're in trouble, and Severo knows it. Seizing command back from me as soon as we land in the dilapidated docking berth of a Sons of Ares safehouse deep in industrial sector, he orders the still unconscious Matteo and Quicksilver to the infirmary to be woken up, Cavax to a cell, and tells Rolo and the Sons to prepare for an assault. The Sons stare at us dumbstruck. Our obsidian disguises are obliterated, particularly mine. The prosthetics on my face have fallen off in the battle. Contacts sucked off in the vacuum. Black hair dye thinned out from sweat. Still got my gloves, though. But these sons don't look at a pack of obsidians now. They're staring at a cadre of gold, an obsidian, a grey, and at least one ghost. The Reaper, someone whispers. Keep your mouth shut, Clown snaps. Not a word to anyone. Whatever he says, soon the rumor will spread among them. The Reaper lives. Whatever the effect it'll have, it's not the right time. 
We may have avoided police pursuit, but such a high-profile kidnapping, not to mention the assassination of two high-level peerless, will ensure that the full analytical weight of the Jackal's counter-terrorism units is brought to bear on the evidence. Praetorian and Securitas anti-terrorism tech squads will already be poring over the footage of the attack. They'll discover how we gained access to the facility, how we made our escape, and who our likely compatriots were. Every weapon, piece of equipment, ship used will be traced to its source. Society reprisals against low colors throughout the station will be swift and brutal. And when they analyze the visual evidence of our little vacuum escape, they'll see my face and Severo's. Then Jackal himself will come, or he'll send Antonia or Lilith to hunt me down with their bone riders. The clock's ticking. But that's supposing the authorities suspect that only Quicksilver was kidnapped. I don't know why Mustang and Cassius were meeting, but I have to assume the Jackal doesn't know about it. That's why I used our jammers, so the security cameras outside of Quicksilver's control wouldn't ID Cavax. If the Jackal saw him here, he'd know something was amiss with his alliance with the Sovereign and Quicksilver. And I want to keep that card in my pocket till I know how best to use it and can speak with Mustang. But what will the Sovereign think when Cassius calls her to tell her Moira is dead? And what is Mustang's place here? There are too many questions. Too many things I don't know. But what haunts me, as we run down metal halls, as my friends go to patch wounds and we pass armories where dozens of reds and browns and oranges load weapons and buckle armor, is what she said. I have the packs. Orion is alive. With her, that could mean a dozen things, and the only one who will know is Kavax. I need to ask him, but Ragnar's already taken him down another hall to the sun's lockup, and Severo stopped rattling off orders to others to address me. Reap, they're gonna hit us, and hit us hard, he's saying. You know Legion military procedures better than I do. Get to the data center, fast-like. Give me a timetable and their plan of attack. We can't stop them, but we can buy time. Time for what? I ask. To blow the bombs and find a way off this rock. He puts a hand on my arm, just as cognizant of those sons watching as I am. Please, get moving. He heads off down the hall with the rest of the howlers, leaving me alone with Holiday. I turn to her. Holiday, you know Legion procedures. Get to the data center. Give the sons the tactical support they need. She looks back down at the hall to where Severo has turned a corner. You good with that? I ask. Yes, sir. Where are you going? I tighten my gloves. To get answers. Virginia told us you were a red after she left you. That is why we did not come to your triumph. Kavak says up to me. He's bound to a steel pipe, legs splayed out on the floor. Still in his armor, red-gold beards dark in the low light. He cuts a menacing figure, but I'm surprised by the openness of his face, the lack of hatred. The clarity of excitement as his nostrils flare wide in recounting his tale to Ragnar and me. Severo told the sons that no one was to see Kavak's, 
but apparently they don't think the rules much apply to the Reaper. Good on that. I don't yet have a plan, but I know Severo's isn't working. I don't have time to navigate his feelings or struggle with him. The pieces are in motion. I need information. She did not know yet what to do, and so took our counsel as she did as a girl. Cavax continues. We were on my ship, the Reynard, having roast mutton in ponzu sauce with Sophocles, though he did not like the sauce, when Aegea Command called, saying the Sovereign's loyalist forces had attacked the Triumph in Aegea. Virginia could not contact you or her father, and so feared a coup, and sent Daxo and I from orbit with our knights. She stayed in orbit with the ships, and finally contacted Roke when Daxo and I were already descending through atmosphere. Roke said the Sovereign had attacked the Triumph and wounded you and her father gravely. He urged her to come to one of his new ships, where he was taking you because the surface was no longer safe. I remember Roke talking on the shuttle as the jackal leaned over me, not being able to hear him. We landed on a ship. The Sovereign was there. She never left Mars. She was hiding in Roke's fleet, right under my nose. But Virginia did not rush to your bedside. He grins jovially. A fool in love would do so, but Virginia is clever. She saw through Roke's mendacity. She knew the Sovereign would not simply attack the Triumph. It would be a plan within a plan. So she sent word to Orion and House Arcos that a coup was underway, that Roke was a conspirator. So when the assassins struck, attempting to kill Orion and the loyal commanders on their bridge, they were ready. There were firefights on bridges, in staterooms. Orion was badly shot in the arm, but she survived, and then Roke's ships opened fire on ours, and the fleet fractured. All this while Severo and Ragnar were discovering that Fitchner was dead and that the sons of Ares' base had been destroyed. And I lay paralyzed on the floor of Aja's shuttle as everything came apart. No, not everything. She saved the crew's lives, I say. Yes, Kavak says. Your crew is alive. The one you liberated with Severo even many of your legion, who we organized and managed to evacuate from Mars before the Jackal and Sovereign's forces took power. Where are my friends imprisoned? I ask. On Ganymede? Aya? Imprisoned? Kavak squints at me, then bursts into laughter. No, lad, no! Not a man or woman has left their station. The Pax is just as you left it. Orion commands... The rest follow. I don't understand. She's letting a blue command. Do you think Virginia would have let you live in that tunnel when you and Ragnar were on your knees if she did not believe in your new world? I shake my head numbly, not knowing the answer. She would have killed you on the spot if she thought you were her enemy. But when she sat before my hearth as a girl, beside Pax and my children, what stories did I read them? Did I read them myths of the Greeks? Of strong men gaining glory for their own heads? No, 
I told them tales of Arthur, of the Nazarene, of Vishnu, strong heroes who wished only to protect the weak. And Mustang has. More than that, she's proven Eo right. And it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of love. It was because it was the right thing to do. And because mighty Kavax was more a father to her than her own ever was. I feel the tears in my eyes. You are right, Darrow, Ragnar says. His hand falls on my shoulder. The tide rises. Then why are you here today, Kavax? Because we are losing, he says. The Moon Lords will not last two months. Virginia knows what is happening on Mars. The extermination, the savagery of her brother. The sons are too weak to fight everywhere. His large eyes show the pain of a man watching his home burn. Mars is as much their heritage as it is mine. The cost of war is too great for a certain defeat. So when Quicksilver proposed a peace, we listened. And what are the terms? I ask. Virginia and all her allies would be pardoned by the Sovereign. She would become Arch-Governor of Mars, and Adrius and his faction would be imprisoned for life. And certain reforms would be made. But the hierarchy would remain. Yes. If this is true, we must speak with her. Ragnar says eagerly. It could be a trap, I say, watching Kavax, knowing the mind at work behind his bluff face. I want to trust him. I want to believe his sense of justice is equal to my love for him. But these are deep waters, and I know friends can lie just as well as enemies. If Mustang isn't on my side, then this would be the play to make. It would expose me, and there's no doubt in mind that however she got on this station, she's got a nasty escort. One thing doesn't make sense, Kavax. If this is true, why didn't you make contact with Severo? Kavax blinks up at me. We did. Months ago. Didn't he tell you? The Howlers are packing up by the time Ragnar and I rejoined them in the ready room. It's all shit, Severo saying as Victra patches a gash on his back with res flesh. Acrid smoke hisses up from the cauterizing wound. He throws down his data pad. It skitters into a corner, where Screwface collects it and brings it back to Severo. They've grounded everything, including utility flights. It's all right, boss. We'll find a way out, Clown says. I entered the room quietly, nodding to Severo that I'd like a word. He ignored me. His plan's a mess. We were due to stow ourselves away inside one of the empty helium haulers going back to Mars. We would have been gone before anyone even knew Quicksilver was kidnapped, and then detonated the bombs off station. Now, like Severo says, it's all shit. We obviously can't stay here, Victor says, putting the res flesh applicator down. We left enough DNA for a hundred crime scenes back there. And our faces are everywhere. Adris will send a whole legion for us when they find out we're here. Or blow Phobos out of the sky, 
Holiday mutters. She sits on a crate of medical supplies in the corner, studying maps with Clown on her data pad. Pebble watches them from her place on the table, her legs compressed with a gel cast, but the bones not set. We'll need a yellow and a full infirmary to fix what Mustang broke with a single shot. Pebble's lucky she was wearing scarab skin. It minimized the burn damage. Still, she's in pain. Pupils large on a high dose of narcotics. It's let her inhibitions loose, and I note how obviously the pudgy-faced gold is watching Clown lean across Holiday to point at the map. Helium-3 is Adris's lifeblood, Victor says. He won't risk this station. Severo, I say. A moment. Busy right now. He turns to Rolo. Is there another way off this damn rock? The red leans against the medroom's grey wall next to a glossy paper cutout of a pink model on one of Venus's white sand beaches. It's just cargo haulers down here, he says, silently noting how our obsidian geysers have been discarded. If it startles him how many of us are gold, he doesn't let on. Probably knew from the start. His eyes linger on me the longest. But they're all grounded. They got luxury liners and private yachts in the needles, but you go up there, you folks are caught in a minute. Two tops. There's facial recognition cameras at every tram door, retina scanners in the advertisement hollows, and even if you got onto one of their ships, you gotta get past the naval pickets. Ain't like you can just teleport to safety. That'd be convenient, Clown mutters. We jack a shuttle and run the pickets, Severus says. Done it before. They'll shoot us down, I say tensely. It's pissing me off that he keeps ignoring my attempts to get him to the door. Didn't last time. Last time we had Lysander, I remind him. And now we got Quicksilver. The jackal will sacrifice Quicksilver to kill us, I say. Count on it. Not if we go straight vertical burn to the surface, Severo says. Sons have hidden tunnel entrances. We will fall from orbit and go straight underground. I will not do that, Ragnar says. It is foolhardy, and it abandons these noble men and women to slaughter. I agree with Rags, Holiday says. She scoots away from Clown and continues looking at her datapad, monitoring police frequencies. Say you get off. What happens to us? Rollo asks. The jackal finds out the Reaper and Ares were here, and he'll tear this station apart piecemeal. Any son left behind will be dead in a week. Did you think of that? He makes a disgusted look. I know who you are. We knew the second Ragnar walked into the hangar. But I didn't think Howlers ran and I didn't think the Reaper took orders. Severo takes a step toward him. You got another option, shitface? Are you just gonna run your mouth? Yeah, I got one, Rollo says. Stay. Help us take the station. The Howlers laugh. Take the station? With what army? Clown asks. His, Rollo says turning to me. I don't rightly know how you're alive, Reaper, but... 
I was eating noodles by myself at midnight when the Suns leaked your carving video onto the Net. Society Cyber Police shut down the site in two minutes. But once it was out, could find it on a million sites before I finished my bowl. They couldn't contain that. And then the Phobos servers crashed. You know why? Securitas Cyber Division pulled the plug, Victor says. It's standard protocol. He shakes his head. Servers crashed because 30 million people were trying to access the holonet at the same time in the middle of the night. Servers couldn't handle the traffic. Golds pulled the plug after that. So what I'm saying is, if you march down to the hive and tell the low colors there you're alive, we can take this moon. Easy as that? Victor asks skeptically. That's right. There's round about 25 million low colors here crawling over one another, fighting for square meters, protein packages, syndicates, smack, whatever. Reaper shows his mug. All that goes to vapor. All that fighting. All that scrapping. They want a leader. And if the Reaper of Mars decides to come back from the dead here, you won't have an army. You'll have a tide at your heels. You register? This will change the war. He sends chills down my spine. But Victor is sceptical and Severo's quiet. Hurt. Do you know what a squad of society legionnaires can do to a mob of rabble? Victor asks. The weapons you've seen are geared to taking out men in armor. Pulse fists, razors. When they use coil guns or rattlers on mobs, a single man can fire a thousand rounds a minute. It sounds like paper tearing. Human body doesn't even know that sound is supposed to be frightening. They can superheat the water in your cellular structure with microwaves. And those are just grey anti-mob squads. What if they unleash the obsidian? What if girls themselves come in their armour? What if they shut off your air, your water? What if we shut off theirs? Rollo asks. I frown. Can you do that? Give me a reason to. He looks at Victor, and by the bite in his voice I know he knows exactly what her last name is. They might be soldiers, Domina. Might be able to put enough metal in my body that I bleed out, but before I was nine I could strip down a grav boot and piece it together in under four minutes. Now I'm thirty-eight, and I can murder the lot of them ten ways till Sunday with a screwdriver and an electrical kit. And I'm sick and tired of not seeing my family, of being stepped on and charged for oxygen, for water, for living. He leans forward, eyes glassy. And there's twenty-five million of me on the other side of that door. Victra rolls her eyes at the bravado. You're a welder with delusions of grandeur. Rollo steps forward and knocks a set of wrenches off a table. They clatter on the ground, startling Clown and Holiday, who look up from the data pad. Rollo stares up indignantly at Victra. She's easily a foot taller than him, but he doesn't break his gaze. I'm an engineer, not a welder. Enough! Severo snarls. This isn't a bloody damn debate. 
Quicksilver will get us off this rock, or I'll start taking off his fingers. Then blow the bombs, serve rule, Ragnar says. I am Ares, Severo snarls. Not you! He shoves a finger up into Ragnar's chest and then points at me. And not you. Finish packing the bloody damn gear. Now! He storms from the room, leaving us in awkward silence. I will not abandon these men, Ragnar says. They have helped us. They are our people. Ares is cracked, Rolo says to the room. Off his mind. You need... I wheel on the small man, picking him up with one hand and pinning him against the ceiling. Don't you say a damn thing about him. Rollo apologizes. I set him back on the ground. I make sure all the howlers are listening. Everyone, stay put. I'll be right back. I catch Severo before he enters Quicksilver's cell in a gutted old garage that the sons use to house generators now. Severo and the guards turn when they hear me coming. Don't trust me alone with him, he sneers. Nice. We need to talk. Sure, after he does. Severo pushes open the door. Cursing, I follow. The room's a forlorn shade of rust, machines older than some of the gear in Lycos. One rattles behind the thick silver, coughing out the electricity that powers the lights, bathing the man in a circle of light and blinding him to anything beyond it. Quicksilver sits with his shoulders back in the metal chair in the center of the room, arms bound behind his back. His turquoise robe is bloody and rumpled, bulldog eyes patient and measuring, wide foreheads covered in a thick sheen of sweat and grease. Who are you? He hisses in irritation instead of fear. The door slams shut behind us. The man seems rather irritated with his predicament, not disrespectful or angry, but professionally peeved at the meek measure of our hospitality and the inconvenience we've thrust upon him. He's not able to distinguish our faces due to the light blaring into his eyes. Syndicate Teethman, Moon Lord Dustmakers, when we say nothing, he swallows. Adrius, is that you? Chills creep down my spine. We say nothing. Only now, as he begins to suspect that we're the jackal's men, does Quicksilver seem truly afraid. If we had time, we could use that fear, but we need information fast. We need off this rock, Severo says gruffly. You're going to make that happen, Boyo, or I pull off your fingers one by one. Boyo, Quicksilver murmurs. I know you have an escape vessel, contingency. Barker, is that you? Severo's caught off guard. It is you. Damn the stars, boy, you scared the shit out of me. I thought you were the gory damn jackal. You have ten seconds to give me something I can use, or I wear your ribcage as a corset, Severo says, thrown by Quicksilver's familiarity. It's not his best threat. Quicksilver shakes his head. 
You need to listen to me, Mr. Barker, and listen well. This is all a misunderstanding. A vast misunderstanding. I know you may not believe it. I know you may think me mad. But you must hear me. I am on your side. I am one of you, Mr. Barker. Severo frowns. One of us? What do you mean? What do I mean? Quicksilver laughs gruffly. I mean exactly as I say, young man. I, Regulus Agson, Chevalier of the Order of Coin, Chief Executive Officer of Sun Industries, am also a founding member of the Sons of Ares. Chapter 21 Quicksilver A son of Ares? Severo repeats, stepping into the light so Quicksilver can see his face. I stay back. It's a ludicrous claim. That's better. I thought I recognized your voice. More like your father's than you probably like. But yes, I'm a son. The first son, actually. Well then, slag me blind as a pink whore, Severo cries. This is all just a misunderstanding. He jumps forward and crouches beside Quicksilver to straighten the man's robe. We'll get you cleaned up, let you call your men. Sound good? Yes, good, because you've managed to muck up something rather... Severo hits the silver right in his fleshy lips with a jab of his fist. It's an intimate, familiar bit of violence that makes me flinch. Quicksilver's head slams back against the chair. The man tries to move away, but Severo pins him down easily. Your tricks won't work here, fat little toad man. It's not a trick. Severo hits him again. Quicksilver sputters blood dribbling down his cracked lip, tries to blink the pain away, probably seeing spots. Severo hits him a third time, casually, and I think it was for me, not the tycoon, because Severo looks back into the darkness, where I stand, with impudent eyes. As if dangling moral bait in front of me so we can explode into conflict again. His moral creed has always been simple. Protect your friends. To hell with everyone else. Severo pushes a knife into Quicksilver's mouth. I know you think you're being clever, boyo, Severo growls, saying you're a son, thinking you're so smooth, thinking you can talk your way clear of us dumb brutes. But I've played this game with smarter kinds than you, and I've learned hard. Keen. He pulls the knife sideways against Quicksilver's cheek, causing the man to move his head with the blade. Still, it splits the corner of his mouth just slightly. So whatever your garble, you ain't coming out on top of this shit brain. You're a rat, a collaborator, and it's time to reap what you've sowed. So you're going to tell us how to get out of here. If you've got a ship hidden, if you can get us past the Navy, then you're going to tell us about the Jackal's plans, his equipment, his infrastructure. Then you're going to give us the gear to equip our army. Quicksilver's eyes dart from the knife to Severo's face. 
Use your brains, you little savage! Quicksilver snarls when Severo takes the knife from his mouth. Where do you think Fitchner got the money? Don't say his name! Severo points a finger to the man's face. Don't you dare say his name! I knew your father. Then why'd he never mention you? Why does Dancer not know you? Because you're lying! Why would they know about me? Quicksilver asks. You never tie two boats together in a storm. The words are a punch to the gut. Fitchner said the exact phrase when explaining why he didn't tell me about Titus. The sons lost much of their technical ability when he died. What if there were two bodies to the sons of Ares' body? The low colors and the high, kept apart in case one was compromised. It's what I would do. He promised me better allies if I went to Luna, allies that would help make me sovereign. This could be one of them. One who fled when Fitchner died. Who cut himself off from the contaminated body of the sons. Why was Matteo in your bedroom? I asked carefully. Quicksilver stares into the darkness, wondering whose voice addresses him. Yet now there's fear in his eyes, not just anger. How? How did you know he was in my bedroom? Answer the question, Severo says, kicking him. Did you hurt him? Quicksilver asks, enraged. Did you hurt him? Answer the question, Severo repeats, slapping him. Quicksilver trembles with anger. He was in my room because he's my husband, you son of a bitch. He's one of us. If you hurt him... How long has he been your husband? I ask. Ten years. Where was he six years ago when he worked with Dancer? He was in Yorkton. He was the man who trained your friend, Severo. He trained Darrow. The carver made the body. Matteo sculpted the man. He's telling the truth. I step into the light so Quicksilver can see my face. He stares at me in shock. Darrow, you're alive. I thought it can't be. I turn to Severo. He's a son of Ares. Because he got a few facts right, Severo snarls. You're actually serious. You're alive. Quicksilver murmurs to himself, trying to wrap his head around what is happening. How? Oh, he killed you. He's telling the truth, I repeat. Truth? Severo moves his mouth like he's got a cockroach in it. What does that even bloody mean? How could you possibly know that? You think you can get the truth out of some backroom dealing shark like this? He's in bed with half the peerless guard in the society. He ain't just their tool. He's the friend. And he's playing you like the jackal did. If he's a son, why do you abandon us? Why do you not contact us when Pops died? Because your ship was sinking, Quicksilver says, still staring at me in confusion. Your cells were compromised. I had no way of knowing how deep the contamination went. I still don't know how the jackal discovered you, Darrow. My only contact to the low-color cells was Fitchner, 
just like I was his contact for high-color cells. How could I reach out when I didn't know if it was Dancer himself who informed on you and made a power play to get rid of Fitchner? Dancer would never do that, Severo says with a sneer. How would I know that? Quicksilver says in frustration. I don't know the man. Severo is shaking his head, overwhelmed by the absurdity. I have videos. Conversations between myself and your father. I'm not letting you near a data pad, Severo says. Test him, I say. Make him prove it. I met your mother once, Severo. Quicksilver offers quickly. Her name was Bryn. She was a red. If I wasn't a son, how would I know that? You could know that a dozen ways. Proves piss and shit, Severo says. I have a test, I say. If you are a son, you'll know it. If you belong to the jackal, you would have used it. Where is Tinos? Quicksilver smiles broadly. Five hundred kilometers south of the Thermic Sea, three kilometers beneath the old mining nexus Vengo Station, in an abandoned mining colony, the records of which were wiped from the internal servers of the society by my hackers. The stalactites were carved hollow using Acheron 19 laser drills from my factories in spiral halls to maintain structural integrity. The Italian hydrogenerator was built with plans designed by my engineers. Tinos might be the city of Ares, but I designed it. I paid for it. I built it. Severo sways there in stunned silence. Your father worked for me, Severo, Quicksilver says. First for the terraforming consortium on Triton, where he met your mother. Then in less legitimate ways. Back then I was not what I am today. I needed a gold. A hard-nosed, peerless scarred, and all the legal protection that gives. One who owed me, and was willing to play rough with my competitors. Off the books, you know. You're saying my father played mercenary? For you? I'm saying he played assassin. I was growing. There was resistance in the marketplace to that growth. So the marketplace had to make room. You think all silvers play it safe and legal? He chuckles. Some, maybe. But business in a crony capitalist society is the craft of sharks. Stop swimming, the others will take your food and feed on your body. I gave your father money. We hired a team, worked off-site, did what I needed him to do until I discovered he was using my resources for a side project, the Sons of Ares. He makes a mockery of the words. But you didn't report him, I ask skeptically. Goals treat sedition like cancer. I'd have been cut out too. So I was trapped. But he didn't want me trapped. He wanted a co-conspirator. Gradually, he made his case. 
And here we are. Severo paces away, trying to make sense of it. But we've been dying like flies. And you've been up here, humping your pinks, fraternizing with the enemy. If you were one of us... Quicksilver lifts his nose up, regaining what poise he lost during the beating. Then I would have done what, Mr. Barker? Do tell. From your extensive experience in subterfuge. You would have fought with us. With what? Hmm? He waits for an answer. None comes. Severo speechless. I have a private security force of 30,000 for myself and my companies, but they're spread from Mercury to Pluto. I don't own those men. They are grey contractors. Only a fraction are owned obsidians. I have the weapons, but I don't have the muscle to tussle with peerless scarred. Are you crazy? I use soft power, not hard power. That was your father's purview. Even a minor house could wipe me out in direct conflict. You have the largest software company in the solar system, Severo says. That means hackers. You have munitions plants, military tech development. You could have spied for us on the Jackal, given us weapons. You could have done a thousand things. May I be blunt? I grimace. If ever there was a time. Quicksilver leans back to peer down his humped nose at Severo. I've been a son of Ares for more than twenty years. That requires patience, a long-eyed view. You've been one for less than a year, and look what's happened. You, Mr. Barker, are a bad investment. Bad investment? It sounds ridiculous coming from a man chained to a metal chair with blood dribbling down his lips. But something in Quicksilver's eyes sells his point. This isn't a victim. It's a titan of a different plane, master of his own domain. Equal, it seems, to Fitchner's own breed of genius. And more vast a character, more nuanced than I would have expected but I reserve any affection for the man. He survived by lying for twenty years. Everything is an act. Probably even this. Who is the real man beneath this bulldog face? What drives him? What does he want? I watched. I waited to see what you would do, he explains to Severo, to see if you are cut like your father. But then they executed Darrow, he looks up at me, still confused on that note, or pretended to, and you acted like a boy. You began a war you couldn't win, with insufficient infrastructure, materiel, systems of coordination, supply lines. You released propaganda in the form of Darrow's carving to the worlds, to the mines, hoping for... What? A glorious rise of the proletariat? He scoffs. I thought you understood war. For all his faults, your father was a visionary. 
he promised me something better. And what has his son given us instead? Ethnic cleansing. Nuclear war. The headings? Pogroms. Whole cities shredded by fractious groups of red rebels and gold reprisals. Disunity. In other words, chaos. And chaos, Mr. Barker, is not what I invested in. It's bad for business, and what's bad for business is bad for man. Zevro swallows slowly, feeling the weight of the words. I did what I had to do, he says, sounding so small. But no one else would. Did you? Quicksilver leans forward nastily. Or did you do what you wanted to do, because your feelings were hurt, because you wanted to lash out? Severo's eyes are glassy, his silence wounding me. I want to defend him, but he needs to hear this. You think I haven't been fighting, but I have. Quicksilver continues. The Sovereign's opinion of the Jackal seems to have soured of late. Why? I ask. I couldn't guess before, but now I'd bet anything it's because you escaped the Jackal's prisons. In any case, I saw an opportunity. I brought Virginia Au Augustus and the Sovereign's representatives here to broker a peace that would give Virginia the Arch-Governorship of Mars, and would remove the Jackal from power and put him in prison for life. It's not the end I wanted, but if what we're seeing on the Jackal's Mars is any indication... He is the single greatest threat to the world's and our long-term goals. And yet you helped him consolidate power in the first place, I say. Quicksilver sighs. At the time, I thought him less of a threat than his father. I was wrong. And so are you. He needs to be removed. The Jackal's been betrayed by two allies then. But your plans for an alliance are slagged now. Indeed. But I don't mourn the opportunity lost. You're alive, Darrow. And that means this rebellion is alive. It means Fitchner's dream, your wife's dream, is not yet gone from this world. Why? Severo asks. Why the bloody hell would you want war? You're the richest man in the system. You're not an anarchist. No, I am not an anarchist, a communist, a fascist, a plutocrat, or even a democrat, for that matter. My boys, don't believe what they tell you in school. Government is never the solution, but it is almost always the problem. I'm a capitalist, and I believe in effort and progress and the ingenuity of our species— the continuing evolution and advancement of our kind based on fair competition. Fact of the matter is, gold does not want man to continue to evolve. Since the conquering, they have routinely stifled advancement to maintain their heaven. They've wrapped themselves in myth, filled their grand oceans with monsters to hunt, cultivated private murkwoods and Olympuses of their very own, they have suits of armor to make them flying gods, and they preserve that ridiculous fairy tale by keeping mankind frozen in time, curbing invention, curiosity, social mobility, 
change threatens that. Look where we are. In space. Above a planet we shaped. Yet we live in a society modeled after the musings of Bronze Age pedophiles, tossing around mythology like that bullshit wasn't made up around a campfire by an Attican farmer, depressed that his life was nasty, brutish, and short. The golds claim to the obsidians that they are gods. They are not. Gods create. If the golds are anything, they are vampire kings, parasites drinking from our jugular. I want a society free of this fascist pyramid. I want to unchain the free market of wealth and ideas. Why should men toil in the mines when we can build robots to toil for us? Why should we ever have stopped in this solar system? We deserve more than what we've been given. But first, gold must fall, and the sovereign and the jackal must die. And I believe you are the sign I've been waiting for, Mr. Andromedus. He nods at my gloved hands. I paid for your sigils. I paid for your bones, your eyes, your flesh. You are my friend's brainchild, my husband's student, the sum of the sons of Ares. So my empire is at your disposal. My hackers, my security teams, my transports, my companies, all yours. With no reservations, no strings, no insurance policy. He looks at Severo. Gentlemen, in other words, I'm all in. Quite nice. Severo applauds, mocking Quicksilver. Darrow, he's just trying to buy you so he can escape. Maybe, I say. But we can't blow the bombs anymore. Bombs? Quicksilver asks. What are you talking about? We planted explosives in the refineries and the shipping docks. I say. That's your plan. Quicksilver looks back and forth at us, as if we're mad. You can't do that. Do you have any idea what that would do? An economic collapse, I say. Symptoms including a devaluation of stock assets, a freeze of commercial bank lending, a run on local banks, eventual stagflation and a breakdown of social order. Show us some respect when you talk to us. We're not dilettants or boys, and it was our plan. Was? Severo asks, stepping back from me. So now you're letting him dictate what we do? Things have changed, Severo. We need to reassess. We've new assets. My friend stares at me as if he doesn't recognize my face. New assets? Him? Not just him. Orion, I say. And you never told me Mustang contacted you. Because you would have let her manipulate you, he says without apology. Like you did before, like you're letting him now. He considers me, pointing a finger as he thinks he figures it out. You're afraid, aren't you? Afraid of pulling the trigger. Afraid of making a mistake. 
We finally have a chance to make gold bleed, and you want to reassess? You want to take time to look at our options? He pulls a detonator from his pocket. This is war. We don't have time. We can take the bastard with us, but we can't miss this chance. Stop acting like a terrorist, I snarl. We're better than that. I stare down at him, furious in the moment. He should be my simplest, strongest friendship, but because of loss, everything is twisted between us. Even with him, there's so many layers to the pain, so many levels of fear and recrimination and guilt for both of us. They once called Severo my shadow. He's not any longer, and I think I've been bitter at him these last hours because they're proof of that. He's his own man with his own tides, just as I think he's been bitter with me because I didn't come back as the Reaper. I came back a man he didn't recognize. And now that I'm trying to be the force he wanted, the force that's making decisions, he doubts me because he senses weakness, and that's always made him afraid. Severo, give me the detonator, I say coldly. Nah. He opens the detonator's priming shield, revealing the red thumb toggle inside the protective casing. If he presses down, 1,000 kilograms of high-yield explosives will detonate across Phobos. It won't destroy the moon, but it'll demolish the moon's economic infrastructure. Helium will not flow for months, years, and all the fears of Quicksilver will be realized. Society will suffer, but so will we. Severo. You got my father killed, he says. You got Quinn and Pax and Weed and Harpy and Leah killed because you thought you were smarter than everyone else, because you didn't kill the Jackal when you could, because you didn't kill Cassius when you could. But unlike you, I don't flinch. Chapter 22 the weight of Ares. Severo's thumb twitches for the detonation switch. But before he presses down, I activate a jam field with the jammer on my belt, blocking the signal from leaving the room. You son of a bitch! He snarls, rushing for the door to get beyond the field. I reach for him. He spins under my hands. My jammer's not a strong one, so he doesn't need to get far away from me. He bowls into the hallway. I scramble after him. Severo, stop! I say, as I push into the hallway. He's already ten meters down the hall, running at full speed to get clear of my jamming field so his signal can go out. He's quicker than I am in these small hallways. He's going to escape. I pull my pulse fist out, aim it over his head, and fire it. But my aim is off, and it nearly takes off his head. His mohawk sizzles smoke. He stops dead in his tracks and wheels back on me, face feral. Severo, I didn't mean... With a howl of rage, he charges me. Caught off guard, I stumble back from the manic man. He closes in a flurry. I block his first punch, but an uppercut smashes into my jaw, slamming my teeth together, rocking me back. My teeth close in a corner of my tongue. I taste blood and almost fall. If Mickey hadn't made bones proper, Severo might have shattered my jaw. Instead, he curses, gripping his fist in pain. 
I move with the uppercut and lash out with my left leg, kicking him so hard in the ribs that his whole body carries sideways into the wall, denting the metal bulkhead. I throw a straight jab with my right fist. He ducks under and my punch lands on duro steel. Pain rattles up my arm. I grunt. He flies into me under the left elbow I swing at his head, ratcheting strikes into my stomach, aiming for my balls. I twist back, manage to grab one of his arms and swing him around as hard as I can. He slams face first into the wall, spilling to the ground. Where is it? I search his body for the detonator. Severo! He scissor kicks my legs, tangling them, dropping me to the ground so we're grappling instead of trading punches. He's the better wrestler, and it's all I can do to keep him from choking me out from behind as his legs form a triangle, heels locked in front of my face, legs pressing in on both sides of my neck. I lift him off the ground, but I can't dislodge him. He's dangling upside down behind me, spine to my spine, heels still on my face, trying to elbow my balls through my legs from behind. I can't reach for him, I can't breathe, so I grab his calves on my neck and spin my body. He slams into the metal. Once. Twice. Then he finally lets go, scrambling off. I'm on him in a flash, throwing a tight series of cravat elbows into his face, he catches my chin with the crown of his head, accidentally. Dom, son of a bitch, I mutter, stumbling back. He's gripping his own head in pain. Stupid, lanky ass. He aims a kick at my midsection. I take the blow, catching the leg with my left arm, and exchange it for a haymaker right that crashes into his skull with all my weight behind it. He goes down hard like I'm a hammer driving a nail into the floor. He tries to rise, but I push him down with a boot. He lies under it, heaving breaths. I'm dizzy and panting, body hating me for what I'm doing to it. Are you done? I ask him. He nods. I pull back my boot and extend a hand to help him up. He rolls to his back and reaches for it, then lurches up with his left boot heel straight into my groin. I fall and dry heave beside him. Crippling nausea swells from my lower back into my balls and my stomach. Beside me, he's panting like a dog. At first I think he's laughing, but when I look up I'm shocked to see tears in his eyes. He lies on his back. Huge sobs make his ribcage shudder. He turns away tries to hide from me to stop the tears from coming, but it makes it worse. Severo. I sit up, feeling ripped apart by the sight of him. I don't hold him, but I put a hand on his head, and he surprises me by not flinching away, but instead crawling up to put his head on my knee. I put my other hand on his shoulder, in time, the sobs slow, and he blows the snot from his nose. But he doesn't move. It's like the moment after a lightning storm, the air kinetic and vibrating. After several minutes, he clears his throat and pushes himself up to sit with his legs folded under him in the center of the hall. His eyes are puffy, ashamed. 
He plays with his hands, the tattoos and mohawk making him look like something pulled from a deranged children's book. You tell anyone I cried, I'll find a dead fish, put it in a sock, hide it in your room, and let it putrefy. Fair enough. The detonator lies off to the side, close enough so we can both reach for it. Neither of us do. I hate this, he says weakly. People like that. He glances up at me. I don't want him to be a son. I don't want to be like Quicksilver. You aren't. He doesn't believe that. At the Institute, I'd wake up in the morning, and I think I was still in my dreams. Then I'd feel the cold, and I'd slowly start remembering where I was, and there's dirt and blood under my nails, and all I want to do was go back to sleep, to be warm. But I knew I had to get up and face a world that didn't give a shit. He grimaces. That's how I feel every morning now. I'm afraid all the time. I don't want to lose anyone. I don't want to let them down. You haven't, I say. If anything, I let you down. He tries to interrupt me. You were right. We both know it. It's my fault your father's dead. It's my fault that whole night happened. It was still a shit thing of me to say. He wraps his knuckles on the ground. I'm always saying shit things. I'm glad you said it. Why? Because we've both forgotten we didn't get here on our own. You and I should be able to say anything to each other. That's how this works. It's how we work. We don't walk on eggshells. We talk to each other. Even if we say shit that's hard to hear. I see how alone he feels, how much weight he carried. It's how I felt when Cassius stabbed me and left me for dead at the Institute. He needs to share the weight. I don't know how else to tell him that. This stubbornness, this intransigence looks insane from the outside. But inside, he felt just as I did when Roke questioned me. Do you know why I helped you at the Institute? When you and Cassius were gonna drown in that lock, he asks. It's cause of how they look at you. It wasn't like I thought you were a good primus. You were as smart as a bag of wet farts. But I saw them. Pebble, Clown, Quinn, Roke. He almost trips over that last name. I'd watch you at your fires in the gulches when Titus was in the castle. Saw you teach Leah how to cut a goat's throat, even when she was afraid to do it. I wanted to do that too. To join. Why didn't you? He shrugs. Was afraid you wouldn't want me. They look at you that way now, I say. Don't you see that? He snorts. No, they don't. The whole time I tried to be you... Try to be pops. Didn't work. 
I could tell everyone just wished it was me that the jackal captured, not you. You know that's not true. It is, he says intensely, leaning forward. You're better than I am. I saw you. When you looked down at Tinos, saw your eyes, the love in them, the urge to protect those people. I tried feeling it, but every time I looked down at the refugees, I just hated them. For being weak, for hurting each other, for being stupid and not knowing what we've gone through to help them. He swallows and picks at the cuticles of his stubby fingers. I know it's nasty, but it's what it is. He seems so vulnerable here in this hall, the rage taken out of us from the fight. He's not looking for a lecture. Leadership has worn him down, alienated him from even his howlers. Right now he's looking to feel like he's not like Quicksilver or the Jackal or any of the golds we fight against. He's mistakenly assumed I'm something better than he is. And part of that is my fault. I hate them too, I say. He shakes his head. Don't. I do. At least I hate that they remind me of what I was, or could have been. Shit, I was a little idiot. You would have hated me. I was comfortable and arrogant and selfish on my knees. I liked being blind to everything because I was in love. And I thought for some reason that living for love was the most valiant thing in all the world. Even made Eo into something in my head that she wasn't. Romanticized her and the life we had. Probably because I saw my father die for some cause. And I saw all he left behind. So I tried to cling to the life he abandoned. I traced the lines on my palm. It makes me feel small to think I started doing all this for her. She was everything to me, but I was just a piece of her life. When the jackal had me, that's all I could think about. That I wasn't enough. That our child wasn't enough. Part of me hates her for that. She didn't know all this would happen, wasn't even aware that the worlds had been terraformed, all she could have known was that she was making a point to the couple thousand people in Lycos. And was that worth dying for? Was that worth killing a child for? I gestured down the hall. Now all these people think she was divine or something, a perfect martyr. But she was just a girl. And she was brave but she was stupid and selfish and selfless and romantic, but she died before she could ever be more. Think how much she could have done with her life. Maybe we could have done this together. I laugh bitterly and lean my head against the wall. I think the shittiest part about getting old is now we're smart enough to see the cracks in everything. We're twenty-three, dipshit. Well, I feel eighty. You look it. I flip him the crooks, earning a smile. Do you... He almost doesn't finish the thought. 
Do you think she watches you? From the Vale? Does your father? I'm about to say I don't know when I catch the intentness of his gaze. He's not asking about my family as much as he's asking about his own. Maybe even Quinn, who he always loved but never had the courage to tell. With all his savagery, it's hard to remember just how vulnerable he is. He's adrift, alienated from red and gold. No home, no family, no view of a world after war. Right now, I'd say anything to make him feel like he's loved. Yes, I believe she watches me. I say with more confidence than I feel. And my father. And yours too. So, they have beer in the Vale? Don't be sacrilegious, I say, kicking his foot. Only whiskey. Streams of it as far as the eye can see. His laughter stitches more of me together. Bit by bit I feel like my friends are coming back to me. Or maybe... I'm coming back to them. Suppose it's the same thing, really. I always told Victor to let people in. I could never take my own advice because I knew one day I'd have to betray them, that the foundation of our friendship was a lie. Now I'm with people who know who I am. And I'm afraid to let them in because I'm afraid of losing them, disappointing them. But it's this bond that Severo and I share that makes us stronger than we were before. It's what we have that Jackal doesn't. Do you know what happens after this? I ask. If we kill Octavia, the Jackal, if we somehow win... No, Severo says. That Right there is a problem. I don't have the answer. I won't pretend to, but I won't let Augustus be right. I won't bring chaos into this world without at least a plan for something better. For that we need allies like Quicksilver. We need to stop playing terrorist, and we need a real army. Severo picks the detonator back up and breaks it in two. What are your orders, Reap? Chapter 23 The Tide Severo and I stalk back into the ready room where the howlers are packed and prepared to depart the station. Rolo and a dozen of his people watch us tensely from their side of the room. They know they're about to be abandoned. Quicksilver follows behind me, restraints left behind in his cell. He's agreed to our plan, with a few adjustments. Well, look at this, Victor says, seeing our bruises and bloody knuckles. You two finally talked. She looks to Ragnar. See? Shit sorted, Severo says. And the rich man? Ragnar asks curiously. He wears no manacles. That's because he's a son of Ares, Rags. Severo says. Didn't you know? Quicksilver's a son? 
Victor explodes into laughter. And I'm secretly a hell diver. She looks back and forth at our faces. Wait, you're serious. Do you have proof? I'm sorry to hear of your mother, Victor, Quicksilver says hoarsely. But it is a pleasure to see you walking, truly. I've been with the sons for over twenty years. I have hundreds of hours of conversations with Fitchner to prove it. He's a son, Severus says. Can we move on? Well, I'll be damned. Victor shakes her head. Mother was right about you. Always said you had secrets. I thought it was something sexual, that you liked horses or something. Severo shifts uncomfortably. So you find us a way off this rock, rich man? Holiday asks Quicksilver. Not quite, he says. Darrow, we're not leaving, I announce. Rollo and his men stir in the corner. The howlers exchange confused looks. Maybe you want to tell us what's going on, Screwface asks gruffly. Let's start with who's in charge. Is it you? Howler one, Severo says, punching my shoulder. Howler two, I say, patting his in turn. Prime, Severo asks. The howlers nod in concert. First order of business, policy change, I say. Who has pliers? I look around until Holiday pulls hers from her bomb kit and tosses them to me. I open my mouth and stick the pliers to the back right molar where the Achilles nine suicide tooth was implanted. With a grunt, I tear it out and set the tooth on the table. I've been captured before. I will not be captured again, so this is worthless to me. I don't plan on dying, but if I do, I die with my friends. Not in a cell, not on a podium, with you. I hand the pliers to Severo. He jerks out his own back tooth, spitting the blood on the table. I die with my friends. Ragnar does not wait for the pliers. He pulls out his back tooth with his bare fingers, eyes wide with delight as he sets the huge bloody thing on the table. I die with my friends. One by one, they pass around the pliers, pulling out their teeth and tossing them down. Quicksilver watches all the while, staring at us like we're a pack of mad hooligans, no doubt wondering about what he's gotten himself into. But I need my men to lose this heavy mantle they wear. With that poison in their skulls, they felt the death sentences had already been read, and they were just waiting for the hangman to come knocking. Slag that. Death'll have to earn its bounty. I want them to believe in this, in each other, in the idea that we might actually win and live. For the first time, I do. After I've detailed my instructions to my men and they depart to execute the orders, I return with Severo to the Sons of Ares' control room and ask for them to prepare a direct link. To the citadel in Ajir, please. The sons of Ares turn to look at me to see if they've misheard. On the double, friends, we don't have all day. I stand in front of the hollow camera with several. Think they already know we're here. 
Probably not quite yet, I reply. Think he's going to piss himself? Let's hope. Remember, nothing about Mustang and Cassius being here. We're keeping that one in the pocket. The direct hollowlink goes through, and the face of a one young copper administrator looks sleepily back at us. Citadel General Com, she drones, how may I direct your... She blinks suddenly at our images on the display, wipes sleep from her eyes, and loses all faculty of speech. I would like to speak with the Arch-Governor, I say. And may I say who is calling? It's the bloody damn Reaper of Mars, several barks. One moment, please. The copper's face is replaced by the Pyramid of the Society. Terribly predictable Vivaldi plays as we wait. Severo taps his fingers on his leg and murmurs his little tune under his breath. If your heart beats like a drum and your legs a little wet, it's because the reapers come to collect a little debt. Several minutes later, the jackal's pale face appears before us. He wears a jacket with a high white collar, and his hair is parted on the side. He does not leer at us. If anything, he looks amused as he continues to eat his breakfast. The Reaper and Ares, he says in a low drawl, mocking his own courtesy. He wipes his mouth on a napkin. You departed so quickly last time, I didn't have time to say farewell. I must say, you're looking positively radiant, Darrow. Is Victor with you? Adrius, I say flatly, as you're no doubt aware, there has been an explosion at Sun Industries, and your silent partner, Quicksilver, has gone missing. I know it's a mess of jurisdiction, and the evidence won't be sorted for hours, maybe days. So I wanted to call and clarify the situation. We, the sons of Ares, have kidnapped Quicksilver. He sets his spoon down to sip from his white coffee cup. I see. To what end? We will be holding him for ransom until you release all political prisoners illegally detained in your jails and all low colors concentrated in internment camps. Additionally, you are to take responsibility for the murder of your father. Publicly. Is that all? The jackal asks, not displaying a flicker of emotion, though I know he's wondering how we discovered Quicksilver was his ally. You also have to personally kiss my pimply ass, Severo says. Lovely. The jackal looks off the screen to someone. My agents tell me a flight moratorium was instituted ten minutes after the attack on Sun Industries, and the vessel which fled the scene disappeared into the hollows. Am I to assume, then, that you're still on Phobos? I pause as if caught off guard. If you do not comply, Quicksilver's life is forfeit. Lamentably, I do not negotiate with terrorists, especially ones who may be recording my conversation to broadcast it for political gain. The jackal sips his coffee again. I listened to your proposal. Now listen to mine. Run. 
now, while you can. But no, wherever you go, wherever you hide, you cannot protect your friends. I'm going to kill them all and put you back in the darkness with their severed heads for company. There is no way out, Darrow. This I promise you. He kills the signal. Think he'll send the Bone Riders before the legions? Severo asks. Let's hope. Time to get moving. The Hollows is a city of cages, row upon row, column upon column of rusty metal homes linked together in the null gravity, as far as the eye can see, here in the heart of Phobos. Each cage a life in miniature, Clothing floats on hooks, little portable thermal press grills sizzle with the foods of a hundred different regions of Mars. Paper pictures cling to iron cage walls by bits of tape, showing distant lakes, mountains, and families gathered together. Everything here is dull and grey. The metal of the cages, the limp clothing, even the tired and wasted faces of the oranges and reds who are trapped here, thousands of kilometers from home. Sparks of color dance up from the data pads and hollow visor that glow through the city, bits of dream scattered on twisted scrap metal. Men and women sit penitent over their little displays, watching their little programs, forgetting where they are in favor of where they'd wish to be. Many have taped paper or blankets over the sides of their walls, to give them some semblance of privacy from their neighbors. But it's the scent and the sound you cannot escape. The throaty, unceasing rattle of cage doors slamming shut, locks clicking, men laughing and coughing, generators humming. Public hollow cans yapping and barking the dog language of distraction. All stirred and boiled together to make a thick soup of noise and shadowy light. Rollo once lived in negative south end of the city. Now it is deep syndicate territory. The sons were chased out more than two months ago. I fly along the lines of plastic rope that weave through the cave canyons, passing dock workers and tower laborers who climb back to their little cage homes. They jerk their heads toward the throaty thrum of my new grav boots. It's an alien sound to them. One heard only over hollow vids or experimental virtual realities, low-world greens hawk for fifty credits a minute. Most will never have seen a peerless scarred in the flesh, much less one in full armor. I'm a terrifying spectacle. It was seven hours ago that my lieutenants and I clustered together in the Sons of Ares' ready room, and I told them, and Dancer back in Tinos, my plan. Six hours since I heard of Kavix's escape from our detention cell. Someone let him out. Five hours since Victor delivered Quicksilver and Matteo back to their tower, where Quicksilver has spent the remainder of the night activating his own cells and contacts in the Blue Hives, making preparation for this moment. Four hours since Quicksilver joined his security teams with Sons of Ares and gave them access to his armories and his weapons depots and we received word that two Augustus destroyers were inbound from the orbital docks. 
Three hours since Ragnar and Rolo took a thousand sons of Ares to the garbage hangers on level 43C to prepare their skiffs. Two hours since one of Quicksilver's private yachts was prepped for launch. One hour since the Society destroyers deployed four troop transports to dock at the Skyresh Interplanetary Spaceport, and the new coat of blood-red paint on my armor dried, and I donned it to march to war. All is ready. Now I carve a wake of silence into the heart of the hollows. My bone-white razor is on my arm. At my side flies Severo, wearing the huge spiked helmet of Ares with pride. He brought it along, but the rest of his armor is borrowed from Quicksilver. It's cutting-edge tech, better even than the suits we wore for Augustus. Holiday follows behind, along with a hundred sons of Ares. The sons are awkward on their grav boots. Some carry razors, others pulse fists, but, per my orders, not one wears a helmet as we fly. I wanted these low colors of the stacks witnessing our treason, so that they feel emboldened by reds and oranges and obsidians wearing the armor of their masters. The faces are a blur. A hundred thousand peering from the homes in every direction, pale and confused, most under the age of forty. Reds and oranges brought here with false promises, just like Rolo, with families down on Mars, just like Rolo. Neighbors point in my direction. I see my name on their lips. Somewhere, the syndicate watchmen will be dialing their superiors, relaying the news to the police or the Securitas anti-terrorism apparatus that the Reaper lives and he is on Phobos. I bait the beasts. As I coast into the central hub of the city, I say a silent prayer, willing Io to give me strength. There, like some pulsing electronic idol, fenced in by metal bramble, a holographic display casts society comedy programming, 100 meters long, 50 meters broad. It bathes the circle of cages around it in sickly neon light. Speakers laugh on cue. Blue light plays over my armor. Locks jingle as they're undone, and cages are pushed open so their inhabitants can sit on the edge and dangle their legs off to watch me without looking through the cage bars. Quicksilver's greens focus their helmet cameras on me. The suns array around, eyes smoldering out at the low colors. My honor guard their red hair floating like a hundred angry torch flames. Holiday and Ares flank me to either side, floating two hundred meters in the air, surrounded by cages. Silence gripping the city, except the laugh track of the comedy. It's sick and weird as it cackles out of the speakers. I nod to Quicksilver's greens, and they cut the noise, and somewhere in his tower... The hacker teams he's assembled hijack every broadcast on the moon and issue commands to secondary data hubs on Earth, Luna, the asteroid belt, Mercury, the moons of Jupiter. So my message will burn across the blackness of space, taking over the data web that links mankind. Quicksilver is proving his allegiance with this broadcast, using the network he helped the Jackal build. 
This is not like Eo's death. A viral video you have to dig for in the dark spaces of the Hollownet. This is a grand roar across the society, broadcasting on ten billion hollows to eighteen billion people. They gave these screens to us as chains. Today, we make them hammers. Carnos Albalona had his faults, but he was right when he said that all we have in this life is our shout into the wind. He shouted his own name, and I learned the folly in that. But before I begin the war that will claim me, one way or another, I will make my shout, and it will be something far greater than my own name, far greater than a roar of family pride. It is the dream I've carried and shepherded since I was sixteen. Eo appears beneath me on the hologram, replacing the comedy. A ghostly giant of the girl I knew. Her face is quiet and pale and angrier than in my dreams. Hair dull and stringy, clothing drab and ragged. But her eyes burn out from her grey surroundings, bright as the blood on her mangled back as she looks up from the metal whipping box. Her mouth barely seems to open, just a sliver of space between her lips. But her song bleeds from her, voice thin and fragile as a spring dream. My son, my son, remember the chains When gold ruled with iron reins We roared and roared and twisted and screamed For hours of ale of better dreams She echoes across the metal city louder than she echoed in that far-off lost city of stone. Her light flickering across the pale faces watching from their cages. These oranges and reds who never knew her in life, but hear her in death. They're silent and sad as she has walked to the gallows. I hear my vain cries, see myself sagging against grey hands, feel I'm there again. The hard-packed dirt on my knees as the world falls out from under me. Augustus speaks with Pliny and Leto as frayed hemp loops around Eo's neck. Hatred radiates from the faces in the stacks. I could no more stop Eo's death then than I can stop it now. It's as if it always has been. My wife falls. I flinch, hearing the rustling of her clothing, the creaking of the rope. And I look down at the hologram, forcing myself to watch as the boy I was stumbles forward to wrap his hands with their red sigils around her kicking legs. I watch him kiss her ankle and pull her feet with all his feeble strength. Her himanthus falls, and I speak. I would have lived in peace, but my enemies brought me war. My name is Darrow of Lycos. You know my story. It is but an echo of your own. They came to my home 
and killed my wife, not for singing a song, but for daring to question their reign, for daring to have a voice. For centuries, millions beneath the soil of Mars have been fed lies from cradle to grave. That lie has been revealed to them. Now they've entered the world you know, and they suffer as you do. Man was born free, but from the ocean shores to the crater cities of Mercury, to the ice waste of Pluto, down to the mines of Mars, he is in chains. Chains made of duty, hunger, fear. Chains hammered to our necks by a race that we lifted up. A race that we empowered. Not to rule, not to reign but to lead us from a world torn by war and greed. Instead, they have led us into darkness. They have used the systems of order and prosperity for their own gain. They expect your obedience, ignore your sacrifice, and hoard the prosperity that your hands create. To hold tight to their reign... They forbid our dreams, saying a person is only as good as the color of their eyes, of their sigils. I remove my gloves and clench my right fist in the air as Io did before she died, but unlike Io, my hands bear no sigils. Removed by Mickey when I was carved in Tinos, I am the first soul in hundreds of years to walk without them. The silence in the hollows gives way to sounds of shock, fear. But now I stand before you, a man unbound. I stand before you, my brothers and sisters, to ask you to join me, to throw yourselves on the machines of industry, to unite behind the sons of Ares, Take back your cities, your prosperity. Dare to dream of better worlds than these. Slavery is not peace. Freedom is peace. And until we have that, it is our duty to make war. This is no license for savagery or genocide. If a man rapes, you kill him on the spot. If a man murders civilians... High or low, you kill him on the spot. This is war, but you are on the side of good, and that carries a heavy burden. We rise not for hate, not for vengeance, but for justice, for your children, for their future. I speak now to gold, to the Orient who rule. I have walked your halls, broken your schools, eaten at your tables, and suffered your gallows. You tried to kill me. You could not. I know your power. I know your pride. And I have seen how you will fall. For seven hundred years you have ruled over the dominion of man, and this is all you have given us. It is not enough. 
Today, I declare your rule to be at its end. Your cities are not your cities. Your vessels are not your vessels. Your planets are not your planets. They were built by us. And they belong to us, the common trust of man. Now we take them back. Never mind the darkness you spread. Never mind the night you summon. We will rage against it. We will howl and fight till our last breath, not just in the mines of Mars, but on the shores of Venus, on the dunes of Io's sulphur seas, on the glacial valleys of Pluto. We will fight in the towers of Ganymede, and the ghettos of Luna, and the storm-stricken oceans of Europa. And if we fall, others will take our place, because we are the tide. And we are rising. Then Severo slams his fist against his chest. Once, twice, thumping it rhythmically. It is echoed by the two hundred sons of Ares, their fists pounding their chests. By the howlers. In the steel mesh of the cages, men and women thump their fists into the walls, till it sounds like the heartbeat rising through the bowels of this vampire moon, up through the hives of blues, where they sit drinking coffee and studying gravitational mathematics under the warm lights of their intellectual communes, through the grey barracks in each precinct, among the silvers at their trading desks, the golds in their mansions and yachts. Out through the black ink that separates our little bubbles of life, before careening down into the halls of the jackal's lonely hold on Attica, where he sits in his winter throne, surrounded by a sea of bent necks. There our sound rattles in his ears. There he hears my wife's heart beat on. And he cannot stop it, as it goes down and down into the mines of Mars, playing on the screens as reds beat on their tables, and the copper magistrates watch in swelling fear as the miners look hatefully up through the duroglass that keeps them imprisoned. Her heart beats mutinously through the bustling oceanside promenades of the archipelagos of Venus, as sailboats float proudly in the harbour, and shopping bags hang in frightened hands, and golds look to their drivers, their gardeners, the men who power their cities. It beats through the tin-roofed mess halls of the wheat and soybean latfundia that cover the great plains of earth, where reds use machines to toil under the huge sun to feed mouths of people they will never meet, in places they will never be. It beats even along the spine of the empire, raging through the spiked city moon of Luna, passing by the sovereign in her glass-high refuge, to thunder on down, snaking electrical wires and drying clothing lines, to the lost city, where a pink girl makes breakfast after a long night of thankless work, where a brown cook leans away from his stove to hear, as Grease spatters his apron, and a grey watches from the window of his patrol skiff 
as a violet girl smashes the front door of a post office and his datapad summons him back to the station for emergency riot protocols. And it beats inside me, this terrible hope, as I know that the end has begun, and I am finally awake. Break the chains, I roar, and my people roar back. Ragnar, I say into my calm, bring it down. The greens cut to a different feed as the fists thump and the cages rattle, and we see a distant shot of the society's military spire on Phobos, a goliath of a building with docks and vestibules for weapons. Efficient and ugly as a crab. From it, the jackal maintains his grip on the moon. There, the greys and obsidians will be donning armor under pale lights, rushing through metal halls in tight lines, stocking ammunition belts, and kissing pictures of their loved ones so they can come down to the hollows and make this heart stop beating. But they will never make it here, because as fists pound even harder into cages, the lights of that military spire go black. All her power turned off by Rolo and his men with the access cards provided by Quicksilver. We could have bombed the building, but I wanted a triumph of daring, of achievement, not destruction. We need heroes, not another Ash City. And so, a small squadron of a dozen maintenance skiffs coasts into view. Flat, ugly flyers designed to port reds and oranges like Rolo to their construction work on towers. Craggy stingrays covered with barnacles. But it isn't barnacles that cling to them now. Another camera takes a closer angle, and we can see each skiff is covered with hundreds of men. Reds and oranges in their clunky EVA suits. Almost half the sons of Ares on Phobos. Boots against the deck, harnesses latched into exterior buckles of the ship. They carry their welding gear and have Quicksilver's weapons patched onto their legs with magnetic tape. Among them, two feet taller than the others, is their general, Ragnar Volarus, in armor freshly painted bone white, a red sling blade painted on the chest and back. As the skiffs near the society military spire, they divide down the length of the building. Suns fire magnetic harpoons to tether the skiffs to the steel, and then they go with practiced ease along the lines, flying at implausible speeds as the little motors on their buckles pull them one by one along toward the building. It's like watching reds in the mines. The grace and nimbleness, even in the clunky suits, dazzles. More than a thousand welders pour onto the vast building like we did Quicksilver's Spire, but they're not playing for stealth, and they're better in null gravity than we were. Magnetic boots, clutching metal girders, they skitter across the building, melting through the viewports and entering with extreme prejudice. Dozens are ripped to shreds as greys inside fire railguns out the glass, but they fire back and pour inward. A rip-wing patrol banks in along the outside of the building and rakes two of the skiffs with chain guns. Men turn to mist. 
The sun fires a rocket at the ripwing. Fire blooms and vanishes, and the ship cracks in half in a gout of purple flame. The camera follows Ragnar as he breaches a window, enters a hall, and runs full tilt into a trio of gold knights, one who I recognize as the cousin of Priam, the man Severo killed in the passage, and whose mother owns the deed to Phobos. Ragnar flows through the young knight without stopping, swinging both razors like scissors and undulating the war cry of his people, followed by a pack of heavily armed welders and laborers. I told him I wanted the spire. I didn't tell him how to take it. He walked off with Rolo, putting an arm around the man. Now the world's watcher's slave become a hero. This moon belongs to you, Severo says, roaring to the roiling cage city. Rise and take it. Rise, men of Mars, women of Mars, rise, you bloody damn bastards, rise! Men and women are pulling themselves from their homes, donning their boots and jackets, pushing themselves toward us so that thousands clog the air avenues, crawling over the outside of the cages. The tide has risen, and I feel a deep terror in wondering exactly what will wash away. Rape and murder of innocence is punishable by death. This is war, but you are on the side of good. Remember that, you little shitheads. Protect your brothers. Protect your sisters. All residents of Section 1A to 4C, you are to take the armory in Level 14. Residents of Section 5C to 3F are to take the water purification center on... Severo seizes control of the battle, and the howlers and sons disperse to organize the mob. It isn't an army, but a battering ram. Many will die. And when they die, more will rise in their place. This is just one of the stack cities of Phobos. The sons will supply them with weapons, but there won't be nearly enough to go around. Their sword is the press of flesh. Severo will lead them, spend them. Victra in Quicksilver spires will guide them, and the moon will fall to the rebellion. But I will not be here to see it. Chapter 24 Hic Sunt Leones Phobos is in uproar. Detonations shake the moon as Holiday and I run through the halls. Golds and silvers evacuate the needles in their flashing luxury yachts, as kilometers beneath the hollows swarm with packs of low-color mobs armed with welding torches, fusion cutters, pipes, black market scorchers, and old-fashioned slug throwers. The mobs are overwhelming the tram systems and passages to gain access to the mid-sector and needles, while the society military garrison, caught reeling from the attack on their headquarters, rushes to stop the upward migration. The legions have training and organization on their side. We have numbers and surprise. Not to mention fury. No matter how many checkpoints the greys blockade, how many trams the greys destroy, the low colors will seep through the cracks because they made this place, because they have allies among the mid-colors, thanks to Quicksilver. They open derelict transportation tunnels, hijack cargo ships in the industrial sector, 
pack them full of men and women and steer them for the luxury hangars and the needles, or even towards the public Skyresh interplanetary spaceport, where cruise liners and passenger ships are being loaded with evacuees. I'm remotely jacked into Quicksilver security grid, watching high colors stampede over one another, carrying luggage and valuables and children. Martian Navy rip wings and fast-moving fighters dart through the towers, shooting down the rebel ships rising from the hollows toward the needles. The debris from a destroyed low-color skiff crashes through the vaulted glass and steel ceiling of a Skyresh terminal, killing civilians and shattering any illusion I might have had that this war would be sanitary. Ducking away from a mob of low-colors, Holiday and I arrive outside a derelict hangar in the old freight garages, which haven't been used since before the time of Augustus. It's quiet here. Abandoned. The old pedestrian entrance is welded shut. Radiation signs warn potential scavengers away, but the doors open for us with a deep groan when a modern retinal scanner built into the metal registers my irises, as Quicksilver said it would. The hangar is a vast rectangle skinned with dust and cobwebs. In the center of the hangar's deck sits a silver, seventy-meter-long luxury yacht shaped like a sparrow in flight. It's a custom-built model out of the Venusian shipyards, ostentatious, fast, and perfect for an obscenely wealthy war refugee. Quicksilver plucked it from his fleet to help us blend in with the migrating upper class. Its rear cargo plank is down, and inside the bird is filled to capacity with black crates stamped with the Sun Industries winged heel, inside of which are several billion credits worth of high-tech weapons and equipment. Holiday whistles. Gotta love deep pockets. The fuel would cost my annual wages twice over. We cross the hangar to meet Quicksilver's pilot. The trim young blue waits at the bottom of the ramp. She has no eyebrows and her head is bald. Winding blue lines pulse beneath the skin, where subdermal synaptic links connect her remotely to the ship. She snaps to attention, eyes wide. Clearly, she had no idea who she was transporting until now. Sir, I am Lieutenant Vesta. I'll be your pilot today. And I must say, it's an honor to have you on board. There's three levels to the yacht. The upper and bottom for gold use, the middle for cooks, servants, and crew. There's four staterooms, a sauna, and creme leather seats with dainty little chocolates and napkins sitting primly on armrests in the passenger cabin to the far back of the cockpit. I pocket one, and then a couple more. As Holiday and Vesta prep the ship, I strip off my pulse armor in the passenger cabin and unpack winter gear from one of the boxes. I dress in skin-tight nanofiber weave that's much like scarab skin, but instead of black, it's mottled white and looks oily except for textured grips on the elbows, gloves, buttocks, and knees. It's crafted for polar temperatures and water immersion. It's also a hundred pounds lighter than our pulse armor, is immune to digital component failures, and has the added benefit of not needing batteries. Much as I enjoy using 400 million credits worth of technology to make me a flying human tank, sometimes warm pants are more valuable. And we'll always have the pulse armor if we need it in a pinch.
I'm struck by the silence in the cargo bay and the hangar as I finish lacing my boots. There's still fifteen minutes left on my datapad's timer, so I sit on the edge of the ramp, legs dangling off, to wait for Ragnar. I pull the chocolates from my pocket and slowly peel the foil off. Taking half a bite, I let the chocolate sit on my tongue, waiting for it to melt, as I always do. And as always, I lose patience and chew it before the bottom half has melted through. Ear would make candy last for days, when we were lucky enough to have it. I set my datapad on the ground and watch the helmet cameras of my friends as they wage my war for Phobos. Their chatter trembles out of the datapad speakers, echoing in the vast metal chamber. Severo's in his element, rushing through the central ventilation unit with hundreds of suns, loading themselves into the air ducts. I feel guilty for sitting here, watching them, but we each have our parts to play. The door we entered through opens with a groan, and Ragnar and two of the obsidian howlers enter the room. Fresh from the battlefield, Ragnar's white armor is dented and stained. Did you play gently with the fools, my goodman? I call down from the ramp in my thickest high lingo. In reply, he tosses up to me a carule, a twisted gold scepter of power given to high-ranking military officers. This one is tipped with a screaming banshee and a splash of crimson. The tower has fallen, Ragnar says. Rolo and the sons finish my work. These are the stains of sub-governor Priscilla Aukan. Well done, my friend, I say, taking the scepter in my hands. On it is carved the deeds of the Khan family, which owned the two moons of Mars and once followed Bologna to war. Among great warriors and statesmen, there's a young man I recognize standing by a horse. What is wrong? Ragnar asks. Nothing, I say. I knew her son is all. Priam. He seemed decent enough. Decent is not enough, Ragnar says forlornly. Not for their world. With a grunt, I bend the carule against my knee and toss it back to him to show my agreement. Give it to your sister. Time to go. Glancing back at the hangar with a frown, he checks his datapad and files past me into the cargo hold. I try to wipe the blood from the curule off my white suit's leg. It just smears over the oily fabric, giving me a red stripe on my thigh. I close the ramp behind me. Inside, I help Ragnar out of his pulse armor and let him slip into the winter gear as I join Holiday and Vesta as they initiate pre-flight launch. Remember, we're refugees. Aim for the largest convoy heading out of here and stick to them. Vesta nods. It's an old hangar, so it has no pulse field. All that separates us from space are five-story tall steel doors. They rumble as the motors begin to retract them into the ceiling and floor. Stop, I say. Vesta sees what caught my attention a second after I do, and her hand flashes to the controls, stopping the doors before they part and open the hangar to vacuum. I'll be damned, Holiday says, peering out the cockpit to a small figure blocking our ship's path to space.
It's the lion. Mustang stands in front of the ship, illuminated by our headlights. Her hair washed white by the blinding light. She blinks as Holiday cuts the headlights from the cockpit, and I make my way to her through the dim hangar. Her dancing eyes dissect me as I come. They dart from my sigil barren hands to the scar I've kept on my face. What does she see? Does she see my resolve? My fear? In her I see so much. The girl I fell in love with in the snow is gone. Replaced in the last fifteen months by a woman. A thin, intense leader of vast and enduring strength and alarming intellect. Eyes kinetic, ringed by circles of exhaustion and trapped in a face made pale from long days in sunless lands and metal halls. Everything she is dwells behind her eyes. She has her father's mind, her mother's face, and a distant, foreboding sort of intelligence that can give you wings or crush you to the earth. And just at her hip sits a ghost cloak with a cooling unit. She has watched us since we arrived. How did she get inside the hangar? Low Reaper, she says playfully as I come to a halt. Low Mustang. I search the rest of the hangar. How did you find me? She frowns in confusion. I thought you wanted me to come. Ragnar told Kavax where I could find you. She trails off. Oh, you didn't know. No. I look back up at the ship's mirror cockpit windows, where Ragnar must be watching me. The man's overstepped his bounds. Even as I arranged a war, he went behind my back and endangered my mission. Now I know exactly how Severo felt. Where have you been? She asks me. With your brother. Then the execution was a ruse meant to make us stop looking. There's so much more to say. So many questions and accusations that could fly between us. But I didn't want to see her because I don't know where to begin. What to say, what to ask for. I don't have time for small talk, Mustang. I know you came to Phobos to surrender to the Sovereign. Now why are you here talking to me? Don't talk down to me, she says sharply. I wasn't surrendering. I was making peace. You're not the only one with people to protect. My father ruled Mars for decades. Its people are as much a part of me as they are a part of you. You left Mars at the mercy of your brother, I say. I left Mars to save it, she corrects. You know everything is a compromise. And you know it's not Mars you're angry at me for leaving. I need you to stand aside, Mustang. This is not about us, and I don't have time to bicker. I'm leaving, so either you move or we open the door and fly through you. Fly through me? She laughs. You know, I didn't have to come alone. I could have come with my bodyguards. I could have lay in wait to ambush you, or reported you to the Sovereign to salvage the peace you ruined. 
but I didn't. Can you stop for a single moment to think why? She takes a step forward. You said to me in that tunnel that you want a better world. Can't you see that I listened? That I joined the Moon Lords because I believe in something better? Yet you surrendered. Because I could not watch my brother's reign of terror continue. I want peace. This is not the time for peace, I say. Gory hell, you're thick. I know that. Why do you think I'm here? Why do you think I've worked with Orion and kept your soldiers at their stations? I examine her. I honestly don't know. I'm here because I want to believe in you, Darrow. I want to believe in what you said in that tunnel. I ran from you because I didn't want to accept that the only answer was the sword. But the world we live in has conspired to take everything I love away. My mother, my father, my brothers. I will not let it take the friends I have left. I will not let it take you. What are you saying? I ask. I'm saying that I'm not letting you out of my sight. I'm coming with you. It's my turn to laugh. You don't even know where I'm going. You're wearing sealskin. Ragnar's on board. You've declared open rebellion. Now you're leaving in the middle of the largest battle the Rising has ever seen. Really, Darrow, it doesn't take a genius to deduce that now you're using this ship to pretend to be a gold refugee to escape and go to the Valkyrie Spires to beseech Ragnar's mother to provide an army. Damn. I try not to let my surprise show. This is why I did not want to involve Mustang. Inviting her into the game is adding another dimension I can't control. She could destroy my gambit with a single call to her brother, to the Sovereign, telling them where I am going. Everything relies on misdirection, on my enemies thinking I am on Phobos. She knows what I'm thinking. I can't let her leave this hangar. The Telemannuses know as well, she says, knowing my mind. But I'm tired of having insurance plans against you. Tired of playing games. You and I have pushed each other away because of broken trust. Aren't you tired of that? Of the secrets between us? Of the guilt? You know I am. I laid my secrets bare in the tunnels of Lycos. Then let this be our second chance. For you, for me, for both our people. I want what you want. And when you and I are aligned, when have we ever lost? Together we can build something, Darrow. You're suggesting an alliance, I say quietly. Yes. Her eyes are afire. The might of House Augustus and Telemannus and Arcos, united with the Rising, with the Reaper, with Orion and all her ships, the society would tremble. Millions will die in that war, I say. You know that. The peerless scarred will fight to the last gold. Can you stomach that? Can you watch that happen? To build, we must break, she says. I was listening. 
Still, I shake my head. There's too much to overcome between us, between our people. It would be a qualified victory on her terms. How could I ask my men to trust a gold army? How could I trust you? You can't. That is why I'm coming with you. To prove I believe in your wife's dream. But you have to prove something to me. That you are worthy of my trust in turn. I know you can break. I need to see that you can build. I need to see what you will build. If the blood we will shed is for something. Prove that, and you have my sword. Fail, and you and I will go our separate ways. She cocks her head at me. So what say you, Helldiver? Do you want to give it one more go? Chapter 25 Exodus I help unbuckle Mustang's pulse armor in the cargo hold. Cold gear is in here, I gesture to a large plastic box. Boots in there. Quicksilver gave you the keys to his armory, she asks, eyeing the winged heel on the boxes. How many fingers did it cost him? None, I say. He's a son of Ares. What now? I grin. Comforting knowing the world isn't an open book for her. The engines rumble and the ship rises underneath us. Get dressed and join us in the cabin. I leave her behind to change in private. I was more gruff than I intended, but it felt strange smiling in her presence. I find Ragnar leaning back in his chair in the passenger cabin, eating chocolates, white boots up on the adjacent armrest. No offense, but what the hell are you doing? Holliday asks me. She stands, arms crossed, between the cockpit and the passenger cabin. Sir? Taking a risk, I say. I know it might seem strange to you, Holiday, but I go back with her. She's the definition of the elite. Worse than Victra. Her father killed my wife, I say. So if I can stomach it, so can you. Holiday makes a whistling sound and heads back to the cabin, unhappy with our new ally. So, the Mustang joined our quest, Ragnar says. She's getting dressed, I reply. You had no right to let Kavax go. Much less tell him where we would be. What if they gave us up, Ragnar? What if they ambushed us? You would never have seen your home. If they find out we're there, they'll never let your people off the surface. They'll kill them all. Did you think of that? He eats another chocolate. A man thinks he can fly, but he is afraid to jump. A poor friend pushes him from behind. He looks up at me. A good friend jumps with. You've been reading Stoneside, haven't you? Ragnar nods. Theodora gave it to me. Lorne Ao Arcos was a great man. He'd be glad you think so. But take everything with a grain of salt. The biographer took some liberties, especially in his early life. 
Lorne would have told you that we need her. Now, in war, and after, in peace. If we do not bring her to our cause, then we will not win until every gold is dead. That is not why I fight. Ragnar rises to greet Mustang as she joins us. The last time they stood eye to eye, she had a gun pointed at his head. Ragnar, you've been busy since I last saw you. Not a gold alive doesn't know and fear your name. Thank you for releasing Kavax. Family is dear, Ragnar says, but I warn you. We go to my lands. You are under my protection. If you play your tricks, if you play your games, that protection is forfeit. And even you will not survive long on the ice without me, daughter of the lion. Do you understand? Mustang bows her head respectfully. I do. And I will repay your faith in me, Ragnar. I promise you that. Enough chatter. Time to buckle up. Holiday snaps from the cabin. Vestas synced with the ship and pushing out of the hangar. We find our seats. There's twenty to choose from, but Mustang takes the one next to me in the left aisle. Her hand grazes my hip accidentally as she reaches for her seat harness. Our ship departs the hangar, silently floating forward into the vacuum of the dim, subcutaneous industrial world of Phobos. Pipes and loading docks and garbage bays as far as we can see. Closed off to the stars and the light of the sun. Few ships as lovely as ours have ever flown so far beneath the surface of Phobos. The word low sector is rendered in white paint over an industrial transport hub where men pour into ships, and the ships trundle up out of this dim world toward the sector gates that the suns have breached. Our sleek yacht passes a motley fleet of slow-moving garbage haulers and freighters. Inside, men and women huddle quietly together in windowless, dirty steel cubes. Sweat drenches their backs, their hands shake, holding unfamiliar instruments. Weapons. They pray they can be as brave as they've always imagined themselves to be. Then they land in some gold hangar. The sons will shout orders, the doors will open, and they will meet war. I silently pray for them, clenching my hands as I stare out the window. I feel Mustang watching me, measuring the tides deep within. Soon we leave the industrial stacks behind, trading the dim recesses for the neon advertisements that bathe the space boulevards of the mid-sector. Man-made canyons of steel to either side. Trams, elevators, apartments. Every screen connected to the web has been slaved by Quicksilver's hackers, showing images of Severo and the Suns overrunning security gates and checkpoints, painting scythes on walls. And around us, the city of thirty million Charns. Deep space commercial transports racing past little civilian taxis and skippers meant to go between the buildings here. Freighters soar from the hollows, up through the mid-sector toward the needles. A flight of rip-wings hunts through the streets above us. I hold my breath. 
With the flip of a trigger, they could shred us. But they don't. They register our high-color ID and hail us over the comms and offer an escort out of the war zone toward a current of yachts and skiffs that blaze quietly away from the moon. Stirring speech. Victor purrs over the ship's comm as I answer the call from Quicksilver's tower, her bored voice at odds with the warring world around us. Clown and Screwface just took Skyresh's main terminals. Rolo's men have seized the water systems for the mid-sector. Quicksilver's networks are broadcasting it all the way to Luna. Scythes popping up everywhere. There's riots in Aegea, Corinth, everywhere on Mars. And we're hearing the same from Earth and Luna. Municipal buildings are falling. Police stations burning. You've woken the rabble. They'll hit back soon. As you said, darling. We massacred the first responders the jackal sent. Got a few bone riders just as we wanted. No Lilith or Thistle, though. Damn. Worth a shot. Martian Navy is on its way from Dimos. The legions are coming, and we're making our final preparations. Good. Good. Victra, I need you to let Severo know that we've added a member to our expedition. Mustangs joined us. Silence from her. Am I on a private line? Holiday tosses me a headset from the cockpit. I wrestle the headset on. You are now. You don't agree. The bitterness in her tone is acute. Here are my thoughts. You can't trust her. Look at her brother. Her father. Greed is in her blood. Of course she would ally with us. It fits her aims. I watch Mustang as Victor speaks. She needs us because she's losing her war. But what happens when we give her what she needs? What happens when we're in her way? Will you be able to put her down? Will you be able to pull the trigger? Yes. Victor's words linger as we pass Phobos's giant glass spires. Cockpit skimming a dozen meters above the panes of the building. Inside royal little worlds of madness. The rising has reached the needles in this district of the city. Low colors push inexorably through the halls, grays and silvers barricading doors. Pinks standing in a bedroom over a bleeding old gold and his wife, knives in hand. Three silver children watching Ares on a wall-sized hollow as their parents speak in the library. And at last, a gold woman in a sky-blue cocktail dress, pearls about her neck, gold hair unbound to her waist. She stands near a window as sons of Ares spread through the building, levels beneath her penthouse. Engulfed in her own drama, she raises a scorcher to her golden head, body stiff in imagined majesty, her finger tightens around the trigger. And we're past, leaving her life and the chaos behind to join with the flow of yachts and pleasure craft that flee the battle for the safety of the planet. Most of the refugees call Mars home. Their ships, unlike ours, are not equipped for deep space. 
Now they scatter over the planet's atmosphere like burning seeds, most plunging straight for the spaceport of Corinth beneath us in the middle of the thermic sea. Others skimming over the atmosphere, disregarding designated transit lanes. Racing past the jackal's hastily erected blockade and the satellite level, toward their homes in the opposite hemisphere. Ripwings and wasps from the military frigates flash after them, trying to herd them back to the designated avenues. But entitlement and chaos are a poor mix. Mania grips these fleeing golds. The Dido, Mustang says quietly to herself, eyeing a glass ship the shape of a sailboat to our starboard. Drusilla Auran's vessel, she taught me how to paint watercolors when I was little. But my attention is farther out, where ugly, dark vessels without the flashing hulls or fanciful lines of the pleasure craft race toward Phobos. It's more than half the Martian defense fleet. Frigates, torch ships, destroyers. Even two dreadnoughts. I wonder if the jackal is on one of those bridges. Likely not. It's probably Lilith who leads the detachment, or some other preter newly appointed in his regime. Antonia has been dispatched to aid Roke on the rim. Their ships will be packed with lifelong soldiers, men and women as hard as we are, many who fell in my iron reign, and they will cut through the mob I've summoned inside Phobos like paper. They'll be furious and confident. The more the better. It's a trap, isn't it? Mustang asks quietly. You never meant to hold Phobos. Do you know how the Inuit tribes of Earth killed wolves? I ask. She doesn't. Slower and weaker than the wolves, they chiseled knives till they were razor sharp, coated them in blood, and stuck them upright in the ice. Then the wolves would come and lick the blood, and as the wolf licks faster and faster, he's so ravenous he doesn't realize until it's too late that the blood he's drinking is his own. I nod to the passing military vessels. They hate that I was one of them. How many prime soldiers do you think those ships will launch at Phobos to take me? The great abomination for their own glory. Pride will again be the downfall of your color. You're trying to get them on the station, she says, understanding, because you don't need Phobos. Like you said, I'm going to the Valkyrie Spires for an army. Orion and you might still have the remnants of my fleet, but we will need more ships than that. Severo is waiting in the ventilation system of the hangars. When the assault forces land to take back the military spire and the needles— They'll leave their shuttles behind in those hangars. Severo will descend from his hiding place, hijack the shuttles, and return them home to their ships, packed with all the sons we have left. And you honestly believe you can control the obsidian? She asks. Not me. Him. I nod to Ragnar. They live in fear of their gods in the Board of Quality Control's Asgard station, golds in suits of armor playing at Odin and Freya, same way that I lived in fear of the greys in the pot. 
as we were cowed by the proctors. Ragnar's going to show them just how mortal their gods really are. How? We will kill them, Ragnar says. I have sent friends ahead months ago to spread the truth. We will return to my mother and my sister as heroes, and I will tell them their gods are false with my own tongue. I will show them how to fly. I will give them weapons, and this ship will carry them to Asgard, and we will conquer it as Darrow conquered Olympus. Then we will free the other tribes and carry them away from this land on Quicksilver's ships. That's why you have a gory damn armory back there, Mustang says. What do you think? I ask her. Possible. Insane, she says, awed by the audacity of it. Might be possible, though. Only if Ragnar can actually control them. I will not control. I will lead. He says it with quiet certainty. Mustang admires the man for a moment. I believe you will. I watch Ragnar as he looks back out the window. What passes behind those dark eyes? This is the first time I felt like he's not telling me something. He already deceived me by releasing Kavax. What else does he plan? We listen in tense silence to the radio waves crackle with yacht captains requesting docking clearance on the military frigates instead of continuing down to the planet. Connections are used, bribes offered, strings pulled, men weep and beg. These civilians are discovering that their place in the world is smaller than they imagined. They do not matter. In war, men lose what makes them great. Their creativity, their wisdom, their joy. All that's left is their utility. War is not monstrous for making corpses of men so much as it is for making machines of them. And woe to those who have no use in war except to feed the machines. The peerless scarred know this cold truth, and they have trained for centuries for this new age of war. Killing in the passage. Struggling through the deprivation of the Institute so that they might have worth when war comes. Time for pixies with deep pockets and expensive tastes to appreciate the realities of life, you do not matter unless you can kill. The bill, as Lorne often said, comes at the end. Now the pixies pay. A gold preter's voice cuts through the speakers of our ship, ordering the refugee ships to redirect toward authorized transit lanes and steer clear of Navy warships or they will be fired upon. The Preta cannot afford unauthorized vessels within 100 kilometers of her ship. They could carry bombs, could carry sons of Ares. Two yachts ignore the warnings and are ripped apart as one of the cruisers fires railguns into their hulls. The Preta repeats her order. This time it is obeyed. I look over at Mustang and wonder what she thinks of this. Of me wishing she could be somewhere quiet, where a thousand things didn't pull at us, where I ask about her instead of the war. 
Feels like the end of the world, she says. No. I shake my head. It is the beginning of a new one. I have to believe that. The planetscape below is blue and speckled white as we pretend to follow the designated coordinates along the western hemisphere at the equator. Tiny green islands ringed with tan beaches wink up at us from the indigo waters of the thermic sea. Beneath, ships jerk and burn as they hit atmosphere before us. Like phosphorus firecrackers, you and I played with as children, kicking spasmodically and glowing orange, then blue, as heat friction builds along their shields. Our blue veers us away, following a series of other ships who depart the general flow of traffic for their own homes. Soon, Phobos is half a planet away. The continents pass beneath. One by one, the other ships descend and were left alone on her journey to the uncivilized pole, flying past several dozen society satellites that monitor the southernmost continent. They too have been hacked into recycling information pulled from three years ago. We're invisible, for now. Not just to our enemies, but to our friends. Mustang leans from her chair, peering up into the cockpit. What is that? She gestures to the sensor display. A single dot follows behind us. Another refugee ship from Phobos. The pilot answers. Civilian vessel, no weapons. But it's closing fast, trailing behind us by 200 kilometers. If it's a civilian vessel, why did it just appear on our sensors? Mustang asks. It could have sensor shielding. Dampeners, Holliday says warily. The ship closes to 40 kilometers. Something is wrong here. Civilian vessels don't have that sort of acceleration, Mustang says. Dive, I say. Get us through the atmosphere now. Holiday, on the gun. The blue slips into defense protocols, increasing our speed, strengthening our rear shields. We hit atmosphere. My teeth rattle together. The ship's electronic voice suggests passengers find their seats. Holiday stumbles up, rushing past us to the tail gun. Then a warning siren trills as the ship behind us morphs on the radar screen, sharp contours of hidden weapons blossoming from its formerly smooth hull. It follows us into the atmosphere, and it fires. Our pilot twists her thin hands in the gel controls. My stomach lurches. Hypersonic depleted uranium shells scar the canvas of clouds and icy terrain, superheating as they streak past. The ship jerks as we hit atmosphere ourselves. Our pilot continues to juke, twitching her fingers in the electric gel, face placid and lost in her dance with the pursuing craft, her eyes distant from her body, a single droplet of sweat beading on her right temple and trickling down her jaw. Then a grey blur rips into the cockpit, and she explodes in a shower of meat, spattering the viewports and my face with blood. The uranium shell takes off the top half of her body, then rips through the floor. A second shell the size of a child's head screams through the ship between Mustang and me, punching a hole in floor and ceiling. Wind shrieks. Emergency masks fall into our laps. Warning sirens warble as pressure rushes from our ship, whipping our hair. 
I see the blackness of the ocean through the hole in the floor, stars through the hole in the ceiling as our oxygen leaks out. The pursuing ship continues to fire into our dying ship. I huddle in terror with my hands over my head, teeth locked together, everything human in me screaming. Laughter, evil and inhuman, rumbles so loud I think it's coming from the buffeting wind. But it comes from Ragnar, his head tilted back as he laughs to his gods. Odin knows we are coming to kill him. Even false gods do not die easily. He throws himself from his seat and runs down the hall, laughing insanely, not listening as I shout for him to sit down. Shells whisper past him. I am coming, Odin. I am coming for you. Mustang dons her emergency mask and pushes the release on her safety webbing before I can gather my thoughts. The ship bucks, slamming her into the ceiling and the floor, hard enough to crack the skull of any but an aureate. Blood spills over her forehead from the gash in her hairline, and she clutches to the floor, waiting till the ship rolls again to angle herself so that she can use gravity to fall into the co-pilot chair. She lands awkwardly against the armrests, but manages to drag herself into the seat and buckle in. More warning lights pulse on the blood-drenched console. I look back down the hall to see if Ragnar and Holiday are alive, only to see a trio of shells savage the room behind us. My teeth clatter in my skull, gut vibrating with the champagne flutes in the cabinet to my left. I can't do anything but hold on as Mustang tries to arrest our fall through orbit. The seat's gel webbing tightens against my ribcage. I feel the G-forces crushing me. Time seems to slow as the world beneath swells. We're through the clouds. On the sensor, I see something small zip away from our ship and collide into the one trailing. Light flares behind us. Snow and mountains and ice flows dilate till they're all I can see through the broken cockpit window. Wind howls shatteringly cold against my face. Brace for impact! Mustang shouts over it. In five! We plummet toward a sheaf of ice floating in the middle of the sea. On the horizon, a bloody ribbon of red ties the twilight sky to the ragged coastline of volcanic rock. A giant man stands atop the rock, black and huge against the red light. I blink, wondering if my mind is playing tricks on me, if I'm seeing Fitchner before my death. The man's mouth is an open, dark chasm into which no light escapes. Darrow, tuck in, Mustang shouts. I lower my head between my knees, wrap my arms around it. Three... Two, one, our ship punches into the ice. Chapter 26 The Ice All is dark and cold as we sink into the sea. Waters rushed in through the mangled back of the ship and gurgles through the dozen gaping holes in the cockpit. We're already beneath the waves, the last air bubbling out into the darkness. The crash webbing sinked tight around my body upon impact, expanding to protect my bones. But now it's killing me, dragging me down with the ship. 
The water is freezing needles against my face. Sealskin protects my body, though, so I cut through the webbing with my razor, pressure building in my ears as I search frantically for Mustang. She's alive, and already working on escape. A light in her hand carves through the darkness of the flooded cockpit. Her razor's out, cutting through her webbing like I did. I push myself through the flooded cabin toward her. The back of the ship is missing. Three levels of vessel torn off and floating elsewhere in the darkness with Ragnar and Holiday inside. My neck's locked up from whiplash. I suck at the oxygen from the mask that covers my nose and mouth. Mustang and I communicate silently, using the signals of grey lurcher squads. The human instinct is to flee the crash as fast as possible, but training reminds us to count our breaths, to think clinically. There are supplies here we might need. Mustang searches in the cockpit for the standard emergency kit while I search for my equipment bag. It's missing, along with the rest of the gear in the cargo hold that we were bringing the obsidians to seize Asgard. Mustang joins me, carrying a plastic emergency box the size of her torso, which she pulled from a cabinet behind the pilot's chair. Taking a last breath, we leave the oxygen behind. We swim to the edge of the torn hull, where the ship ends and the ocean begins. It is an abyss. Mustang turns off her light as I tie our belts together with a length of the crash webbing I took from my seat. Designed to keep the obsidians trapped in their icy continent, the carved creatures here are man-eaters. I've seen pictures of the things, translucent and fanged, eyes bulging, skin pale, worming with blue veins. Light and heat attract them. To swim in open water with a flashlight would draw things from the deeper levels. Even Ragnar wouldn't dare. Unable to see farther than a hand's breadth in front of us, we push away from the yacht's corpse in the black water, fighting for every agonizing meter. I can't see Mustang beside me. We're sluggish in the cold water, limbs burning as they claw darkness, but my mind is locked and certain. We will not die in this ocean. We will not drown. I repeat it over and over, hating the water. Mustang kicks my foot, disrupting our rhythm. I try to match it again. Where's the surface? There's no sun to greet us, to tell us we're near. It's wildly disorienting. Mustang kicks my leg again. Only this time I feel the ripple of the water beneath as something large and fast and cold swims in the depths below. I slash down blindly with my razor, hitting nothing. Impossible to fight back the panic. I'm swinging at the darkness of the two kilometers of ocean that stretches beneath me, and pumping my legs so desperately that I swim into the ice crust atop the water, almost knocking myself out. I feel Mustang's hand on my back, steadying me. The ice is dull grey skin that stretches above us. I stab my razor up into it, hear Mustang doing the same beside me. It's too thick to push clear of. I grip her shoulder and draw a circle to signal my plan. 
by turn saw my back is against hers. Together, nearly blind and out of oxygen, we cut a circle in the ice. I keep going until I feel the ice give slightly. It's too heavy to push up without traction, too buoyant to pull down with just our arms. So I swim to the side, so Mustang can savage the cylinder we've cut with her razor, mincing the ice enough to push the emergency box through first. She follows and extends a hand to aid me. I slash blindly back down at the darkness and follow her up. We collapse, head first, onto the rock-hard surface of the ice. Wind rattles over our shaking bodies. We're on the edge of an ice shelf between a savage coastline and the beginning of a cold, black sea. The sky throbs deep metallic blue. The South Pole locked in two months of twilight as it transitions to winter. The mountainous coastline, dark and twisted, maybe three kilometers off, ice stretching all the way, punctured by icebergs. Wreckage burns on the coast's mountains. Wind rushes in off the open water ahead of a coming storm, whipping the waves into calamity, so salt and spray hiss over the ice like sand buffeting through the desert. Water geysers into the air fifty meters closer inland as someone fires a pulse fist from underneath the ice. Numb and frozen, we rush toward Holiday as she pulls herself free, Mustang trailing behind with the emergency box. Where is Ragnar? I shout. Holiday looks up at me, face twisted and pale. Blood pools from her leg, a piece of shrapnel sticking through her thigh. Her sealskin has kept her from the worst of the cold, but she didn't have time to don her suit's hood or gloves. She tightens a tourniquet around her leg, looking back into the hole. I don't know, she says. You don't know? I rip my razor free and stumble for the hole. Holiday scrambles in front of me. Something is down there. Ragnar pulled it off me. I'm going down, I say. What? Holiday snaps. It's pitch black. You'll never find him. You don't know that. You'll die, she says. I won't let him go. Darrow, stop. She throws down the pulse fist and pulls Trigg's pistol from her leg holster and shoots it in front of my foot. Stop! What are you doing? I shout over the wind. I will shoot your leg out before I let you kill yourself. That's what you're doing if you go down there. You'd let him die. He's not my mission. Her eyes are hard, unsentimental and clinical. So different from the way I fight. I know she'll pull the trigger to save my life. I'm about to lunge at her when Mustang flashes past to my left, too fast for me to say anything or for Holiday to threaten her, as she dives into the hole, a razor in her right hand and in her left, a flare blazing bright. Chapter 27 Bay of Laughter I rush into the hole. Water laps peaceably at the edge. The ice is too thick to see Mustang beneath the surface as she swims, but the flare glows gently through the meter of dirty ice, blue and wandering toward the land. I follow it. Holiday tries to drag herself after. I shout at her to stay and get the medkit for herself. I follow Mustang's light. 
razor skimming over the ice, tracing the light underneath for several minutes, till, at last, the light stops. It's not enough time for her to run out of breath, but it doesn't move for ten seconds, and then it begins to fade. Ice and water darkening as the light sinks to the sea. I have to get her out. I slam my razor into the ice, carving a chunk free. I roar as I jam my fingers into the cracks and lift it up, hurling it backward over my head to reveal water churning with pale bodies and blood. Mustang bursts to the surface, crying in pain. Ragnar's beside her, blue and still, pinned under her left arm as her right hacks at something pale in the water. I stab my razor into the ice behind me and hold on to the hilt. Mustang reaches for my hand, and I haul her out. Then we pull Ragnar out with a roar of effort. Mustang claws onto the ice, falling down with Ragnar. But she's not alone. A maggot-white creature the size of a small man has latched itself to her back. It's shaped like a snail in full sprint, except its back is tough. Hairy, translucent flesh mottled with dozens of shrieking little mouths, rimmed with needle teeth that gnaw into her back. It's eating her alive. A second creature the size of a large dog is stuck on Ragnar's back. Get it off! Mustang snarls, slashing wildly with her razor. Get it off me! The creature is stronger than it should be, and crawls back toward the hole in the ice, trying to drag her back to its home. A gunshot echoes, and the creature jerks as a slug from Holiday's bullet hits it square in the side. Black blood pulses out. The creature shrieks and slows enough for me to rush to Mustang and scalp the thing from her back with my razor. I kick it to the side, where it spasms as it dies. I cut Ragnar's beast in half, skinning it off his back, and hurl it to the side. There's more down there. And something bigger, Mustang says, struggling to her feet. Her face tightens as she sees Ragnar. I rush to him. He's not breathing. Watch the hole, I tell Mustang. My massive friend looks so childish there on the ice. I start CPR. He's missing his left boot. The socks halfway off. Foot jerks against the ice as I pump his chest. Holiday stumbles to us, pupils huge from painkillers, her legs bound with res flesh from the medkit. She collapses to the ice beside Ragnar, tugs his sock back on his foot like it matters. Come back, I hear myself saying, spit freezing against my lips, eyelids crusty with tears I didn't even know I was shedding. Come back, your work isn't finished. The howler tattoo is dark against his paling skin. The protection runes like tears on his white face. Your people need you, I say. Holiday holds his hand, both of hers not equal to the size of the massive six-fingered paw. Do you want them to win? Holiday asks. Wake up, Ragnar, wake up! He jerks beneath my hands chest twitching as his heart kicks. Water bubbles out of his mouth, arms scrabbling at the ice in confusion as he coughs for air. He sucks it down, 
Hugh's chest heaving as he stares up at the sky. His scarred lips curl back into a mocking smile. Not yet, all mother. Not yet. We're fucked, Holiday says, as we look over the meager supplies Mustang managed to scavenge from our vessel. We shake together in a ravine, finding momentary respite from the wind. It's not much. We huddle around the paltry heat of two thermal flares, after having humped it across the ice shelf as eighty-kilometer winds shredded us with cold teeth. The storm darkens over the water behind us. Ragnar watches it with wary eyes as the rest of us sort through the supplies. There's a GPS transponder, several protein bars, two flashlights, dehydrated food, a thermal stove, and a thermal blanket large enough for one of us. We've wrapped it around Holiday since her suit's the most compromised. There's also a flare gun, a res flesh applicator, and a thumb-sized digital survival guide. She's right, Mustang says. We have to get out of here, or we're dead. Our boxes of weapons are gone. Our armor and grav boots and supplies sunken to the bottom of the sea. All that would have let the obsidians destroy their gods. All that would have let us contact our friends in orbit. The satellites are blind. No one is watching. No one except the men who shot us from the sky. The lone blessing is that they crashed as well. We saw their fire deeper in the mountains as we stumbled across the ice shelf. But if they survived, if they have gear, they will hunt us. And all we have to protect ourselves is four razors, a rifle, and a pulse fist with a drained charge. Our sealskin is sliced and damaged. But dehydration will claim us long before the cold does. Black rock and ice span the horizon. Yet if we eat the ice, our core temperatures will lower and the cold will take us. We have to find real shelter. Mustang blows into her gloved hands, shivering. Last I saw of the charts in the cockpit... We're two hundred kilometers from the spires. Might as well be a thousand, Holiday says gruffly. She chews her cracked bottom lip, still staring at the supplies as if they'll breed. Ragnar watches us discuss wearily. He knows this land. He knows we can't survive here. And though he will not say it, he knows that he will watch us die one by one, and there will not be a thing he can do to stop it. Holiday will die first, then Mustang. Her sealskin is torn where the beast bit her and water leaked in. Then I will go, and he will survive. How arrogant must we have sounded, thinking we could descend and free the obsidians in one night. Aren't nomads here? Holiday asks Ragnar. We always heard stories about Maroon's legionnaires. They are not stories, Ragnar says. The clans seldom venture to the ice after autumn has fled. This is the season of the eaters. 
You didn't mention them, I say. I thought we would fly past their lands. I am sorry. What are the eaters? Holiday says. My Antarctic anthropology ain't for shit. Eaters of men, Ragnar says. Shamed cast-outs from the clans. Bloody hell. Taro, there must be a way to contact your men for extraction. Mustang says, determined to find a way out. There isn't. Asgard's jamming array makes this whole continent static. The only tech for a thousand kilometers is there. Unless the other ship has something. Who are they? Ragnar asks. Don't know. Can't be the jackal, I say. If he knew who we were, then he would have sent his fleet after us, not just one black ops ship. It's Cassius, Mustang says. I assume he came in a disguised ship like I did. He's supposed to be on Luna. It was one of the positives of negotiating here. They get caught going behind my brother's back. It's as bad for them as for me. Worse. How do you know which ship was ours? I ask. Mustang shrugs. Must have sniffed out the diversion. Maybe he followed us from the hollows. I don't know. He's not stupid. He did catch you in the rain as well, going under the wall. Or someone told him, Holiday says, eyeing Mustang darkly. Why would I tell him when I'm on the gory damn ship? Mustang says. Well, let's hope it's Cassius, I say. If it is, then they won't just hop on grav boots and fly to Asgard for help. Because then they'll have to explain to the jackal why they were on Phobos to begin with. How'd it go down, anyway? I asked. It looked like a missile signature from the back of our ship, but we don't have missiles. The boxes did, Ragnar said. I fired a Sarissa out the back of the cargo bay from a shoulder launcher. You shot a missile at them while we were falling? Mustang asks incredulously. Yes, and I attempted to gather grav boots. I failed. I think you did just fine, Mustang says with a sudden laugh. It infects the rest of us, even Holiday. Ragnar doesn't understand the humor. My cheer fades quickly, though, as Holiday coughs and cinches her hood tighter. I watched the black clouds over the sea. How long till that storm hits, Ragnar? Perhaps two hours. It moves with speed. It'll get to negative sixty, Mustang says. We won't survive. Not with our gear like this. The wind howls through our ravine and the bleak mountainside around us. Then there's only one option, I say. We sack up and push across the mountains, find the downed ship. If it is Cassius in there, he'll have at least a full squad of 13th Legion Black Ops with him. That's not a good thing, Mustang says warily. Those greys are better trained for winter combat than we are. Better than you, Holiday says, pulling back her sealskin so Mustang can read the 13th Legion tattoo on her neck. Not me. You're a dragoon? Mustang asks, unable to hide the surprise. Was, 
Point is, PFR, Praetorian Field Regulations, mandate survival gear in long-range missile transport, enough to last each squad a month in any conditions. They'll have water, food, heat, and grav boots. What if they survive the crash? Mustang says, eyeing Holiday's injured leg and our paltry weapon supply. Then they will not survive us, Ragnar says. And we're better off hitting them when they're still piecing themselves together, I say. We go now, fast as we can, and we might get there before the storm lands. It's our only chance. Ragnar and Holiday join me, the obsidian gathering the gear as the grey checks her rifle's ammunition. But Mustang's hesitant. There's something else she hasn't told us. What is it? I demand. It's Cassius, she says slowly. I don't know for certain. What if he's not alone? What if Aja is with him? Chapter 28 Feast The storm falls as we climb along a rocky arm of the mountain. Soon we can see nothing beyond our party. Steel-gray snow gnaws into us, blotting out the sky, the ice, the mountains inland. We duck our heads, squinting through the sealskin balaclavas. Boots scrape the ice underfoot. Wind roars loud as a waterfall. I hunch against it, putting one foot after the other, connected with Mustang and Holiday by rope in the obsidian way, so we don't lose one another in the blizzard. Ragnar scouts ahead. How he finds his way is beyond me. He returns now, loping over the rocks with ease. He signals for us to follow. Easier said than done. Our world is small and furious. Mountains lurk in the white, their hulking shoulders the only shelter from the wind. We scramble over bitter black rock that slices at our gloves while the wind tries to hurl us down gulches and bottomless crevasses. The exertion keeps us alive. Neither Holiday nor Mustang slow, and after more than an hour of dreadful travel, Ragnar guides us into a mountain pass, and the storm breathes. Beneath us, impaled upon a ridgeline, is the ship that shot us from the sky. I feel a pang of sympathy for her. Shark-like lines and flared starburst tail indicate she was once a long, sleek racing vessel of the famed Ganymede shipyards, painted proud and bold in crimson and silver by loving hands. Now she's a cracked blackened corpse, impaled upside down on a stark ridgeline. Cassius, or whoever was inside, had a nasty time of it. The rear third of the ship sheaved off half a kilometer downhill from the main body. Both parts looked deserted. Holiday scans the wreck with her rifle scope. No sign of life or movement outside. Something seems off. Mustang says, crouched beside me. Her father's visage watches me from the razor on her arm. The wind is against us, Ragnar says. I smell nothing. 
His black eyes scanned the peaks of the mountains around us, going rock to rock, looking for danger. We can't risk getting pinned down by rifles, I say, feeling the wind pick up again behind us. We need to close the distance fast-like. Holiday, you lay cover. Holiday digs a small trench in the snow and covers herself with the thermal blanket. We cover that with snow, so only her rifle's peeking out. Then Ragnar slips down the slope to investigate the rear half of the ship, as Mustang and I press for the main wreck. Mustang and I slink over low rocks, covered by the renewed vigor of the storm, unable to see the ship till we're within fifteen meters. We close the rest of the distance on our bellies and find a jagged hole in the aft where the back half of the fuselage was shredded by Ragnar's missile. Part of me expected a camp of war colors and golds preparing to hunt us down. Instead, the ship's an epileptic corpse, power flickering on and off. Inside, the ship is hollow and cavernous, and almost too dark to see when the lights crackle off. Something drips in the darkness as we work our way toward the middle of the craft. I smell the blood before I see it. In the passenger compartment, nearly a dozen greys lie dead, smashed into the floor above us by the rocks that speared the ship as it landed. Mustang kneels next to the body of a mangled grey to examine his clothing. Darrow. She pulls back his collar and points to a tattoo. The digital ink still moves, even though the flesh is dead. Legio 13. So it is Cassius's escort. I manipulate the toggle on my razor, moving my thumb in the shape of the new desired design. I press down. The razor slithers in my hand, abandoning its sling blade look for a shorter, broader blade, so I can stab more easily in the cramped environs. There's no sign of any life as we move forward, let alone Cassius. Just the wind moaning through the bones of the vessel. A strange feeling of vertigo walking along the ceiling and looking up at the floor. Seats and belt buckles hanging down like intestines. The ship convulses back to life, illuminating a sea of broken data pads and dishes and gum packages underfoot. Sewage leaks from a crack in the metal wall. The ship dies again. Mustang taps my arm and points out a shattered bulkhead window to what looks like drag marks in the snow. Smeared blood black in the dim light. She signs to me. Bear? I nod. A razorback must have found the wreckage and begun feasting on the corpses of the diplomatic mission. I shudder, thinking of noble Cassius suffering that fate. A grisly sucking sound makes its way to us from farther on in the ship. We press forward, feeling the dread of the scene before we enter the forward passenger cabin. The Institute taught us the sound of teeth on raw meat, but still, this is a horrifying sight, even for me. Golds hang upside down from the ceiling, imprisoned in their crash webbing, legs pinned by bent panelling. Beneath them hunch five nightmares. 
Their fur is grim and matted, once white but now clumped with dried blood and filth. They gnaw on the bodies of the dead. Their heads are those of massive bears, but the eyes that peer through the eye sockets of those heads are black and cold with intelligence. Standing not on four legs but two, the largest of the pack turns toward us. The ship lights throb back on. Pale, muscled arms, slick with seal grease to ward off the cold, dark with blood from skinning the dead golds, move from under the bear pelts. The obsidian is taller than I am, a crooked iron blade sewn into his hand, human bones strung together with dried tendon as a breastplate. Hot breath billows from under the snout of the ursine skull he wears as a helmet, slow and measured, the deep ululation of an evil war chant blossoms from beneath his blackened teeth. They've seen our eyes, and one screams something unintelligible. The ship wheezes, and the lights go out. The first cannibal vaults toward us through the cluttered hall, the rest behind him. Shadows in the darkness. My pale razor flashes forward and hews through his iron knife, through his breastplate and clavicle straight into his heart. I twist aside so he doesn't crash into me. His momentum takes him past me into Mustang, who sidesteps him and cuts his head clean off. His body spills to the ground past her, twitching. An audible grunt and a spear with a jagged iron end flies from one of the other cannibals. I duck under it and punch upward with my left hand, deflecting it into the ceiling, just over Mustang's head. Then the obsidian behind slams into me as I rise. As large as I am, stronger, more creature than man. Overwhelming me with the frenzy of a lost mind, he pins me to the wall and snaps at me with blackened, sharp-filed teeth. The lights of the ship flash, illuminating the sores around his mouth. My arms are pinned to my side. He bites at my nose. I turn my face just before he rips it off. Instead, his teeth sink into the meat at the base of my lower jaw. I scream in pain. Blood flows down my neck. He chomps down again, pulling at my face, eating me alive as the lights go out. His right hand tries to work a knife through the sealskin to slide it between my ribs and into my heart. The fabric holds. Then the cannibal goes slack, twitching, and his body falls to the ground, spinal cord severed by Mustang from behind. A black missile blurs past my face and slams into Mustang, knocking her off her feet. The fletching of an arrow sticks from her left shoulder. She grunts, scrambling on the ground. I lunge away from her, toward the three remaining obsidian. One's knocking another arrow, the second hefts a huge axe. The third holds a huge curved horn, which the cannibal brings through the bear helm to its mouth. Then... A terrible howl comes from outside the ship. The lights go out. The darkness ripples with a fourth shape. Shadowy forms lashing at one another. Metal cutting flesh. And when the lights come back on, Ragnar stands, holding the head of one obsidian as he pulls his razor out of the chest of the second. The third, 
bow cut in half, pulls a knife, stabbing wildly at Ragnar. He hacks her arm off, till she rolls away, mad, immune to pain. He stalks after her and rips off her helmet. Beneath is a young woman, face painted white, nostrils slit open so she looks a snake. Ritual scars forming a series of bars under both eyes. She can't be more than eighteen. Her mouth slurs out something as she stares at the vastness of Ragnar, large even for her people. Then her wild eyes find the tattoos on his face. Fjernak, she rasps, not in terror, but fevered joy. Tnakrur, Ljarfor Aesir. She closes her eyes, and Ragnar cuts off her head. You prime, I ask Mustang, rushing to her. She's already on her feet. The arrow sticks out from under her collarbone. What did she say? Mustang asks past me. Your Nagal is better than mine. I didn't understand the dialect. It was too guttural. Ragnar knows it. Stain sun, kill me. I will rise golden. Ragnar explains. They eat what they find. He nods to the golds, but to eat the flesh of gods is to rise immortal. More will come. Even in the storm, I ask, can their griffins fly in this? His lips curl in disgust. The beasts do not ride griffin. But no, they will seek refuge. What about the other wreck? Mustang asks, pressing on. Supplies? Men? He shakes his head. Bodies. Ship munitions. I send Ragnar to fetch Holiday from her post. Mustang and I stay with plans to search the ship for gear. But I remain standing motionless in the cannibal's charnel house, even after Ragnar slipped out into the snow. The golds might have been enemies, but this horror makes life feel so cheap. There's a cruel irony to this place. It is terrifying and wicked, but it wouldn't exist unless gold made it exist to create fear to create that need for their iron rule. These poor bastards were eaten by their own pet monsters. Mustang stands from examining one of the obsidian, wincing from the arrow that's still embedded in her shoulder. Are you all right? she asks, noting my silence. I gesture to the broken fingernails in one of the golds. They weren't dead when they started skinning them. Just trapped. She nods sadly and holds out her palm. Something she found on the obsidian body. Six Institute class rings. Two Pluto cypress trees, a Minerva owl, a Jupiter lightning bolt, a Diana stag, and one which I pick from her palm, emblazoned with the Mars wolf head. We should look for him, she says. I reach up to the ceiling to examine the golds who hang upside down from their seats. Their eyes and tongues are gone, but I can see, mangled as they are, none are my old friend. We search the rest of the upside-down ship, 
and finds several small bedroom suites. In the dresser of one, Mustang finds an ornate leather box with several watches and a small pearl earring set in silver. Cassius was here, she says. Are those his watches? It's my earring. I help Mustang remove the arrow from her shoulder in Cassius's suite, away from the gore. She makes no sound as I break off the tip, push her against the wall, and jerk the arrow out by its tail end. She curls in on herself, slumping down to her heels in pain. I sit on the edge of the mattress that's fallen from the ceiling and watch her hunch there. She doesn't like being touched when she's wounded. Finish up, she says, standing. I use the res gun to make a tiny patch over the hole on the front and back, just under her collarbone. It stops the bleeding and will help repair the tissue, but she'll feel the wound, and it'll slow her for days. I pull her sealskin back up over her bare shoulder. She zips the front up for herself before patching the wound on my jaw as well. Her breath fills the air. She comes so close I can smell the dampness of the snow that's melted in her hair. She presses the res gun to my jaw and paints a thin layer of the microorganisms onto the wound. They scramble into the pores and tighten to make a flesh-like antibacterial coating. Her hand lingers on the back of my head, fingers wrapped in the strands of my hair, like she wants to say something but doesn't have the words. Nor does she find them by the time Holiday and Ragnar return. Hearing Holiday calling my name, I squeeze Mustang's good shoulder and leave her there. Most of the ship's gear is gone. Several sets of optics missing from their cases. The armory missing entirely, scattered across the mountains as the ship came apart and the cargo hold ripped open. The rest has been torn through by obsidians or broken in the crash. All I get is static from the transponder and comm gear. Ragnar discerns that Cassius and the rest of his party, some fifteen men, departed several hours before we reached the vessel. They stripped it bare of supplies. The eaters likely descended as soon as it landed. Otherwise Cassius wouldn't have left those golds behind to be eaten. Supporting this idea, Mustang finds several eater bodies nearer the cockpit, which means Cassius and his men were under attack as they left. Snows almost cover the corpses. We stack the fresher bodies outside in the snow, in case worse predators than eaters come to visit. After scavenging the ship for supplies, I have Mustang and Holiday seal us inside the galley, fusing the two entrances shut with welding torches found in the ship's maintenance closet. The weapons and cold gear might have been stripped clean, but the ship's cistern is full, the water inside not yet frozen, and the galley's pantries are stocked with food. It's passingly cosy in our shelter. The insulation traps our heat inside. The light from two amber emergency lamps bathes the room in soft orange. Holiday uses the intermittent power to cook a feast of pasta with marinara sauce and sausage over the galley's electric stoves 
as Ragnar and I plot a course to the spires, and Mustang sorts through the stacks of scavenged provisions, filling military packs she found in storage. I burn my tongue as Holiday brings Ragnar and me heaping portions of pasta. I didn't realize how hungry I was. Ragnar nudges me, and I follow his eyes to watch quietly as Holiday brings Mustang a bowl too, and leaves her with a small nod. Mustang smiles to herself. The four of us sit, eating in silence, listening to our forks against the bowls, the wind shrieking outside, rivets groaning. Steel-gray snow piles against the small circular windows, but not before we see strange shapes moving through the white to drag off the corpses we set outside. What was it like growing up here? Mustang asks Ragnar. She sits cross-legged with her back against the wall. I lay adjacent to her, a backpack between, on one of the mattresses Ragnar dragged inside the room to line its floor, on my third serving of pasta. It was home. I did not know anything else. But now that you do... He smiles gently. It was a playground. The world beyond is vast, but so small. Men putting themselves in boxes, sitting at desks, riding in cars, ships. Here the world is small, but without end. He loses himself in stories. Slow to share at first, now it seems he revels in knowing that we listen, that we care. He tells us of swimming in the ice floes as a boy. How he was an awkward child, too slow, bones outracing the rest of him. When he was beaten by another boy, his mother took him to the sky for his first time on her griffin, making him hold on to her from behind, teaching him it is his arms that keep him from falling, his will. She flew higher and higher, till the air was thin, and I could feel the cold in my bones. She was waiting for me to let go, to weaken, but she did not know that I tied my wrists together. That is as close to all mother death as I have ever been. His mother, Alia Volaris, the snow sparrow, is a legend among her people for her reverence for the gods. A daughter to a wanderer, she became a warrior of the spires and rose in prominence as she raided other clans. Such is her devotion to the gods that when she rose to power she gave four of her own children to serve them, keeping only one for herself, Sefi. She sounds like my father, Mustang says softly. Poor sods, Holiday mutters. My ma would make me cookies and teach me how to strip down a hoverjack. And what about your father? I ask. He was a bad sort. She shrugs, but bad in a boring way. A different family in every port. Stereotypical legionnaire. I got his eyes. Trig got ma's. I never knew my first father, Ragnar says, meaning his birth father. Obsidian women are polygamous. They might have seven children from seven fathers. 
Those men are then bound to protect the other children of her brood. He went to become a slave before I was born. My mother never speaks his name. I do not even know if he lives. We can find out, Mustang says. We'd have to search the Board of Quality Control's registry. Not easy, but we can find him. What happened to him? If you want to know. He's stunned by the idea, and nods slowly. Yes, I would like that. Holiday watches Mustang in a very different way than she did just hours before when we were leaving Phobos, and I'm struck by how natural this feels, our four worlds colliding together. We all know your father, Holiday says. But what is your ma like? She looks frigid, from what I've seen just on the HC, you know? That's my stepmother. She doesn't care for me. Just Adrius, actually. My real mother died when I was young. She was kind, mischievous, and very sad. Why? Holiday presses. Holiday, I say. Her mother is a subject I've never pushed. She's held her back from me. A little locked box in her soul that she never shares. Except tonight, it seems. It's all right, she says. She pulls up her legs, hugging them, and continues. When I was six, my mother was pregnant with a little girl. The doctor said there would be complications with the birth, and recommended intervening medically. But my father said that if the child was not fit to survive birth, it did not deserve life. We can fly between the stars. Mold the planets, but father let my sister die in my mother's womb. The hell? Holiday mutters. Why not give her cell therapy? You got the money. Purity in the product, Mustang says. That's insane. That's my family. Mother was never the same. I'd hear her crying in the middle of the day, see her staring out the window. Then one night she went for a walk at Carrigmoor, the estate my father gave her as a wedding present. He was in Aegea working. She never came home. They found her on the rocks beneath the sea cliffs. Father said she slipped. If he was alive now, he'd still say she slipped. I don't think he could have survived thinking anything else. I'm sorry. Holiday says, as am I. It's why I'm here, since that's what you were wondering, Mustang says. My father was a titan, but he was wrong. He was cruel. And if I can be something else, her eyes meet mine. I will be. Chapter 29 Hunters by the time we wake, the storm has cleared. We bundle ourselves with insulation taken from the ship's walls and set out into the bleakness. Not a cloud mars the marbled blue-black sky. We head toward the sun, which stains the horizon a cooling shade of molten iron. 
Autumn has few days left. We head for the spires with plans of lighting fires as we go, in hopes of signalling the few Valkyrie scouts active in the area. But smoke will also bring the eaters. We scan the mountains as we pass, wary of the cannibal tribes, and of the fact that somewhere ahead, Cassius, and maybe Aja, trudge through the snow with a troop of special forces operators. By midday we find evidence of their passing, churned snow outside a rocky alcove large enough for several dozen men. They camped there to wait out the storm. A cairn of stacked stones lies near the campsite. One of the stones has been carved with a razor and reads, Peraspera ad astra. It's Cassius's handwriting, Mustang says. Pulling off the rocks, we find the corpses of two blues and a silver. Their weaker bodies frozen the night. Even here, Cassius had the decency to bury them. We replace the rocks as Ragnar lopes ahead, following the tracks at a speed we can't match. We follow after. An hour later, man-made thunder rumbles in the distance, accompanied by the lonely shriek of distant pulse fists. Ragnar returns soon after, eyes shining with excitement. I followed the tracks, he says. And, Mustang asks, it is Aja and Cassius with a troop of greys and three peerless. Aja is here, I ask. Yes, they flee on foot through a mountain pass in the direction of Asgard. A tribe of eaters harries them. Bodies litter the way. Dozens. They sprang an ambush and failed. More come. How much gear do they have? Mustang asks. No grav boots, scarab skin only, but they have packs. They left the pulse armor behind just two kilometers north, out of energy. Holiday looks at the horizon and touches Trigg's pistol on her hip. Can we catch them? They carry many supplies, water, food, injured men now too. Yes, we can overtake them. Why are we here? Mustang interjects. It's not to hunt Aja and Cassius down. The only thing that matters is getting Ragnar to the spires. Aja killed my brother, Holiday says. Mustang's taken aback. Trig, the one you mentioned? I didn't know. But still, we can't be pulled to the side by vengeance. We can't fight two dozen men. What if they reach Asgard before we reach the spires? Holiday asks. Then we're cooked. Mustang's not convinced. Can you kill Aja? I ask Ragnar. Yes. This is an opportunity, I say to Mustang. When else will they be so exposed? Without their legions, without the pride of gold protecting them? These are champions. Like Severo says, when you have the chance to waste your enemy, you do it. This is one time I'd agree with the mad bastard. If we can take them off the board, the Sovereign loses two Furies in one week. And Cassius is Octavia's link to Mars and the great families here. And if we expose her negotiations with you to him, we fracture that alliance. We sever Mars from the society. An enemy divided, Mustang says slowly. 
I like it. And we owe them a debt. Ragnar says, Forlorn, Quinn, Trigg. They came here to hunt us. Now we hunt them. The trail is unmistakable. Corpses litter the snow. Dozens of eaters, bodies still smoking from pulse fire near a narrow mountain pass, where the obsidian sprang an ambush on the gold. They did not understand the firepower the golds could bring to bear. Huge craters pock the craggy slopes. Deeper imprints in the snow mark the passing of aurochs, huge steer-like animals with shaggy coats that the obsidian ride. The pass widens into a thin alpine forest that skins an expanse of rolling hills. Gradually the craters decrease, and we begin seeing discarded pulse fists and rifles, and several grey bodies with arrows or axes embedded in them. The obsidian dead are closer to the gold trail now, and bear razor wounds. There's dozens with missing limbs, clean decapitations. Cassius's band is running out of ammunition, and now Olympic knights are doing the work up close. Yet the wind still crackles with gunfire, kilometers ahead. We pass moaning obsidian eaters who lie dying from bullet wounds, but it's only over a wounded grey that Ragnar stops. The man's still alive, but barely. An iron axe is buried in his stomach. He wheezes up at an unfamiliar sky. Ragnar crouches over him. Recognition goes through the grey's eyes as he sees the stain's uncovered face. Close your eyes, Ragnar says, pressing the man's empty rifle back in his hands. Think of home. The man closes his eyes, and with a twist, Ragnar breaks his neck and sets his head gently back on the snow. A shrill horn echoes across the mountain range. They call off the hunt, Ragnar says. Immortality is not worth the price today. We pick up our pace. Kilometers to our right, mounted eaters and aurochs skirt the edges of the woods, heading for their high mountain camps. They do not see us as we move through the pine tiger. Holiday watches the hunting party disappear behind a hill through the scope of her rifle. They carried two golds, she says. Didn't recognize them. They weren't dead yet. We all feel the chill. It's an hour later that we spy our quarry beneath us, in an uneven snowfield stripped with crevasses. Two arms of forest hug the snowfield. Azure and Cassius chose an exposed route instead of continuing through the treacherous forest where they lost so many greys. There's four left in the company. Three golds, and a grey. They wear black scarab skin, cloaked with pelts and extra layers they stripped from the dead cannibals. They move at a breakneck pace, the rest of their party massacred in the depths of the woods. We can't tell which is Aja or Cassius, because of the masks and the similar shapes they make under the cloaks. Initially, I wanted to lie in wait and ambush them to take the tactical initiative, but 
I remember how the optics were missing from their boxes and assume Aja and Cassius are both wearing them. With thermal vision, they'll see us hiding under snow. Might even see us if we hide inside the bellies of dead aurochs or seals. So instead, I have Ragnar lead me on the path he found to cut them off at a pass they must travel through and block their path to draw their eyes. I'm panting beside Ragnar, coughing the cold out of aching lungs, when the party of four arrives on our chosen ground. They jog along the edge of the crevasse in improvised snowshoes, hunched against the weight of food and survival gear they drag behind them on little makeshift sleds. Textbook Legion Survival Skills, courtesy of the military schools of the Marion Fields. All four wear black optics visors with smoky glass lenses. It's eerie, as they see us. No expressions on the optics or masked faces, so it feels like they expected us to be here, waiting at the edge of the snowfield, blocking the pass out. My eyes dart back and forth between them. Cassius is easy enough to distinguish by his height, but which of the four is Aja? I'm torn between two thick golds, each shorter than Cassius. Then I see my old Razor Master's weapon, dangling from her belt. Aja! I call, removing the sealskin balaclava. Cassius pulls off his mask. His hair is sweaty, face flushed. He alone carries a pulse fist, but I know its charge must be running low, based on the dispersion patterns of the dead cannibals behind them. His razor unfurls, as do the rest. They look like long red tongues, blood frozen on the blades. Darrow, Cassius mutters, stunned by the sight of us. I saw you sink. I swim just as well as you, remember? I look past him. Azure, you going to let Cassius do all the talking? Finally, she steps from the other to stand by the tall knight, removing from around her waist the rope that attaches her to her makeshift sled. She doffs her scarab-skin mask, revealing her dark face and bald head. Steam swirls. She scans the crevasses that thread their way through the snow, and the rocks and trees, the pen and the snowfield, wondering where my ambush will come from. She remembers Europa well enough, but she can't know who my crew was, or how many survived. An abomination and a rabid dog, she purrs, eyes lingering on Ragnar before coming back to me. The scarab skin she wears is unmarked. Can she really not have taken a single wound from the obsidian? I see your carver has pieced you back together, Rasta. Well enough to kill your sister, I say in reply, unable to keep the poison out of my voice. Pity it wasn't you. She makes no reply. How many times have I seen her kill Quinn in memory? How many times have I seen her rob Lorne of his razor as he lay dead from the jackal and Lilith's blades? I gesture to the weapon. That's 
doesn't belong to you. You are born to serve, not speak, abomination. Do not address me. She glances up to the sky where Phobos glitters on the eastern horizon. Red and white lights flicker around it. It's a space battle, which means several has captured ships. But how many? Azure frowns and exchanges a worried look with Cassius. I have long awaited this moment, Azure. Ah, my father's favorite pet. Aja examines Ragnar. Has the stain convinced you he's tamed? I wonder if he told you how you liked to be rewarded after a fight in the Cercada. After the applause faded and he cleaned the blood from his hands, father would send him young pinks to satisfy his animal lusts. How greedy he was with them. How frightened they were of him. Her voice is flat and bored of this eyes, of this conversation, of us. All she wants is what we have to give her, and that is a challenge. After all the obsidian bodies behind her, she still is not tired of blood. Have you ever seen an obsidian rut? She continues. You'd think twice about taking off their collars, Rasta. They have appetites you can't imagine. Ragnar steps forward, holding his razors in either hand. He unfastens the white fur he took from the eaters and lets it fall behind him. It's strange being here, surrounded by wind and snow, stripped of our armies, our navies, the only thing protecting each of our lives, little coils of metal. The hugeness of the Antarctic laughs at our size and self-importance, thinking how easily it could snuff out the heat in our little chests. But our lives mean so much more than the frail bodies that carry them. Ragnar's step forward is assigned to Mustang and Holiday and the trees. Aim true, Holiday. Your father bought me, Aja shamed me, made me his devil, a thing. The child inside fled, the hope vanished. I was Ragnar no more. He touches his own chest. But I am Ragnar today, tomorrow, forevermore. I am son of the Spires, brother of Sephi the Quiet, brother of Darrow of Lycos, and Severo Aubarka. I am the shield of Tinos. I follow my heart. And when yours beats no more, foul knight, I will pull it from your chest and feed it to the griffin of the... Cassius scans the craggy rocks and stunted trees that cup the snowfield to his left. His eyes narrow when they fall upon a cluster of broken timber at the base of a rock formation. Then, without warning, he shoves Aja forward... She stumbles, and just behind her, where she stood, the head of their remaining grey explodes. Blood splatters the snow as the crack of Holiday's rifle echoes from the mountains. More bullets tear into the snow around Cassius and Aja. The Fury moves behind the third gold, using his body as cover. 
two bullets slam into a scarab skin, penetrating the strong polymer. Cassius rolls on his shoulder and uses much of the last juice from his pulse fist. The hillside erupts, rocks glowing, exploding, snow vaporizing. And under that noise is the sound of a bowstring releasing. Aja hears it too. She moves fast, spinning as an arrow fired by Mustang from the woods careens toward her head. It misses by centimeters. Cassius fires on Mustang's position on the hill, shattering trees and superheating rocks. Can't tell if she's hit. Can't spare the seconds to look because Ragnar and I used the distraction to charge, vision narrowing, sling blade curving into form, closing the distance over the snow. Pulse fist glowing in his hand, Cassius turns just as I bear down on him. He fires the pulse fist. It's a weak charge that I dive beneath, hitting the ground and rolling up like a Lycos tumbler. He fires again. The pulse fist is dead, battery drained from firing on the hillside. Ragnar hurls one of his razors at Aja like a huge throwing knife. It flips end over end in the air. She does not move. It slams into her. She spins backward. For a moment, I think he's killed her. But then she turns back to us, holding the razor by the hilt in her right hand. She caught it. A dark fear sweeps through me as all of Lorne's warnings about Aja come rushing back. Never fight a river, and never fight Aja. The four of us smash together, turning into a clumsy mash of cracking whips and clattering blades, scrambling and twisting and bending. Our razors faster than our own eyes can track. Aja swipes diagonally at my legs as I go for hers. Ragnar and Cassius aim for each other's necks in quick, no-look thrusts. Identical strategies, all. It's so awkward we all almost kill one another in the first half-second, yet each gambit misses by a hair. We separate, stumbling backward. Humorless smiles on our faces. A bizarre kinship as we remember we all speak the same martial language. All that hateful breed of human Dancer told me about before I was carved. The ones Lorn lived among and despised all the while. I shatter the weird piece first, lashing forward in a tight series of thrusts at Cassius's right side, peeling him away from Aja so Ragnar can take her down singly. Behind Cassius, Mustang stirs from among the rubble, rushing across the snow, huge obsidian bow in hand, still fifty meters away. I sweep my razor whip twice at Cassius's legs, retracting it into a blade as he swings diagonally at my head. The blow rattles my arm as I catch it halfway along the razor's curve. He's stronger than I am. Faster than he was the last time we fought. And he's practiced now against the curved blade. Training with Aja, no doubt. He forces me back. I stumble, fall. Between his legs I see the fury and the stained tearing into each other. She stabs him through his left thigh. Another arrow whispers through the air. It slams into Cassius's back. His scarab skin holds. Off balance, he swings again in a tight set of eight moves. I throw myself backward just as the razor hisses through the air where my head had been. I sprawl on the snow, centimeters from the edge of a huge crevasse. 
scrambling up as Cassius rushes me. I block another downward swing, teetering on the edge. I fall backward and push off the edge as hard as I can, so I land and clear the other side, using my agility to avoid his onslaught. Behind him, Aja spins under Ragnar's blade, slicing at his hamstrings. She's peeling him apart. Cassius pursues me, hurdling the crevasse and swinging down at me. I block the blade. It would have opened me from shoulder to opposite hip. I throw a rock at his face, gain my feet. He slams his blade down again in a feint, pivots his wrist, and swings to carve off my knees. I stumble to the side, barely dodging. He converts his razor to a whip, cracks it at my legs, and rips the mat from under me. I fall. He kicks me in the chest. Wind gushes out of me. He stands on my wrist, pinning my razor down, and is about to plunge his razor into my heart, his face a mask of determination. Stop! Mustang shouts. She's twenty meters away, aiming her bow at Cassius, hand quivering from the strain of the taut string. I will put you down. No, he says. You would... The bowstring snaps. He jerks his razor up to deflect the arrow. Misses, slower than Aja. The serrated iron tip punches through the front of his throat and out the back of his neck, the feather fletching scratching the underside of his dimpled chin. There's no spray of blood, just a meaty, wet gurgle. He flops back, hitting the ground hard, gagging, hacking hideously. His feet kick as he clutches the arrow, hissing for breath, eyes inches from my own. Mustang rushes to me. I scramble to my feet, away from Cassius, and grab my razor from the snow, pointing it at his thrashing body. I'm prime, I say, tearing my eyes from my old friend as blood pools beneath him and he fights for his life. Help Ragnar. Over Cassius's body, we see the stained and Aja whirling at each other on the edge of a crevasse. Blood paints the snow around them, all of it coming from Ragnar. But still he presses the woman knight back, a furious song cascading out of his throat, beating her down, overwhelming her with his 250 kilograms of mass. Sparks flare from their blades. She caves before him now, unable to match the anger of the banished prince of the spires. Heels skidding on the snow, arms shuddering, bending back away from Ragnar, bending like a willow. His song roars louder. No, I murmur. Shoot her, I tell Mustang. They're too close. I don't care. She fires a shot. It rips inches past Aja's head. But it does not matter. Ragnar has already fallen into the trap the woman has laid for him. Mustang doesn't see it yet. She will. It's one of the many Lorne taught me. The one Ragnar could not have learned, because he never had a razor master. He only ever had his rage, and years of fighting with solid weapons, not the whip. Mustang loads another arrow, and Ragnar swings down at Aja with a blacksmith's overhead strike. Aja raises her rigid blade to meet his, 
She activates the whip function. Her blade goes limp. Expecting to meet the resistance of solid polyene fiber, Ragnar's whole weight carries down on empty air. He's athletic enough to slow the movement so his blade doesn't smash into the ground, and against a lesser opponent he would have recovered with ease. But Aja was the greatest student of Lorn Au Arcos. She's already spinning to the side, contracting the whip back into a blade and using her momentum to hack sideways at Ragnar as she finishes her spin. The movement is simple, laconic, like one of the ballerinas Mustang and Roke would watch at Aegea's opera house, as I studied with Lorne, pivoting through a fouette. If I didn't see the blood paint her blade and spray a delicate arc of red across the snow, I could be convinced that she missed. Aja does not miss. Ragnar tries to turn and face her, but his legs betray him, crumpling underneath. His gaping wound a bloody smile against the white of his sealskin. Aja cut into his lower back, through his spinal cord, and out the front of his stomach at the belly button. He flops down at the lip of a crevasse, razor skipping across the ice. I howl in rage, in crushing disbelief and charge Aja as Mustang fires her bow, running with me. Aja sidesteps Mustang's arrows and stabs Ragnar twice more in the stomach as he lies grasping his wound. His body jerks. The blade slides in and out. Aja sets her feet now, preparing for me, when her eyes go wide. She steps back, marveling at something in the sky above my head. Mustang fires twice in quick succession. Aja's head jerks. She twists away from us, spinning backward to the edge of the crevasse. Ice caves beneath her foot, crumbling off into the crevasse. Her arms windmill, but she can't regain her balance as her eyes meet mine. And she pitches with the ice, head first into the darkness. Chapter 30 the quiet. Aja is gone. The crevasse, deep, sides narrowing away into darkness. I rush back to Ragnar as Mustang stares up at the hillside on the clouds, bow at the ready. She only has three arrows left. I don't see anything, she says. Reaper. Ragnar murmurs from the ground. His chest heaves, panting heavily. Dark lifeblood pulses out of his open stomach. Azure could have finished him quickly, with two thrusts when he was on the ground. Instead, she stabbed his lower gut so he would suffer as he died. I push on the first wound, red to my elbows, but there's so much blood I don't even know what to do. A res gun can't fix what Azure has done. It can't even hold him together. The tears sting my eyes, can hardly see. Steam billows from the wound, my frozen fingers tingling with warmth from the blood.
Ragnar blanches at the blood, an embarrassed look on his face as he whispers apologies. It could be the cannibals, Mustang says, regarding Azure's distraction. Can he move? No, I say weakly. She glances down at him, more stoic than I am. We can't stay here, she says. I ignore her. I've watched too many friends die to let Ragnar go. I led him to fight Aja. I convinced him to come home. I will not let him slip away. I owe him that much. If it is the last thing I do, foolish or not, I will defend him. I will find some way to fix him, get him to a yellow, even if the cannibals come. Even if it costs me my life, I will not leave him. But thinking it doesn't make it true, doesn't give me magical powers. Whatever plan I make, it seems the world is content to undo it. Reaper. Ragnar manages again. Save your strength, my friend. It's going to take all of it to get you out of here. She was fast. So fast. She's gone now, I say, though I can't know for sure. I always dreamed of a good death. He shudders as he realizes again that he's dying. This does not seem good. His words fishhook a sob from my chest into my throat. It's fine, I say thickly. It'll be fine. Once we get you patched up, Mickey will fix you proper. We'll get you to the spires, call in an evac. Darrow, Mustang says. Ragnar blinks hard up at me, trying to focus his eyes. He reaches for the sky with a hand. Sefi. No, it's me, Ragnar. It's Darrow, I say. Darrow, Mustang presses sharply. What? I snap. Sefi. Ragnar points. I follow his finger to the sky above. I see nothing, just the faint clouds shifting in the wind that comes in from the sea. I hear only the sound of Cassius's hacking and the creak of Mustang's bow, and Holiday limping toward us over the snow. Then I see why Aja fled, as three thousand kilograms of winged predator pierces the clouds. Body that of a lion, wings, front legs, and head that of an eagle. Feathers white, beak hooked and black, head the size of a grown red. The griffin is huge, underside of its wings painted with the screaming faces of sky-blue demons. They stretch ten meters wide as the beast lands in the snow in front of me. The earth shakes. Its eyes are pale blue, glyphs and wards painted along its black beak in white. Upon its back sits a lean terrible human, who blows mournfully on a white horn. More horns echo from the clouds above, and twelve more griffins slam down into the mountain pass, some clinging to the sharp rock walls above us, others pawing at the snow. The first griffin rider, the one who blew the horn, is cloaked head to toe in filthy white fur, and wears a bone helmet crested with a single spine of blue feathers which trail down the back of the neck. Not a rider, 
is under two meters tall. Sunborn, one of them calls in their sluggish dialect as she rushes to the side of their silent leader. The speaker strips her helmet to reveal a brutish face, thick with scars and piercings, before falling to her knee and touching her forehead with a gloved palm in a sign of respect. A blue handprint covers her face. We saw the flame in the sky. Her voice falters when she sees my sling blade. The other riders strip their helms, dismounting in a rush as they see our hair and eyes. Not a rider among them is a man. The women's faces are painted with huge sky-blue handprints, a little eye drawn in the center of each. White hair flows in long braids down their backs. Black eyes peer from hooded lids. Iron and bone piercings, bridge noses, and hook lips and notch ears. Only the lead rider has yet to remove her helmet, or kneel. She steps toward us in a trance. Sister, Ragnar manages. My sister. Sefi, Mustang repeats, eyeing the black human tongues on the prize hook on the obsidian's left hip. She wears no gloves. The backs of her hands are tattooed with glyphs. Do you know me? Ragnar rasps, a tentative smile on quivering lips as the rider approaches. You must. The rider catalogues his scars from behind her mask, eyes dark and wide. I know you, Ragnar continues. I would know you if the world were dark and we were withered and old. He shudders in pain. If the ice was melted and the wind quiet. She drifts forward, step by step. I taught you the forty-nine names of the ice, the thirty-four breaths of the wind. He smiles. Though you could only ever remember thirty-two. She gives him nothing, but the other riders are already whispering his name and looking at us as if by accompanying him and possessing a curved blade they've pieced together who I am. Ragnar continues, voice carrying the last of his strength. I carried you on my shoulders to watch five breakings and let you braid my hair with your ribbons and played with the dolls you made from seal leather and threw balls of ice at old Proudfoot. I am your brother. And when the men of the weeping sun took me and a harvest of our kin to the chained lands, do you remember what I told you? Despite his wound, the man reeks of power. This is his land. This is his home. And he is as vast here as I was upon my claw drill. The gravity of him draws Sefi closer. She collapses to her knees and strips away her bone helmet. 
Sefi the Quiet, famed daughter of Alia Snowsparrow, is raw and majestic, face severe, angled like a crow's. Her eyes too small, too close together, her lips thin, purple in the cold, and permanently pursed in thought. White hair shaved down the left side, braided and falling to the waist on the right. A wing tattoo, encircled by astral runes, is livid blue the left side of her pale skull. But what makes her unique among the obsidians, and the object of their admiration, is that her skin is without pox or scars. The only ornament she wears is a single iron bar through her nose. And when she blinks down at Ragnar's wound, the blue eyes tattooed on the back of her eyelids pierce through me. She extends a hand to her brother, not to touch him, but to feel the breath steam before his mouth and nose. It is not enough for Ragnar. He seizes her hand and presses it fiercely to his chest so she can feel his fading heartbeat. Tears of joy gather in his eyes, and when they spill from Sefi's down her cheeks to carve paths through her blue war paint, his voice cracks. I told you I would return. Her eyes leave him to follow Azure's tracks into the crevasse. She clicks her tongue, and four Valkyries stake ropes into the snow and rappel down into the darkness to seek out Azure. The rest guard their war leader and watch the hills, elegant recurve bows at the ready. We have to fly him to the spires, I say in their language. To your shaman. Sefi does not look at me. It is too late. Snow gathers on Ragnar's white beard. Let me die here, on the ice, under the wild sky. No, I mumble. We can save you. The world feels very distant and unimportant. His blood continues to leave him, but there is no more sadness in my friend. Sefi has chased it away. It is no great thing to die, he says to me, though I know he doesn't mean it as deeply as he wants to. Not when one has lived. He smiles trying to comfort me even now. But he wears the unjustness of his life and death upon his face. I owe that to you. But there is much undone. Sefi. He swallows, his tongue heavy and dry. Did my men find you? Sefi nods, staying hunched over her brother, her white hair flying about her in the wind. He looks to me. Darrow, I know you think words will suffice. Ragnar says in Oriet lingo, 
so Sefi cannot understand. They will not. Not with my mother. This was what he did not tell me. Why he was so quiet on the shuttle, why he carried dread upon his shoulders. He was coming home to kill his mother. And now he's giving me permission to do just that. I glance over to Mustang. She heard, too, and wears her heartbreak on her face. As much for my shattered fool's dream of a better world as for my dying friend. He shudders in pain, and Sefi pulls a knife from her boot, unwilling to watch him suffer any longer. Ragnar shakes his head at her and nods to me. He wants me to do it. I shake my head, as if I can wake up from this nightmare. Sefi stares at me fiercely, daring me to contradict her brother's last wishes. I will die with my friends, Ragnar says. I numbly let my razor slither into my hand and hold it over his chest. There's peace at last in Ragnar's wet eyes. It's all I can do to be strong for him. I will give you your love. I will make a house for you in the vale of your father's. It will be beside my own. Join me there when you die. He grins. But I am no builder, so take your time. We will wait. I nod, like I still believe in the veil, like I still think it waits for me and for him. Your people will be free, I say. On my life I promise this, and I will see you soon. He smiles as he stares up at the sky. Sefi frantically puts her axe in Ragnar's palm so that he can die as a warrior, a weapon in hand, and secure his place in the halls of Valhalla. No, Sefi, he says, dropping the axe and taking snow in his left hand, her hand with his right. Live for more. He nods to me. The wind whips. The snow falls. Ragnar watches the sky where the cold lights of Phobos glitter on as I silently slide the metal into his heart. Death comes like nightfall, and I cannot tell the moment when the light leaves him, when his heart no longer beats and his eyes no longer see. But I know he's gone. I feel it in the chill that settles over me, and the sound of the lonely, hungry wind and the dread silence in the black eyes of Sefi the Quiet. My friend, my protector, Ragnar Volaris has left this world. Chapter 31 The Pale Queen I'm numb with grief, 
unable to think of anything but how Severo will react when he hears Ragnar has died. How my nieces and nephews will never braid another bow into the friendly giant's hair. Part of my soul has departed and will never return. He was my protector. He gave so many strength. Now, without him, I cling to the back of a Valkyrie as her griffin rises away from the bloody snow. Even as we soar through the clouds on great beating wings, even as I see the Valkyrie spires for the first time, I feel no awe, just numbness. The spires are a twisting, vertiginous spine of mountain peaks, so ludicrous in their abrupt rise from the Arctic plains, that only a maniacal gold at the controls of a Lovelock engine, with fifty years of tectonic manipulation and a solar system of resources, could conspire to create them. Probably just to see if they could. Dozens of stone spires weave together like spiteful lovers. Mist shrouding them, griffins making nests on their peaks, crows and eagles in the lower reaches. Upon a high rock wall, seven skeletons hang from chains. The ice is stained with blood and the droppings of animals. This is the home of the only race to ever threaten gold. And we come stained in the blood of its banished prince, Sefi and her riders searched the crevasse in which Aja fell. They found nothing but boot prints. No body, no blood. Nothing to abate the rage that burns inside Sefi. I think she would have remained over her brother's body for hours more had they not heard drums beating in the distance. Eaters who had mustered greater strength and intended to challenge the Valkyrie for possession of the fallen gods. Wrath stained her face as she stood over Cassius, her axe in hand. He is one of the first golds she'll ever have seen without armor. Maybe the first aside from Mustang. And I think, stained with the blood of her brother, she would have killed him there on the snow. I know I would have let her, and so too would have Mustang. But she relented at the urging of her Valkyrie, Clicking her tongue to her riders, sheathing her axe, and signaling them to mount. Now Cassius is tied to the saddle of a Valkyrie to my right. The arrow missed his jugular, but death might come from even without a kiss from Sefi's axe. We land in a high alcove, cut into the highest reach of a corkscrew spire. Slaves from enemy obsidian clans, eyes branded into blindness receive our griffins, their faces painted yellow for cowardice. Iron doors groan shut behind, sealing us off from the wind. The riders jump from their saddles before we can land to help carry Ragnar away from us, deeper into the rock city. There's a commotion as several dozen armed warriors push their way into the griffin stable and confront Sefi. They gesture wildly at us, their accents thicker than the Nagal I learned with Mickey's uploads and my studies at the academy. But I understand enough to glean that the newer group of warriors is shouting that we should be in chains, and something about heretics. 
Sefi's women are shouting back, saying we are friends of Ragnar, and they point feverishly to the gold of our hair. They don't know how to treat us, or Cassius, who several of the warriors pull away from us like dogs fighting for scrap meat. The arrow's still in his neck, whites of his eyes huge. He reaches for me in terror as the obsidians drag him across the floor. His hand grasps mine, holds for a moment, and then he's gone down a torch-lit hall, borne away by half a dozen giants. The rest cluster around us, huge iron weapons in hand, the stink of their furs thick and nauseating. Quieting only when an old, stout woman with a hand-shaped tattoo on her forehead pushes through their ranks to speak with Sefi, one of our mother's war chiefs. She gestures upward towards the ceiling with large hand motions. What is she saying? Holiday asks. They're talking about Phobos. They see the lights from the battle. They think the gods are fighting. These ones think we should be prisoners, not guests, Mustang says. Let them take your weapons. Like hell. Holiday steps back with her rifle. I grab the barrel and push it down, handing them my razor. This is bloody spectacular, she mutters. They shackle our arms and legs with great iron manacles, taking care not to touch our skin or hair, and jerk us toward a tunnel by the spire's guards, away from Sefi's Valkyrie. But as we go, I catch sight of Sefi watching after us, a strange, conflicted look on her white face. After being dragged down several dozen dimly lit stairwells, we're shoved into a windowless cell of carved stone and stifling smoky air. Seal oil smolders in iron braziers, stinging our eyes. I trip on a raised flagstone and fall to the floor. There, I slam my chains against the stone, feeling the anger, the helplessness, all the things happening so fast, whipping around me, so I can't tell which way's up. But I can think long enough to grasp the futility of my actions, my plans. Mustang and Holiday watch me in heavy silence. One day into my grand plan, and Ragnar is already dead. Mustang speaks more softly. Are you all right? What do you think? I ask bitterly. She says nothing in reply. Not the fragile sort of person to take offense and whimper out how she's just trying to help. She knows the pain of loss well enough. We need to have a plan. I say mechanically, trying to force Ragnar out of my mind. Ragnar was our plan, Holiday says. He was the entire sodding plan. We can salvage it. And how the hell do you expect to do that? Holiday asks. We don't have weapons anymore, and they don't exactly look tickled pink to see us. They're probably going to eat us. These ones aren't cannibals, Mustang says. You're willing to bet your leg on that, Missy? Alia is the key, I say. We can still convince her. It will be difficult without Ragnar, but that's the only way. Convince her that he died trying to bring their people the truth. Didn't you hear him? He said words wouldn't work. They still can. 
Darrow, give yourself a moment, Mustang says. A moment? My people are dying in orbit. Severo is at war and he's depending on us to bring him an army. We don't have the luxury of taking a bloody damn moment. Darrow, Mustang tries to interrupt. I keep going, methodically sorting through the options, how we must hunt down Asia, rejoin with the sons. She puts a hand on my arm. Darrow, stop. I falter, losing track of where I was, slipping away from the comfort of logic and falling straight into the emotion of it all. Ragnar's blood is under my nails. All he wanted was to come home to his people, and lead them out of darkness, like he saw me doing with mine. I robbed him of that choice, by leading the attack on Aja. I don't cry. There isn't time for it, but I sit there with my head in my hands. Mustang touches my shoulder. He smiled in the end, she says softly. Do you know why? because he knew what he was doing was right. He was fighting for love. You've made a family of your friends. You always have. It made Ragnar a better man to know you. So you didn't get him killed. You helped him live. But you have to live now. She sits next to me. I know you want to believe the best in people, but think how long it took for you to get through to Ragnar, to win over Tactus, or me. What can you do in a day, a week? This place, it's not our world. They don't care about our rules or our morality. We will die here if we do not escape. You don't think... Alia will listen. Why would she? Obsidians only value strength. And where is ours? Ragnar even thought he would have to kill his mother. She won't listen. Do you know the word for surrender in Nagal? Ryoga. The word for subjugation? Ryoga. What's the word for slavery? Ryoga. Without Ragnar to lead them, what do you think is going to happen if you release them on the society? Alia Snow Sparrow is a black-blooded tyrant, and the rest of the war chiefs are no better. She might even be expecting us. Even if we've hacked the Gold's monitoring systems, the Gold's know she's his mother, then they could have told her to expect him. She could be reporting to them right now. When I looked up at my father as a boy, I thought being a man was having control, being the master and commander of your own destiny. How could any boy know that freedom is lost the moment you become a man? Things start to count, to press in, constricting slowly, inevitably, creating a cage of inconveniences and duties and deadlines and failed plans and lost friends. I'm tired of people doubting, of people choosing to believe they know what is possible because of what has happened before. Holiday grunts. Escaping won't be that easy. 
Step one, Mustang says, as she slips free of her manacles. She used a little shard of bone to pick the lock. Where'd you learn that? Holiday asks. You think the Institute was my first school? She asks. Your turn. She reaches for my manacles. As I see it, we can rush them when they open the... What's wrong? I've pulled my hands back from her. I'm not leaving. Taro. Ragnar was my friend. I told him I would help his people. I will not run to save myself. I will not let him die in vain. The only way out is through. The obsidians are needed, I say. Without them, I can't fight gold legions, not even with your help. All right, Mustang says, not belaboring the point. Then how do you intend to change Alia's mind? I think I need your help with that. Hours later, we are guided to the center of a cavernous throne room built for giants. It's lit by seal oil lamps that belch out black smoke along the walls. The iron doors slam shut behind us, and we're left alone before a throne, upon which sits the largest human being I've ever seen. She watches us from the far side of the room, more statue than woman. We approach awkwardly in our chains. Boots over the slick black floor till we come before Alia Snow Sparrow, Queen of the Valkyrie. Across her lap lies the body of her dead son. Alia glares down at us. She is as colossal as Ragnar, but ancient and wicked, like the oldest tree of some primeval forest. The kind that drinks the soil and blocks the sun for lesser trees and watches them wither and yellow and die and does nothing but reach her branches higher and dig her roots deeper. The wind has armored her face in dead skin and calluses. Her hair is stringy and long, the color of dirty snow. She sits on a cushion of furs stacked inside the ribcage of the skeleton of what must have been the largest griffin ever carved. The griffin's head screams silently down at us from above her. The wings spread against the stone wall ten meters across. On her head is a crown of black glass. At her feet is her fabled war chest, which is locked in times of peace by a great iron device. Her knotty hands are covered in blood. This is the primal realm. And though I would know what to say to a queen who sits upon a throne, I have no bloody damn clue what to say to a mother who sits with her own dead son in her lap and looks at me as though I am some worm that's just slithered up from the tiger. It seems she doesn't much care that I've lost my tongue. Hers is sharp enough. There is a great... Heresy in our lands, against the gods who ruled the thousand stars of the abyss. Her voice rumbles like that of an old crocodile. But it is not her language, it is ours. High Lingo Oriot. 
a sacred tongue known by few in these lands, mostly the shaman who commune with the gods. Spies, in other words. Alia's fluency startles Mustang, but not me. I know how the low rise under the power of the mighty, and this merely confirms what I have long suspected. Slag and Gamma are not the only favoured slaves of the world's. A heresy told by wicked prophets with wicked aims. For a summer and a winter it has slithered through us, poisoning my people and the people of the dragon spine and the blooded tents and the rattling caves, poisoning them with lies that spit in the eye of our people. She leans down from her throne, blackheads huge on her nose, wrinkles deep ravines around pitch eyes. Lies that say a stained sun will return, and he will bring a man to guide us from this land. A morning star in the darkness. I have sought these heretics out to learn of their whispers, to see if the gods spoke through them. They did not. Evil spoke through them. And so I have hunted the heretics, broken their bones with my own hands, peeled their flesh and set them upon the rock of the spires to be eaten as carrion by the fowl of the ice. The seven bodies who dangled from the chains outside. Ragnar's friends. This I do for my people, because I love my people, because the children of my loins are few, and those of my heart many. For I knew the heresy to be a lie. Ragnar, blood of my blood, would never return. To return would mean the breaking of oaths to me, to his people, to the gods who watch over us from Asgard on high. She looks down at her dead son. And then I woke into this nightmare. She closes her eyes, breathes deep, and opens them again. Who are you? to bring the corpse of my best-born to my spire. My name is Darrow of Lycos, I say. This is Virginia Au Augustus and Holiday T. Nakamura. Alia's eyes ignore Holiday and twitch over to Mustang. Even at nearly two meters, she seems a child in this huge room. We came with Ragnar, as a diplomatic mission on behalf of the Rising. The Rising. She dislikes the taste of the foreign word. And who are you to my son? She eyes my hair with more disdain than a mortal should have for a god. Something deeper is at play here. Are you Ragnar's master? I am his brother, I correct. His brother. She mocks the idea. 
Your son swore an oath of servitude to me when I took him from a gold. He offered me stains, and I offered him his freedom. Since then he has been my brother. He... Her voice catches. Died free? The way she says it intones that deeper understanding. One Mustang notes. He did. His men, the ones you have hanged on the walls outside, would have told you that I led a rebellion against the Golds who rule over you, who took Ragnar from you as they took your other children. And they would have told you, as well as all your people, that Ragnar was the greatest of my generals. He was a good man. He was, I know my son, she interrupts. I swam with him in the ice flows when he was a boy, taught him the names of the snow, of the storms, and took upon my griffin to show him the spine of the world. His hands clutched my hair and sang for joy as we rose through the clouds above. My son was without fear. She remembers that day very differently than Ragnar did. I know my son, and I do not need a stranger to tell me of his spirit. Then you should ask yourself, Queen, what would make him return here? Mustang says, what would make him send his men here? If he would come here himself, if he knew it meant breaking his oath to you and your people. Alia does not speak as she examines Mustang with those hungry eyes. Brother. She mocks the word again, looking back to me. I wonder, would you use brothers as you have used my son, bringing him here as if he is the key to unlocking the giants of the ice? She looks around the hall so I see the deeds carved into the stone that stretches the height of fifteen men above us. I've never met an obsidian artisan. They send us only their warriors. As if you could use a mother's love against her. This is the way of men. I can smell your ambition. Your plans. I do not know the abyss, O oh worldly warlord, but I know the ice. I know the serpents that slither in the hearts of men. I questioned the heretics myself. I know what you are. I know you descend from a lower creature than us. A red? I have seen reds. They are like children, little elves who live in the bones of the world. But you stole the body of an Aesir, of a sunborn. You call yourself a breaker of chains, but you are a maker of them. You wish to bind us to you. 
using our strength to make you great. Like every man. She leans over my dead friend to leer at me, and I see what this woman respects. Why Ragnar believed he would have to kill her and take her throne, and why Mustang wanted to flee. Strength. And where is mine, she wonders. You know many things of him, Mustang says, but you know nothing of me, yet you insult me. Alia frowns. It's clear she has no idea who Mustang is, and no wish to anger a true gold, if, indeed, Mustang is one. Her confidence wavers only a fraction. I have laid no claims against you, Sunborn. But you have. By suggesting he has evil wishes in store for your people, you too suggest that I collude with him. That I, his companion, am here with the same wicked intentions. Then what are your intentions? Why do you accompany this creature? To see if he was worth following, Mustang says. And is he? I don't know yet. What I do know is that millions will follow him. Do you know that number? Can you even comprehend it, Alia? I know the number. You asked my intentions, Mustang says. I will put it plainly. I am a warlord and queen like you. My dominion is larger than you can comprehend. I have metal ships in the abyss that carry more men than you have ever seen that can crack the highest mountain in two. And I am here to tell you that I am not a god. Those men and women on Asgard are not gods. They are flesh and blood, like you, like me. Alia rises slowly, bearing her huge son easily in her arms, and walks him to a stone altar and lays him upon it, she pours oil from a small urn onto a cloth and drapes it over Ragnar's face. Then she kisses the cloth, looking down at him. Mustang presses her. This land cannot hold seed. It is ruled by wind and ice and barren rock. But you survive. Cannibals roam the hills. Enemy clans ache for your land. But you survive. You sell your sons, your daughters, to your gods, but you survive. Tell me, Alia, why? Why live when all you live for is to serve, to watch your family wither away? I've watched mine go, each stolen from me, one by one. My world is broken, and so is yours. But if you join your arms with mine, with Darrow, as Ragnar wanted, we can make a new world. Alia turns back to us, beleaguered. Her steps are slow and measured as she comes before us. Which would you fear more, Virginia or Augustus? A god are a mortal with the power of a god.
The question hangs between them, creating a rift words cannot mend. A god cannot die, so a god has no fear. But mortal men... She clucks her tongue behind her stained teeth. How frightened they are that the darkness will come. How horribly they will fight to stay in the light. A corrupt voice chills my blood. She knows. Mustang and I realize it at the same terrible moment. Alia knows her gods are mortal. A new fear bubbles up from the deepest part of me. I'm a fool. We traveled all this distance to pull the wool from her eyes, but she's already seen the truth. Somehow. Some way. Did the golds come to her because she is queen? Did she discover it herself? Before she sold Ragnar? After? It's no matter. She's already resigned herself to this world, to the lie. There's another path, I say desperately, knowing that Alia made her judgment against us before we ever entered the room. Ragnar saw it. He saw a world where your people could leave the ice, where they could make their own destiny. Join me, and that world is possible. I will give you the means to take the power that will let you cross the stars like your ancestors, to walk unseen, to fly among the clouds on boots. You can live in the land of your choosing, where the wind is warm as flesh and the land is green instead of white. All you need to do is fight with me, like your son did. No, little man, you cannot fight the sky. You cannot fight the river or the sea or the mountains. And you cannot fight the gods, Alia says. So I will do my duty. I will protect my people. I will send you to Asgard in chains. I will let the gods on high decide your fate. My people will live on. Sefi will inherit my throne, and I will bury my son in the ice from which he was born. Chapter 32 No Man's Land The sky is the color of blood underneath a dead nail as we fly away from the spires. This time we are imprisoned, chained belly down to the back of fetid fur saddles like luggage. My eyes water as the wind of the lower troposphere slashes into them. The griffin beats its wings, Muscled shoulders rippling, churning the air. We bank sideways, and I see the riders tilting their masked faces up to the sky to see the faint light that is Phobos. Little flashes of white and yellow mar the darkening sky as ships overhead battle. I pray silently for Severo's safety, for victors and the howlers. Words failed with Alia as Mustang said they would. And now we are bound for Asgard, a gift for the gods to secure the future of her people. That is what she told Sefi, and her silent daughter took my chains and, 
with the help of Alia's personal guards, dragged me and Mustang and Holiday to the hangar where her Valkyrie waited. Now, hours later, we pass over a land created by wrathful gods in their youth. Dramatic and brutal, the Antarctic was designed as punishment and a test for the ancestors of the Obsidians who dared rise against the Golds in the two hundredth year of their reign. A place so savage, less than sixty percent of Obsidians reach adulthood, per Board of Quality quotas. That desperate struggle for life robs them of a chance for culture and societal progress, just as the nomadic tribes of the first Dark Ages were so robbed. Farmers make culture. Nomads make war. Subtle signs of life freckle the bald waste. Roving herds of auroch. Fires on mountain ridges, glittering from the cracks and the great doors of obsidian cities that are carved into the rock as they gather supplies and huddle behind their walls on the eve of the long dark of winter. We fly for hours. I fall in and out of sleep, body exhausted. Not having closed my eyes since we shared the pasta with Ragnar in our cozy hole in the belly of that dead ship. How has so much changed so quickly? I wake to the bellow of a horn. Ragnar is dead. It's the first thought in my head. I am no stranger waking to grief. Another horn echoes as Sefi's riders close their gaps, drifting together into tight formation. We rise amidst a sea of ash-gray clouds. Sefi bent over the reins in front of me, pushing her griffin hard toward a hulking darkness. We slipped free of the clouds to find Asgard hanging in the twilight. It's a black mountain ripped from the ground by the gods and hung halfway between the abyss and the ice world below. Seat of the Aesir. Where Olympus was a bright celebration of the senses, this is a brooding threat to a conquered race. A set of stone stairs, precarious and seemingly unsupported, rises from the mountains, tethering Asgard to the world below. The Way of Stains The path all young obsidian must take if they wish to gain the favor of the gods, to bring honor and bounty to their tribes by becoming the servants of All-Mother Death. Bodies litter the valley of the fallen beneath. Frozen mounds of men and women in a land where carrion never rots, and only the industry of crows can make proper skeletons. It is a lonely walk, and one we must make if the obsidian are to approach the mountain. This is what it takes to make an obsidian afraid. I feel that fear now from Sefi. She has never walked this path. No stained may stay among the people of the spires or the other tribes. All are chosen by the golds for service. Her mother would never have let her take the tests. She needed one daughter to remain as her heir. Unlike Olympus, Asgard is surrounded by defensive measures. 
electronic high-pitched frequency emitters that would make the griffin's eardrums bleed two clicks out. A high-charged pulse shield closer in that would hyper-oscillate the molecular structure of any man or creature by boiling the water in our skin and organs. Black magic to the obsidian. But the sensors are dead today. Compliments of Quicksilver and his hackers. And the cameras and drones that monitor our approach are blind to us, showing instead the footage recorded three years before, just as with the satellites. There is only one way to seek an audience with the gods, and that is along the way of stains, through the Shadowmouth Temple. We sat down atop the forbidding mountain peak beneath Asgard, where the way of stains is tethered to the earth. A black temple squats over the stairs like a possessive old crone, its skin ravaged by time, face crumbling to the wind. I'm pulled off the saddle and fall to the ice, legs asleep after the long journey. The Valkyrie wait for me to rise with Mustang's help. I think it's time, she says. I nod and let the Valkyrie push us after Sefi toward the Black Temple. Wind pours through the mouths of 333 stone faces that scream out from the temple's front façade, imprisoned beneath the black rock, wild eyes desperate for release. We enter under the black arch. Snow rolls across the floor. Sefi, I say. The woman turns slowly back to look at me. She's not cleaned her brother's blood from her hair. May I speak to you? Alone. The Valkyrie wait for their quiet leader to nod before pulling Mustang and Holiday back. Sefi walks farther into the temple. I follow as best I can in my chains to a small courtyard open to the sky. I shiver at the cold. Sefi watches me there, in the weird violet light, waiting patiently for me to speak. It's the first time it's occurred to me that she's as curious of me as I am of her. And it also fills me with confidence. Those small dark eyes are inquisitive. They see the cracks in things. In men, in armor, in lies. Mustang was right about Alia. She would never listen. I suspected it before we entered her throne room, but I had to give it my best. And even if she had listened, Mustang would never trust Alia Snowsparrow to lead the Obsidian in our war. I would have gained an ally and lost another. But Sefi. Sefi is the last hope I have. Where do they go? I ask her now. Have you ever wondered? The men and women your clan gives to the gods. I don't think you believe what they tell you. That they are lifted up as warriors. That they are given untold riches in service of the immortals. I wait for her to reply. Of course she does not. If I can't sway her here, then we're as good as dead. But Mustang thinks, as do I, that we have a chance with her. More than we ever did with Alia, at least. 
If you believed in the gods, you would not have sworn yourself to silence when Ragnar ascended. Others cheered, but you wept. Because you know, don't you? I step closer to the woman. She's just above my own height. More muscular than Victra. Her pale face is nearly the same shade as her hair. You feel the dark truth in your heart. All who leave the ice become slaves. Her brow furrows. I try not to lose my momentum. Your brother was stained, a son of the spires. He was a titan, and he ascended to serve the gods, but was treated no better than a prized dog. They made him fight in pits, Sefi. They wagered on his life. Your brother, the one who taught you the names of the ice and wind, who was the greatest son of the spires in his generation, was another man's property. She looks up at the sky, where the stars blink through the black-violet twilight. How many nights has she looked up and wondered what had become of her big brother? How many lies has she told herself so she can sleep at night? Now to know the horrors he suffered, it makes all those times she looked at the stars so much worse. Your mother was the one who sold him, I say, seizing the opportunity. She sold your sisters, brothers, your father. Everyone who has ever left has gone to slavery. Like my people. You know what the prophets your brother sent said. I was a slave, but I have risen against my masters. Your brother rose with me. Ragnar returned here to bring you with us to bring your people out of bondage. And he died for it. For you. Do you trust him enough to believe his last words? Do you love him enough? She looks back to me, the whites of her eyes red with an anger that seems to have been long dormant, as if she's known of her mother's duplicity for years. I wonder what she's heard listening for two and a half decades. I wonder even if her mother has told her the truth. Sefi is to be queen. Perhaps that is the rite of passage, passing down the knowledge of their true condition. Perhaps Sefi even listened to our audience with Alia. Something in the way she watches me makes me believe this. Sefi, if you deliver me to the golds, their reign continues, and your brother will have sacrificed himself for nothing. If the world is as you like it, then do nothing. But if it is broken, if it is unjust, take a chance. Let me show you the secrets your mother has kept from you. Let me show you how mortal your gods are. Let me help you honor your brother. She stares at the snow as it drifts across the floor, lost in thought. Then, with a measured nod, she pulls an iron key from her riding cloak and steps toward me. 
The stairs of the Way of Stains are frigid and gusty, and switch back devilishly into the sky through the clouds. But they are just stairs. We climb them without chains, in the guise of Valkyrie, bone-riding masks painted blue, riding cloaks, and boots too big for my feet. All loaned to us by three women who stayed behind to guard the griffin at the base of the temple. Sefi leads us, eight other Valkyrie coming behind. My legs shake from exertion by the time we reach the top and see the black glass complex of the golds that crests the floating mountain. There are eight towers in all, each belonging to one of the gods. They surround the central building, a dark glass pyramid, like wheel spokes, connected by thin bridges twenty meters above the uneven snowy ground. Between us and the gold complex is a second temple, in the shape of a giant screaming face, this one as large as Castle Mars. In front of the temple lies a little square park, at the center of which stands a gnarled black tree. Flames smolder along its branches. White blossoms perch amidst the flames, untouched by the fire. The Valkyrie whisper to each other, fearing the magic at work. Sefi carefully plucks a blossom from the tree. The flames scorch the edges of her leather gloves, but she comes away with a small white flower the shape of a teardrop. When touched, it expands and darkens to the color of blood, before wilting and turning to ash. I've never seen anything like it, nor do I particularly give a piss about the showmanship. It's too cold for that. A bloody red footprint blossoms in the snow in front of us. Sefi and her Valkyrie stay deathly still, arms outstretched with fingers crooked in a gesture of defense against evil spirits. It's just blood hidden in the stone, Mustang says. It's not real. Still, the Valkyrie are overawed when more footprints begin to appear on the ground, leading us toward the god's mouth. They look to each other in fear. Even Sefi goes to her knees when we reach the stairs at the base of the temple's mouth. We mimic her, pressing our noses to the stone as the throat opens, and out waddles a withered old man, beard white, eyes violet and milky with age. You are mad, he howls, mad as crows to travel the stairs on the eve of winter. His staff thumps each individual step in his descent, voice squeezing the lines for all they're worth. Bone and frozen blood is all that should remain. Have you come to request a trial of the stains? No, I rumble in my best Nagal. To take the trial of the stains now would do nothing for us. We would only see the gods when we received the facial tattoos. And surviving a test of the stained is something even Ragnar thought I was not prepared for. There's only one other way to bring the gods to me. Bait. No? The violet says, confused. We come to seek an audience with the gods. At any moment, one of the Valkyrie could give us up, 
All it would take is a word. The tension works its way through my shoulders. Only thing that keeps me sane is knowing Mustang's on board enough with the plan to be bent on a knee beside me at the top of this damn mountain. That has to mean I'm not totally insane. At least I hope. So you are mad, the violet says, growing bored of us. The gods come and go, to the abyss, to the sea down below, but they give no audience to mortal men. For what is time to creatures such as them? Only the stained are worth their love. Only the stained can bear the fever of their sight. Only the children of ice and darkest night. Well, this is bloody damn annoying. A ship of iron and star has fallen from the abyss, I say. It came with a tale of fire, and struck among the peaks near the Valkyrie spires, burning across the sky like blood. A ship? The violet asks, now utterly interested, as we supposed he would be. One of iron and star, I say. How do you know it was no vision? The violet asks cleverly. We touched the iron with our own hands. The violet is silent, mine sprinting to and fro behind those manic eyes. I'm waging he knows that their communication systems are down, that his masters will be eager to hear of a fallen ship. The last sight he might have seen was my speech before Quicksilver shut everything down. Now this lowly violet, this eager actor, banished to the wastes to perform a mummer's farce for barbaric simpletons, as news his masters don't. He has a prize, and his eyes, when he realizes this, narrow greedily. Now is his time to seize initiative and gain favor in the eyes of the masters. How sad, the dependability of greed to make men fools. Have you evidence? he asks eagerly. Any man may say he has seen a ship of the gods fall. Hesitating, fearful of the deception I work, but disdainful of priests, Sefi produces my razor from her bag. It is wrapped in sealskin. She lays it on the ground in whip form. The violet smiles, so very pleased. He tries to snatch it up from the ground with a rag from his pocket, but Sefi pulls it back with the seal cloth. This is for the gods, I growl, not their whelps. <laughs>